Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you wherever you may be. When we heard those soothing 14 words, we knew for the next three hours or so we were going to be taken on a journey, a shared experience for all of us by a master storyteller, poet, and an artist. We pulled up a chair, and then our friend, our uncle, our favorite teacher, would take us away from our everyday issues and cares, whatever they may be, to be entertained and informed. Vin Scully, Fordham University class of 1949, was recruited by Red Barber to provide live updates for CBS Radio Sports by telephone of the Boston University Maryland College football game live from the roof of frigid Fenway Park. Vin passed the audition with flying colors. Fresh out of college, just four months later, Scully was hired by the Dodgers, for whom he worked for the next 67 years. In 1953, when Barber left Brooklyn for the Yankees, Vin became the voice of the Dodgers at the age of 25. Five years later, when the Dodgers left Brooklyn for Los Angeles, Walter O'Malley brought Vin and his partner Jerry Doggett to Los Angeles with him. Together, they introduced Major League Baseball to Southern California by way of the new and ever-present transistor radio. With the emergence of the Dodgers and the undeniable skill of Scully, Vin was calling some of the biggest moments in baseball with his artistry, vocabulary, intellect, and timing, a soundtrack of the game's history. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. It looks like he's going to burn a flag, and Rick Monday runs and takes it away from him. And so Monday... I think a guy was going to set fire to the American flag. Can you imagine that? Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung it out and missed the perfect game. Vince Scully. Well, there's a lot of talk these days about greatest of all time. Goat used to be a bad thing. Now it's the greatest of all time. Well, that's the end of this discussion. Vince Scully is the greatest of all time, period. No discussion. It's him. Vin called 25 World Series, 12 All-Star Games, 18 no-hitters, three perfect games, and ultimately the most perfect call of one of the most dramatic moments in World Series history, and the most dramatic moment in Dodger history. And look who's coming up. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. Vin was most comfortable in the booth and never really comfortable in the spotlight. But the Irish tenor took on the role as an ambassador for the game. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old 
the city of Los Angeles. Let's hear it, Vin Scully! And the fans, whom he loved just as much as they loved him. One of the great rewards in my life is the privilege of broadcasting Los Angeles Dodger baseball to the nicest fans in the world. Finn was so utterly unique and so universally popular that his going away tour in 2016 came to him. And so cosmically powerful, the Dodgers would clinch the Western Division title on one mighty swing by until then a little-known utility player named Charlie Culberson, who was etched into Dodger lore on Vin's final home game. If ever there was a time for Dodger baseball, this was it. Swung on a high fly ball to deep left field. The Dodger bench empties. Would you believe a home run? And the Dodgers have clinched the division and will celebrate on schedule. Ben, we love you, and this is for you, my friend. On September the 24th, 2016, 50,000 fans paid tribute to Vin, and Kevin Costner spoke for all of us. Allow me to say one more time for the record for all of us, all of us here today and for those watching, that we will miss you, my friend. We will miss you in our radio, in our cars, in our backyard. You've been a gift to Los Angeles the baseball itself. It seems forever that you've been guiding us through your personal window into the game. How lucky we were that day in Brooklyn when the microphone passed into your hands. You were the chosen one, the skinny redhead who stood on the shoulders of the biggest kid, ready to look through the knot hole in the fence and describe for the rest of us what was going on. You were better than a golden ticket. You invited us all to pull up a chair, spend the afternoon, and then proceeded to walk us into the next century. A week later, Vin would say goodbye. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem, life seems a faithful friend to share. For every sigh, a sweet song and an answer for each prayer. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. But you know what? There will be a new day and eventually a new year. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon, wherever you may be. Vin Scully passed away this week. At the age of 94, he was born in 1927. He worked for the Dodgers calling games for 67 seasons, which is amazing. I don't think that's a record that will ever be broken. 
though it came close to being broken by another Dodgers announcer who is retiring, Jaime Harin, who did the Spanish broadcasts working 64 years. But I, of course, did not listen to Jaime Harin because I only speak a little bit of Spanish and obviously I'm going to listen to the English broadcast, but I did listen to a whole lot of Vin Scully. I was not born in Los Angeles, just as the Dodgers did not originally play in Los Angeles. The Dodgers originally played in Brooklyn. In 1950, when Vince Scully had his first game that he was broadcasting, there was a young girl still in preschool who lived in Brooklyn that uh, listened to him broadcasting. I don't know if she heard the first game he broadcast, but she did hear him broadcast during that 1950 season. Again, this girl was not even in kindergarten yet. She was a preschooler. And when Vince Scully retired at the end of the 2016 season, that girl had a son who was close to 45 years old. That preschooler that was listening to him had a son who was almost 45 by the time Vince Scully called his final game. And that son was me. That shows you how long that Vin was at it, that my mom was not even in kindergarten. And she did live in Brooklyn. So she lived right there in Brooklyn in 1950. And yet her son made it almost to 45 before he retired. It's crazy. So he wasn't there just my almost entire life, but almost my mom's entire life. It's a very, very long tenure. And I don't think you're going to see that again. But it wasn't just longevity. Vin Scully was really the best baseball guy on the radio that there ever has been. And part of the reason he was so great was that he could go on these tangents and tell these interesting stories that were related or somewhat related to what was going on or the player at bat or the pitcher who was pitching and not miss a beat regarding the action that was happening at the time. So it's one thing to just get on a microphone and rant as I do here, but he actually was calling a game, which is hard to do, hard to do by itself. And then he's able to weave stories into it. And he was able to do this the entire time that he was broadcasting for the Dodgers. He retired at the age of almost 89. So obviously he wasn't quite the same guy at the end as he was throughout most of his career. It's impossible to have the same skills, the same sharpness as you did earlier in your life when you're 89. If you even make it to 89, most people don't even make it to 89. But if you do, even if you are still very sharp and still very coherent, you're not going to be quite as you were at your peak. And that was true for Vin, but unlike other broadcasters like LA's Chick Hearn for the Lakers, who were allowed to keep broadcasting long after they should have been, who'd make all kinds of mistakes and really weren't very good anymore, but they were kept on for the sake of nostalgia and because they had earned it from their previous work. That wasn't Vin's story. Vin was great until the end. So even though he made a few mistakes at the end, like he'd call a player by the player's father's name if the father played too, he was still an excellent baseball broadcaster even when he was almost 89 years old. He wasn't quite peak Vin Scully, but what little he had lost still left him as the best at the time. Bring Trader Ruski on and we'll continue this little discussion about Vince Scully. 
Trader Risky, hello. What's Welcome, Josh. Welcome to the show on? in the middle of this uh, Vince Scully tribute. And did you grow up in L.A.? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I agree. And I just wanted to make sure Bob Miller got a shout out because, uh, you know, along with Chick Hearn and Vince Scully, Bob Miller was certainly right up there with the storytelling and uh, everything else. So, yeah, grew up with Vin and uh, sad to see him go, but... 94? I'll take 94 right now. Yeah, 94 is a very good age to live to. Some people don't know that Vin Scully and Tommy Lee Sorter are almost the exact same age. They were born within two months of one another in 1927, and Tommy Lee Sorter died last year in January, so he obviously had a very long life, too. A little bit shorter than Vin, but pretty close. Lasorda was more amazing that he made it as long as he did, because Lasorda was between fat and obese almost his entire adult life. And he still made it to the age of 93. So that you don't see very often. He got really lucky. Uh, Vince Scully was not fat or obese. So with him, it made more sense. But still, that's a, a very long time to live for anybody, especially a male. Males don't live as long as females. Uh, Vin, I could tell, was deteriorating physically. I saw him uh, throw out the first pitch at a game. I think it was shortly after he retired. And he had a very hard time walking. They had to walk him over there. Uh, the ball barely, barely left his hand when he threw the pitch. So I wasn't expecting him to fire a 90-mile-per-hour uh, fastball throwing the first pitch, but uh, he, he could barely throw it at all. And I thought, okay, well, his mind is still there, but his body is deteriorating. I don't know how long we will have with him. But he did live for several years after that. So 94, very good age to live to. He wasn't that far from 95, in fact, because you know, we're in the middle of 2022, and he was born in 27. So he was getting close to 95. I would see his car driving around the area where I live, which I'm not going to say where it is, but uh, I wasn't that far from where Vin Scully lived. And I did see a car sometimes driving around with the license plate Vin Scully. It was like V-N-S-C-U-L-Y. And you may say, well, this could be a fan of his, but it wasn't. It was it was really a car, either his car or one associated with him. He probably wasn't driving at that point. I have to imagine it was a relative or a friend. Uh, his wife actually died before he did. Maybe it was his wife driving because his wife was still alive. But uh, something that some of you may know is that when someone, when someone has a... Uh, a spouse die when they uh, are very old themselves, then they end up uh, dying soon after that. And Vince Scully, he actually outlived his wife, even though she was like 20 years younger than him. She died a year ago. So that may have contributed to Vince Scully's death. You see this a lot with married couples where one goes and the other goes a very short time later when they are like over 80, especially over 90, but over 80. You can say, well, people over 85 or so die at a high rate anyway because they're very old. But there really is something to when someone's longtime spouse dies, sometimes they kind of just are overcome with depression or lose the will to live. And there really is something to the 
other half of the couple dying fairly soon after that. So I have to imagine Vin was uh, very devastated to see his wife pass before him, especially because she was 20 years younger, and uh, he was gone within about a year of that. Vin Scully had some tragedy early, uh, earlier in his life. Uh, in 1972, he lost his first wife. His first wife was only 35 when she died 50 years ago, and she died of an accidental medical overdose. And I say medical overdose because she wasn't a drug addict or anything like that. She just misused medication somehow accidentally. I don't know exactly what happened there, but this wasn't a case of addiction or doing drugs she wasn't supposed to. She just uh, somehow misused the medication accidentally and died. So that was one tragedy in his life. And then 22 years later, his oldest son, who was with that wife that passed away in 72, 22 years later, he died in his 30s. And his death was an indirect result of the 1994 Los Angeles Northridge earthquake. And when I say an indirect result, he didn't die in the quake. He didn't get hurt in the quake. But what happened was he was working for a company that was inspecting oil pipelines. So they were going around California checking on oil pipelines to make sure that the earthquake did not damage them because this was a major quake in January 94. And unfortunately, one of the helicopters that was taking him to the site crashed and he died. And uh, Vince Scully had this second tragedy in his life where someone he loved died in their 30s. So very tough, but... He was broadcasting for the Dodgers the entire way, both in 72 and in 94, and you couldn't even tell listening to him that there was anything wrong. And it's not that he didn't feel it. It was that he was uh, such a professional and so good at what he did, he was able to hide the uh, immense pain he felt. And he's talked about this. He's talked about what's happened there. And I'm sure both of those were very, very tough on him. So he was someone who didn't have uh, a perfect life from that standpoint, I mean, he had a great career and he was someone everyone loved. You never heard anything bad about him. Uh, like Tommy Lasorda, let's go back to him. Tommy Lasorda had people who loved him. There's a lot of Dodgers fans who loved Lasorda, and I like Lasorda. But uh, there's people around baseball who didn't like Lasorda, especially people who are non-Dodgers fans. Some people really didn't like him. Uh, that's not true of Vince Scully. Everybody loved Vince Scully. You won't find anybody who had anything too bad to say about Vince Scully. So he had the love and admiration of people everywhere and he's in the hall of fame as a broadcaster he never played baseball but he has the he's in the baseball hall of fame for his broadcasting and still he had two very bad things happen in his life that he had to get over and that i'm sure there's times he thought i'd give back all the fame and fortune and the great career i have i'd give all that back if uh these things didn't happen to me so that was uh, two very tough things about 20 years apart in his life. Final thing I want to say about Vince Scully before we uh, get going with the regular show. And I've, I've been a lifelong Dodgers fan. As I said, I wasn't born in L.A. I was born in the East Coast, but I came at a very young age. So all my memories are from the West. All my memories are as a Dodgers fan. And some people do not know, in fact, most of you do not know, that Vince Scully had three extra years at the end of his career he would not have had because he decided to keep broadcasting after initially deciding to quit in the 2013 season, or after the 2013 season. He was going to complete the season and then be done. 
but he quit at the end of the 2016 season. Now, definitely at the end of the 2013 season, when he'd be almost 86, you'd say, okay, obviously the guy has been working since 1950. He's about 86 years old. Yeah, totally makes sense that he is retiring now. So why did he work those three more years? Very few people know this. It's because of a player named Yasiel Puig. Yasiel Puig, even though he is still of uh, baseball-playing age, he's only 32, he is not in Major League Baseball right now. He last played in 2019, and right now he is playing in Korea, hoping to maybe one day come back to Major League Baseball, though time's running out. He was a Cuban player the Dodgers got who had a lot of talent, but had some uh, issues, some uh, behavioral issues. Not drug-related, believe it or not, but just behavioral issues. Just kind of a combination of uh, immaturity and too much showboating and, and being hard to coach. So when Puig first came up to the Dodgers in 2013, when they first brought him up from the minors, he was really, really, really good. It was like impossible to get him out. And he did a lot of things that were getting the attention of people in baseball. He was a very exciting player. He had a really, really, really strong arm and was throwing people out from right field. What looked like obvious doubles, he'd fire it over to second and the runner would be out. He'd fire the ball to home plate when it looks like the runner's going to easily score and they'd be out. And on the other end, he'd hit a routine single and the right or left fielder would casually walk up to the ball thinking, okay, it's a routine single, and he'd speed over to second and so many times he stretched a single to a double, a routine single to a double. He was doing things like that, and he was hitting home runs, and he was hitting for good average. So this guy was doing everything, and Vince Scully loved him. Vince Scully called him the wild horse, and Vince Scully really, really, really enjoyed commentating and announcing Yasiel Puig's play. Now, prior to this, the Dodgers were really struggling that season. The Dodgers in early June were in last place. So it looked like a terrible season for them. And even though they came fairly close to making the postseason in 2011 and 2012, 2013 looked like it was a lost cause. They were It just looked like a bad team. And then Puig came up, and everything turned around, and the Dodgers won 42 of the next 50 games. They're 42-8 and eight over 50 games, which in baseball is real tough to do. Now, believe it or not, in 2017, the Dodgers actually bettered that. They actually did 43-7 and seven in a 50-game stretch. But people knew the whole way the 2017 team was excellent. 2013, not so much. So it looked like a bad team, and Puig helped turn it around. And Vince Scully, who had decided when the Dodgers were in last place in June, in early June, that he's done. He's not going to spend his last few years on earth broadcasting for a fail team. He didn't say that out loud, but he had made the decision. He had made the decision that this was his last year, that, yeah, if the Dodgers were going to be in contention for a World Series title, which they hadn't had since 88, he was going to try to stick around and be there for it, but uh, not if they're going to be a fail team for the next few years. He's like, forget it. If, th- if this is the way they are now, I think I'm done, which is totally understandable. Anyway, Puig got him so excited about the Dodgers again and about their chances and seeing this amazing run where they went from last to first that he decided to stick around. So even though the Dodgers did not win the World Series, they won the National League West, but they didn't make the World Series uh, in 2013, he had a lot of hope for that team going forward. So he continued broadcasting in 2014, 2015, and 2016. They did not win the World Series those years. They did win the National League West again those three years. And finally, Vin just didn't have the energy to continue. So he 
finally retired after t- the 2016 season because he just couldn't handle it physically anymore. And that was that. So the final three years that Vince Scully stayed broadcasting were because of Yasiel Puig. And Yasiel Puig even posted a little tribute on his Twitter about Vince Scully when he heard that Vince Scully passed. He did not say what I said, that Vince Scully stayed on because of him. And in fact, this is not well known at all. But it's true. That's a little piece of Vince Scully trivia for you. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We have a free roll, but I won't tell you a lot about it because it already started and it's already locked up. $50 prize pool is the Fuck PayPal yet again free roll. Thanks to Eric Benzamokin. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. I can pay you by Zelle, Cash App, Bank Transfer, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin. I can pay a lot of different cryptos. Or other methods you could think of that I could send you money online. Claim your prize by going on the forum and messaging Dan Druff. That's Dan Druff with a space in between on the forum. Or you can text me, 775-372-8355. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, though I prefer... You do it on the forum. Easier for me to keep track of. I will do another batch of payments very shortly in case you're waiting for yours. The payments happen once every few months. So keep that in mind. If you win the money, you will get it. I promise. I promise you'll get the money. It's just I, I just do it in large batches so it's easier for me to do. But thank you to Eric Benzamokin for sending the money. And I wish his appeal well against uh, PayPal to try to compel them to deal with this in court rather than arbitration, as we've talked about before. The late registration already closed at 9.10. The phone number to call the show, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. And keep in mind that the Mount Charleston line is a separate line into the show. It is an old 70s rotary phone that is on top of Mount Charleston that I forward to myself wherever I go. You cannot text that number, but you can text the main phone number of the show, which again is 775-372-8355. You can text 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you text during the show, then I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to. If you text me at any other time, I won't read it on the air, and I will probably answer you if you text me. So that's one way to get a hold of me, and never feel bad about the time you're texting me. There's some people who get angry when they get texts at four in the morning, but not me. I'm happy to get a text at any time, and I probably will answer you. I have an interesting one right here, which I can't read on the air because it's making an allegation against someone, and I could get... uh, sued for slander if this ends up not being true and i don't know the person who's texting it to me but it's an interesting text so thank you to that person especially if this is uh, well i know some of it is true i i will tell this person who just texted me this has already been brought to my attention though not completely not not as much as you're saying here but uh some of the other stuff you wrote has already been brought to my attention and i am in the process of looking into it and may bring this up on the next show and I know you guys are saying, what the hell is he talking about? But the person who texted me knows. But I, I may have some stuff to discuss next show. Anyway, going back to the intro here, we have a call to listen line, but hold on, there is a new phone number yet again. And 
yes, we changed the phone number about a month ago, and the phone number has changed again. I don't like this. I wish it stayed the same phone number, but unfortunately, there's some aspects of the call to listen line I don't have full control of, and I won't get into why, but the phone number is the main thing I don't have full control of, so sometimes this will just change, and I've got to roll with it. I could get one that doesn't change, but it would cost me a bunch of money, and I don't want to do that, so in the interest of being a cheap Jew, I'm doing it the way I'm doing it here, and so I don't have control of the phone number, which can change every so often, and sometimes I'm told about it, sometimes I'm not. This time I was not. I discovered it on my own, but uh, the new call to listen phone number is 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189. I have updated the radio tab of Poker Fraud Alert to have the new number on there. So if you forget this, just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. You will see it right there. It works exactly the same as before. And it does not require a computer. It does not require an app. It does not require the internet. It does not require a data plan. It will not use any of your phone's data. No, 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 no. It's very simple. You just call up and you listen. And it never buffers and it never freezes. The phone number may change, but it will still never buffer and never freeze. It just works. And even if you have like one bar on your cell phone, you can use it and it will broadcast properly and not buffer or freeze. So it's a great thing to use if you're like on the road and you want to listen to the show and you don't have a good enough data connection to stream a normal internet-based show. This one, you can just make a phone call and listen and it'll work. 518-931-1189. You can throw away all the other call-to-listen-line numbers you have. They will never work again. Hopefully, this number will stick for a while. And, yeah, that's the way it goes. But at least the call-to-listen-line persists. I will make sure we always have a call-to-listen-line. I just may not always have the fa- same phone number for it. But that's the number at the moment, 518-931-1189. And thank you for your patience with that. And feel free to tell me if... It stops working if you get some kind of changed number message on there. Uh, Feel free to tell me if I haven't already changed it because sometimes I'm blindsided by this and nobody tells me and I got to roll with it. We have a chat room still. If you're listening live, you can always go in the chat room. Right now it's just me and Trader Ruski, but you can always go in the chat room if you're listening live and talk to whoever is in there. Here's the agenda and then we'll get going. Last show, which was about two weeks ago, we had three interviews. We will not have any interviews this time. That tends to be the way it goes. We either have a lot of interviews or none, usually none. But we have a lot to talk about still this week. The main story is the Hustler Casino. We have two Hustler topics, one big and one kind of small. The main topic is about the 250K guarantee event where they removed the guarantee midway. And that obviously is a big no-no. And a lot of controversy erupted about this on Twitter And I got in the middle of the whole thing. So I will tell you about this. I'll tell you what I said. I'll tell you about some interactions I had with the general manager of the Hustler Casino. And by the way, this has to do with the casino itself, not Hustler Casino Live. Though they got involved in it a bit towards the end. This was not anything having to do with the Hustler Casino Live show, which is run by a different company. Then the next day after this controversy... uh, Either the next day or the next or two days later, but right after this controversy broke out, an armored car outside of the Hustler was the target of a robbery. 
So an armored car that was coming to the Hustler actually was getting robbed and a shootout happened right there. Nothing to do with the guarantee being removed. Though at first I thought maybe someone's coming for their guarantee money. But no, it was a an armored car robbery at the Hustler. So we'll talk about that as well. And sticking to the guaranteed tournament, which doesn't pay out a guarantee topic. 300 miles away, the MGM Grand Las Vegas paid out only $1,500 of a $3,000 guaranteed tournament. So what's that about? Well, I brought it up. I'm not the one who noticed it. It was brought to my attention. And in fact, someone said, hey, Druff, you don't seem to care about this. Why won't you bring this up? Why are you ignoring this situation? I said, no, I'm not. This is the first I'm seeing of it. So, okay, I will bring it up. So I brought it up on Twitter and I got a whole discussion going about it. I'm I'm not going to shy away from these things. So people who think that I'm selectively bringing up topics about casinos I don't like or something. It's it's not true. In fact, I have nothing against the Hustler Casino. As you'll hear during the segment, I have a special place in my heart for the Hustler Casino, but it's not going to stop me from coming on here and being critical of the Hustler Casino when they don't behave well. And I have nothing against the MGM Grand either. But we got to talk about these things. So we'll talk about that MGM Grand situation, which is not as bad as what happened with Hustler, but I don't like it either. Dan Sheck, who I had some interesting interaction with before anyone knew who he was in poker back in 05. He is now charged with spoofing the gold market. He is uh, a big-time trader, and he runs a hedge fund. This very rich guy, Dan Shack, but he is being charged with uh, what's called spoofing in the gold market. I'll explain what that is. He is not being criminally charged, so he's not going to go to prison for this, but he might get a big fine and this might affect his future trading. So we will discuss that. I have a lot of people who are interested in having me discuss that today. A lot of people sent me this article. Even my dad sent me this article. Like people really want me to discuss this, so I'm going to discuss this. I was going to anyway, but a lot of people sent me this one. We have two Landon T stories, which, to be honest, I kind of wish we didn't because he's really not worth talking about in two different stories. I have nothing against the kid. He's fine, but I don't think he's newsworthy enough to talk about with two topics, but nonetheless, here we are. First of all, he embarrassed himself with a cringeworthy Ignition Slots ad on his Twitter, and I'll read what he posted, and I'll explain why this was so awful. Awful meaning it wasn't scammy, and it wasn't uh, anything bad. It was just embarrassing. And then, arguably the more interesting of the two Landon T's topics, he has agreed to spend a year at Bally's in Paris without ever sitting foot off the property for $100,000. So we will discuss that, and we'll talk about whether it would be worth it to spend a year at Bally's in Paris where you can't leave for hundred k especially if you're a young guy with no family. So we will discuss that whole matter. Bryn Kenny is back in the news, fresh off the cheating allegations he's been facing. He is an investor and probably the main ambassador for a new online poker site that hasn't opened yet called 4Poker, the number four and poker. So we'll discuss that, and I will tell you why I think that Bryn Kenny is involved in this whole thing and why they involved him. Then we have the return of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. And what better week to talk about Death Valley than this week? So this is going to be a Death Valley discussion. I'll give you the history of Death Valley, and I will give you a very current story about 
Death Valley that is in the mainstream news where people are currently trapped there due to a very rare flood. So it'll be all about Death Valley in Mojave Desert in Las Vegas history, which is a segment that I have gotten requests for to return. I haven't done it in a while. I had another debate with Vital Vegas on Twitter. This time it was about casino bar slow playing. That is when you go to a casino bar that has video poker and you play really, really, really slowly to get free drinks. Is it unethical? Or is it, as Vital Vegas called it, shoplifting? We will discuss that. MGM Grand Las Vegas started a weird promotion to pay grinders an hourly wage as long as they played 20 hours or more, but it has some very weird twists to it. I will explain the promotion and tell you what I think of it. Finally, I want to talk a bit about mask mandates. As our coronavirus news segment we haven't done in a while, the BA5 variant of Omicron is ramping up in the country, and while it's very similar to the other Omicron variants as far as the symptoms people feel, and it is much milder than Delta and the original COVID of the previous two years, it is the most contagious of all variants, and a lot of people are getting it, including those that never had COVID before, and also including those that had four shots and never had COVID before. In case you're wondering, I did not get BA5. I got uh, probably BA4 back in June at the World Series of Poker, but the two are very similar, so I am immune to BA5. But we will discuss whether the mask mandates that are creeping back in again have any use or if it's just virtual signaling. So we will discuss that as our final topic of the evening. Let's get going, and we're going to talk about The Hustler. It's our main topic. It's a big story in poker. It's something with long-ranging implications, and it's something that as soon as I saw was happening, which is before it really many people were aware of it. I saw the discussion of this before it had really blown up in mainstream poker Twitter. I thought it was something that had to be addressed. Before I start, I want to tell you that I have nothing against the Hustler Casino. Not only do I like Hustler Casino Live, which really is not associated with Hustler in the way that the ownership of Hustler does not own uh, Hustler Casino Live. It's two different companies, just like Live at the Bike and the Bike were two different companies. But I liked Hustler itself for a few reasons. Number one... It has a special place in my heart because it was the very first place that I ever played Texas Hold'em. On January 17, 2001, I remember the exact date, I had just read Lee Jones' Winning Low Limit Hold'em book long before he was a Poker Stars employee. And I showed up at Hustler to play my very first hand of Texas Hold'em. It was the closest card room to where I lived at the time. Shortly after work, I went over there. I played $3, $6 limit hold'em. I walked out exactly even, but I couldn't wait to come back. I loved it. And over 21 years later, I'm still at it. So the very first hand of hold'em I ever played was right there at the Hustler Casino, which was fairly new at the time because it opened in the middle of 2000, and I was there for the first time in January of 01. So Hustler is a place that will always mean something to me. And also... 
eventually I branched out and played in other card rooms, obviously. But something I noticed about the Hustler is that it was kind of a more laid back and relaxing place to play. It's kind of a medium-sized card room. It's not tiny, but it's not huge like Commerce or the Bike or even Hollywood Park. And the whole atmosphere there is less frantic, less stressful. Like at Commerce, everyone's pissed off all the time. It's never like that at Hustler. I'm not saying you don't have some assholes there, but in general, the atmosphere there is much more pleasant. It's a much more laid-back place. So I always kind of like the Hustler. And that 2550 limit Hold'em game has been good ever since it started, like, 20 years ago. <laughs> that game has been a good game the entire time, even as poker got tougher. I usually play bigger than that live, because live doesn't play as big as online. But still, I always had warm feelings for the Hustler. The Hustler is named after Hustler Magazine, which was started and owned by Larry Flint. But this was not something just in name. Larry Flint really enjoyed poker, and he personally supervised the project of the Hustler Casino being built. He also played in high-stakes games there for a while. I watched it a few tables over as he'd be playing like a 1,500, 3,000 limit hold'em. For unknown reasons, he stopped playing poker at Hustler. Uh, He died last year, but he seems to have stopped playing there a long time ago, so it wasn't because of his death. But he did play there for a while, and he started the Hustler Casino because he loved poker. Now, something that's important to know, because it's going to directly impact this story that I'm going to tell you, is that Hustler does not have a huge building. It doesn't have the type of space that the bike or commerce have, nowhere even close, so it can never fully compete with those rooms. Even if everyone wanted to go to the Hustler, they would reach a capacity ceiling and that would be it. So they always have to keep that in mind with any plans they they make for anything that the place has a certain capacity. Now, usually it's not busting at the seams where every single table is being used. But like if you think about a tournament, there's only so big of a tournament they can run because they just don't have that much space to run it. And that'll have to do with the upcoming story I'm going to tell you. Hustler Casino Live started last year. We had... Ryan Feldman, who is one of the owners of the business that started Hustler Casino Live, he and his friend Nick Vertucci started it. Feldman used to be the producer of Live at the Bike. He is a big reason that Live at the Bike was as interesting as it was and got the type of players it did. And they got rid of him there. He told a story on here that they basically didn't treat him well and uh, didn't keep a lot of their promises, and and that the bike itself also didn't treat him very well at the end and he came on here for about a hour and a half to tell us that whole thing and he was uh gave us a lot of his time which i appreciated so anyway feldman had a big list of contacts from live of the bike so it was perfect he started a competing stream at the hustler called hustler casino live and this time he wasn't just working for the stream he was one of the two people starting it So he took his list of contacts and his general talents in producing these type of shows, and he is very good at doing that, very good at uh, networking. And he created a very well-liked show, which quickly eclipsed Live at the Bike and became the top streaming poker show in the world. It's about one year old now. It started in August 2021. I'm not sure the exact date in August. And it's been a rousing success. 
Hustler does not own any of this to my knowledge, but it does get publicity from this. I don't know if they're paying Hustler or Hustler's paying them or neither, but obviously this brings people to Hustler. This makes people take notice of Hustler, and it's very good for Hustler when this becomes a very popular stream, which it has. So they had a tournament series that was called the uh, Larry Flint Grand Slam of Poker Memorial Tournament. It actually had a picture of uh, Larry Flint prominently on the cover of it, uh, or the sheet that's advertising it, even though he's been dead now for over a year. And they advertised right there over $400,000 in guarantees. The tournament was to take place from July 17th through August 7th. And the big one, the big guarantee, there were two really big guarantees in this. The first one was a tournament they were having from the 18th to the 23rd of July that had a 100K guarantee. But the bigger of the guarantees was a 250K guarantee with 50 guaranteed for first. And this was to take place from July 31st through August 7th is uh, the last time you could register and... uh, you may say, okay, well, that means it's still going. Well, not quite. (laughs) So this is where all the controversy came. It had 12 starting flights, this 250K guarantee. It was two per day, though. So there were six starting days, which lasted from the 31st to the 6th. There were two starting flights on the 31st, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th make 10 flights, and then one starting flight on the 5th and one starting flight on the 6th today. That was what was planned for a $350 buy-in. You were allowed to rebuy, but anyway, they would obviously have to get uh, a good number of entrants to make the 250000 So they ended up getting uh, 123 players registering in the first Uh, four flights, and they realized that uh, there was a problem. Now, this may not sound that bad to you, right? Because uh, they had 123. They needed 591 for the guarantee to be reached. After 591, they would get to uh, 250K, because it's 350 each. They had 123, but they had only done a third of the flights. However, here's the problem, is that uh, the numbers were not going in the right direction. They got uh, 63 people playing for the first flight, but then the next flights were going down and the third and fourth flight just got 15 and 17 players respectively. So they thought, oh crap, if we continue with this pace, we're going to be way behind because we have eight flights left, but let's say we get an average of 16 players uh, for for the remaining flights, that's going to only get us uh, 120-something more players and we're going to fall way, way behind. Now, you might say, wait a minute, once people were to hear about such a major overlay, surely you're going to have a ton of people streaming down there on the final day, even if they have to fly there, to play on this final uh, flight on uh, August 6th at 12 p.m., because they'll know it's so positive expectation to do so, even if you are just an average player. But this is where the capacity comes in, because they just don't have that much tournament space. And they realize that even if there is tremendous demand on the final day when the overlay is known, because they can promote the overlay all they want, and then word will get around. But the problem is, 
if everybody's waiting to the final day to register, they're just not going to be able to get in. So they were afraid that due to the capacity limitation, that they just are going to fall way, way short of the 591 players they need to keep the overlay from happening. Again, an overlay is where the guarantee is more than what they take in buy-ins and the casino has to cover the rest. So they were not only concerned that they wouldn't make this uh, that they wouldn't make this guarantee without having to pay money out of their pocket, but they were afraid of they'd fall way short and maybe be six figures in the hole. So what did they do? What did they do? They posted this tweet on August 2nd. Remember, this is after just two days, four flights in out of 12 flights. They posted on August 2nd, due to unexpected circumstances, we have, to, we have decided to cancel our remaining dates for the tournament series and the 250K guarantee. We will still play day two for the players that have already qualified, and they will be playing for the current prize pool. We apologize for any inconvenience that this may have caused. Basically, they're saying, F you and F the guarantee. We know we guarantee 250K. We know some people already played, believing it was a 250K guarantee, and some people are still in it and believe that they are in line for a 50K first prize and a 250K guarantee prize pool, no matter how many or how few people enter. But guess what, guys? The word guarantee doesn't really mean guarantee because, well... There were unexpected circumstances, so uh, no more guarantees, sorry. So that's it. We are closing registration now, so there will not be these other eight flights, and the guarantee is gone, and the remaining players can just play it out, and whatever we've collected in buy-ins, that's what we're going to pay out. So tough luck, guys. Too bad, so sad. That's pretty bad. Now, we have seen a number of shenanigans over the years where rooms have tried to worm out of their guarantee. And I've talked to them, I've talked about them before in the show. There's been various ways they have done it, and I've always criticized it. There was the Westgate situation where they were offering discounts to enter at the last minute so they could get more people down there, or they were putting people in for free because. They realized that they might as well because they're not going to make the guarantee. So they started just putting in preferred players or, or friends of theirs into it for free. So that was very unethical. There was the situation at the Gardens Casino, formerly known as Hawaiian Gardens, also in the L.A. area. This was five years ago where they added five additional starting flights when they weren't making their guarantee. So that was pretty bad, too. You can't just have card rooms adding more and more starting flights until they get enough people. That's not what a guarantee is about. But this one is the most egregious. This one, they just outright killed the guarantee, and they did it during the tournament. There was some controversy recently at the Orleans where they were canceling tournaments before they started because they were seeing they were not getting enough interest. But at least the tournament hadn't started yet. Here, the tournament actually started... And some people busted, or a lot of people busted, and some people had already cashed, and people were still playing. And they said, ah, you know what, guys? Actually, you know that guarantee we said we're going to give for this tournament? Uh, yeah, it's not happening anymore. It's gone. You're, you're just playing for whatever people bought in for. Sorry. 
So this has not happened, at least not in uh, major or semi-major U.S. live card rooms, to my knowledge. This one was really bad. So as you might imagine, there was uh, a lot of anger about this, even among people who were not in that tournament because of what this meant. This is really just a big F you to poker players. Now, before I continue, I need to discuss the whole concept of a guaranteed tournament. A guaranteed tournament is where the casino is guaranteeing, notice that word, guaranteeing, that a certain minimum prize pool will be there for the tournament regardless of the interest they get. And this brings people over there because, number one, people are excited to play for a big prize pool, and number two, They're hoping for this overlay situation where even if they're an average player, it becomes positive expectation for them because the house is basically adding money that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So that's the upside for the players, and that's why some players like guaranteed tournaments and specifically go to tournaments because they are guaranteed. The upside for the card room is that they get more players because it is a guaranteed tournament. It it attracts people over to the room to play when maybe they otherwise would not have. The downside is that they are risking that an overlay happens. So this becomes gambling for the casino, not at the casino. I guess also at the casino, but it becomes gambling for the casino, where they are deciding that instead of just charging a rake and making a set amount per person, that they are going to take a risk and add this element, which makes the tournament more attractive, but where the casino risks losing money if the overlay situation occurs because they don't get enough buy-ins. Now, no casino has to offer a guarantee. Nobody expects them to offer a guarantee. It is totally up to the casino whether they want to make guaranteed tournaments or whether they don't. So if they feel they want to take this chance, then they can. And if they feel they don't want to take this chance, then they don't have to. It's kind of like if you have money, you can decide to put it in the bank and you're going to earn a set amount of interest. You can put it in a CD that you know, has like 1% interest or whatever and know you're going to earn that 1% interest and there's no risk to it. Or you can invest in something like the stock market or crypto where you can make way more than 1%, but you could also lose most of it. So you can choose. It's your money. You can choose what you want to do if you want to risk it or if you want to put it somewhere that is safe that's only going to make a little bit. So the, the choice is... Yours, just like it's the choice of the card room, whether to take the risk to offer a guarantee tournament. But you know what they should not do is offer a guarantee tournament where they honor it only if they make the guarantee, because then there's no point of the guarantee. Then the players are getting free rolled. The players are coming down believing it's a guarantee, and if they get enough buy-ins to cover that amount anyway, well, then they've really gotten nothing out of it. And if they don't, then the casino finds a way to worm out of the guarantee. That's a big, big problem for the community. That's players being cheated because the players are keeping their end of the bargain by coming down and buying in and paying the rake of buying in, but the casino isn't keeping theirs to where if they don't reach the guarantee through the buy-ins, they just don't pay it or they find ways to worm out or semi-worm out of it. So it's very important. I mean, there's got to be a rule against this. Well... that, that's, that's a good point. They just don't enforce it? Right. Well, so here's the problem. Order something? Why can't Benzema get involved? Here, here's the problem. 
there should be. There should be very strict rules about this. There should be very strict laws against this. Unfortunately, there's not because those that write these regulations do not understand the world of poker tournaments very well. So let's look at California. California is a disaster when it comes to protecting player rights. California's gaming commission doesn't care. Sorry, drop. But shouldn't look, but shouldn't it be more just like fake advertising almost, right? Because instead of spending a marketing budget or giving away a prize or something, they're using this thing to attract people. They may have made a million dollars and the you know, and then they're only losing three hundred thousand or whatever on the tournament. Now, I understand what you're saying, that perhaps there could be a lawsuit about this, but so far there has not been. Uh, I don't know how viable this type of thing would be in court, but I can tell you from the gaming regulation standpoint, if you complain to the California Gaming Commission, uh, nothing's going to happen because all they care about uh, at California Gaming is, number one, are you allowed to offer games? Number two, are you sticking to the type of games we told you you can run? And number three, are you paying your licensing fees? That's pretty much all they care about. I guess number four also, are you preventing minors from gambling? But aside from those, they don't care. So you're never going to get the California Gaming Control Board to do anything about something like a guarantee not being paid. Uh, Could you sue them? Maybe. That's a good point you're bringing up here. But so far, to my knowledge, it's never happened. And sorry to cut you off, but I think, you know, sometimes I can't get a word in unless I uh, run over you a little bit. Um, Well, I mean, because look, that's like if I have a store and I'm announcing somebody's going to be there or we're going to do something for every customer. And then I'm like, oh, we decided not to do it, you know? I mean, that has to be legal through some type of, uh, you know, maybe just, just through a different department, because I know that the, uh, the the gambling one in California is semi-useless. Yeah, well, that, that's, and that's where the problem might come in. As, as I said, there might be a way for them to be sued in some sort of uh, class action form or something like that to uh, recover some money. But I, I think it's not that simple. And to my knowledge, this hasn't happened yet. I'm not disagreeing with you that this should happen and possibly even could happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And in Nevada, where they have a stronger gaming commission, a much stronger gaming commission, the problem is there's not enough regulations about this. So look, look what the uh, Westgate did. They didn't cancel the guarantee. They just started stuffing people in at a discount. And the way they could do this is they say, well, look, we're a casino. We can comp people any time. So we've decided we're going to pay this person's entry fee. Yeah, but you're really not paying their entry fee because if this person wasn't in there, you'd have to pay that amount anyway because of the guarantee. So whoever wrote these rules didn't think about it. You think that, I mean, that's not that bad because if you think about it, it's almost like they bought extra tickets. So to not be able to leverage them and give them to customers, I mean, that's not as bad as just canceling it. I agree it's not as bad, but it's pretty bad because the whole thing the player gets to have an overlay is that there's the extra money in the prize pool without the extra players in there to compete with. Once there's extra players in there that are just stuffed in for free or at a big discount because the house figures why not, uh, then that ruins the value for the player again. But I agree it is much worse to just cancel the whole thing so yeah i just feel like it's a business and if if i was the owner of the business and i'd pick it someone to give but to vips because it's almost like they just pre-bought all those entries but they didn't though that was the thing is they bought i i said at the well, time no, the rule should be if 
Wait, but if they're guaranteeing the money, Druff, can't we say that they prepaid for it? Or, or well, no. no, but that's the point. You know? The whole point is it's 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 corrupting the whole concept of what the guarantee is if they make it to where there's never an overlay player wise if they just stuff in extra players if they're short on players so hold on do you think why would they care they're not they're just saying they're basically guaranteeing there's going to be x amount of money guaranteed right so we can do the math and say oh that equals 500 players so for there for us to be angling for an overlay, I, you know, I just feel like I don't know. But that's the reason side. people come down. That's the reason people come to these is because they think there may be an overlay. That's part of the whole appeal to this. Right. And but what percentage do you think that is, though? Oh, that's right? a lot of people. people it it doesn't take a complex. Head. It does not take a complex understanding of poker to know that an overlay can happen. That really is the whole point of the guarantee. And people think, okay, well, what if they don't get much no, response? I, Right. No, I hear you, but I'm just saying that it's like... Well, at the time, we're getting a bit off topic here. We are talking about the Westgate, but but my thing about the Westgate, I said at the time, is a solution to this would be to disallow the casino from either buying anyone in or letting anyone buy in at a discount during the anything past the midpoint of registration. So if they want to buy someone in, they can, but it's got to be at the beginning before they know whether they're going to hit the overlay or not. That's that's the... uh, That's what would solve this whole thing where they still have the right to buy in people, but they can't use it as a way to uh, screw the guarantee over. But anyway, back to okay. this one. So let me ask you another question. So what if the, what if the casinos started advertising it as a minimum of a thousand players guaranteed? Oh, that would be a different story. They, if, as long right? as they're as thousand, whatever, right? Yeah. No, okay. As my my statement is as long as the players fully understand what they're dealing with, fully understand the rules, fully understand what the expectations are, then whatever the casino would like to do that's within the law, they should be able to do. So my general law as far as whether you're getting screwed or not, and I use this for myself when I think maybe I'm getting a raw deal and I have to step back and get my emotion out of it and think, okay, let me think of it through Druff's rule, which is if the customer can reasonably be expected to know that whatever situation he's unhappy about is the way it is, then it's not the business's fault. And if he was not expected to know, if this is something that was a major difference that he probably wouldn't know about and is something that's negative, then he is getting screwed. So that's the general rule of thumb, not just in poker, not just in gambling, but with really everything. And I'm saying where a reasonable average customer would or would not know and should and should not know before they get there. So this is one of these things like these these shenanigans that are being pulled. Someone going down to a guaranteed tournament is not even to think about that maybe the casino is going to stuff in a lot of players in the final half hour because they don't reach the guarantee. And they're not going to think about that the hustler is going to just pull the guarantee in the middle of the tournament. And they're not going to think about the gardens is going to keep adding flights. Uh, even if they buried in the fine print, which they didn't, but that they're going to keep adding flights until they make the enough players to cover the guarantee. These, When they say such and such guaranteed and we have this many flights, that's all people think about. It's okay. We have this many flights. How are many people enter? If it falls short of the prize pool they're guaranteeing, the casino adds extra money. That is what every single average player there is going to think. And... 
when they pull shenanigans to get around that, then the player is getting cheated. If they say beforehand, and very clearly say it, not buried in the fine print, but very clearly say that here's some exceptions, or here's the way we're doing it this time, which is non-standard, and everybody understands this, then that's fine. Then, then they can do that all they want. They don't have to do it in a certain format. It's when people are expecting something and they don't get what they're expecting, they are getting screwed. And usually this is not just a coincidence. It's not just a misunderstanding. What it is is the, is the business trying to have it both ways, where they want the extra players that will come down for a guarantee, but they don't want the responsibility of paying an overlay, which the way I've always said, if you don't want to take that chance, then don't. Then just don't offer guarantee tournaments and this can't happen. That's okay, but right. No, and I, I'm with you on that totally. But what if you what if they started wording it that there would be a certain amount of seats, and then if there, you know, so then there's or the, you know an X amount of players. So then you know a thousand is two fifty each. That's two hundred fifty k, and so then would you have less of a problem with them giving away uh, registrations? If they're clear, that's how they'll fill the other seats. If they don't get there, yes, I'd, I'd be totally okay well, with it, as long as everybody understands. Right, but what do you mean? If they're saying there's going to be 500 pl- or 1,000 players, and they get 750 to pay for it, and then they just give away 250 as basically barter credit. Well, yes, I'd right? be fine but- with that, as long as everyone... Because this is super non-standard, so they have to explain it. You can't just say, well, there's going yeah. to be this many players. So when you say that, you've got to explain how you're filling those seats. You've got to say, uh, we're going to have a minimum of 1,000 players, and if we don't get that, we will fill these seats with uh, house players that we're paying for. And if they say this up front, and everybody understanding, everybody who registers understands this, I'm totally fine with it. But Okay, and, okay. Got it. But, but okay, so you're talking more props in that scenario, right? Props or whatever. I don't care if they want to give it out to their cousin. As long as they make it clear that they are giving out seats to fill out the remainder and these people won't pay, as long as those registering who are paying understand this beforehand, that's fine. Then I have no problem with it. The problem I have is when players are blindsided, they think they're playing in a traditional guarantee situation, which is where whatever number of players don't make the guarantee, then the casino will add the rest and not pull full further tricks to get there. Once, I hear you, but it, you're saying those seats aren't paid for, and I'm saying they are paid for. But that's through tricks. So just, they're also paid for if they want to keep adding flights. What if you had a guarantee tournament and they just add uh, 20 more flights and delay the whole thing for two right. weeks to get there? Adding flights is a totally different situation. I'm with you on that one. Do, sure. Doing anything to change what the player's perception is of what the tournament actually is going to be is bad, and they shouldn't do it. If they, if this is fine, they should be honest up front. Anything non-standard, they should be honest up front and make it very clear. We're doing X and Y non-standard things in case we don't make the guarantee. If you're okay, register. If you don't, then don't play. You can't just sneak this by people because people are coming there saying, okay, one good thing about a guarantee tournament is that there might be an overlay. If people know there won't be an overlay, then they probably won't play. So you've got to make it real obvious that when you plunk down your money for that tournament, that you understand what's going on, and they're not. And they didn't at the Hustler, they didn't at the Westgate, they didn't at the Gardens, but this Hustler one is the worst of those three. So getting back to what happened here, as you can imagine, this blew up on Twitter. People were really pissed off on Twitter. I responded to this fairly quickly. I mean, not really quickly, but it hadn't blown up yet. I responded maybe six hours later. 
And I said, can you guys explain further? Was there a major earthquake in LA, which I don't know about? And the reason I said that is, I feel the only justified reason to cancel a guarantee is if there's some major disaster that prevents people from physically getting to the casino, like a major earthquake, a major flood, whatever it is where the casino says, look, normally we would hold this, but people can't physically get down here anymore. So sorry, we have to cancel it. That's understandable, but not uh, not when there's just not, not enough interest. So I said, was there a major earthquake in LA, which I don't know about? If you guys simply didn't draw enough people to pay for it, then pay the guarantee and never do them again. So I actually got a response from Sean Yaple, that's spelled Y-A-P-L-E, Sean Yaple, who's the general manager of Hustler Casino. And he gave an odd response. He stated that there were many layers to this decision. Calwat, hello. Hey, doing Drift? Can you hear me all right? I can, yes. It's, it's funny you said I missed your call, then I didn't miss your call. Somebody were on here. But okay, I'm glad you have you on here at the uh, late hour here of uh, 109 in the morning Eastern. But uh, anyway, he said that there were many layers to this decision, but he's not going to state them on Twitter. I can't read this verbatim because he's deleted this tweet, which you'll understand why shortly. I, I, I got to save things like this when I see it because I had a feeling that this might not stay very long. But he said that there's many layers to this decision, but he's not going to say him on Twitter. He offered that people need to find him in person and that he promised he would tell them face to face. Well, this got a very poor response, as you might expect, because how many of us on Twitter are going to go down to the hustler and ask him face to face what happened, especially those of us that don't live that close to the hustler, which is most people on poker Twitter. So of I course, have zero context of any of this stuff, and he's full of shit. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I semi took him up on this offer. I did not go down to the hustler, but I said, okay, I'd like to hear this. So DM me. Now a lot of other people were saying, and rightfully so, that he shouldn't be telling people in secret, you know, face to face. If he's got a reason for this that is good, then just say it. But I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I want to hear what this guy has to say. So I said, okay, DM me. Well, he did. He, he did DM me. I had no previous relationship with him. I didn't even know who he was. I didn't even know his name prior to this whole thing. It turned out he followed me and I followed him, but I didn't even remember that. So he, he DM'd me. I'm not going to reveal the exact content of the DMs. I'm not going to read them out here because these were private. And if I go read people's private DMs to me, then people are not going to DM me this type of stuff ever because I'll be seen as a guy who just reads their dms on the radio so i'm not going to do that but i will summarize them because some of this has come out in public since then the stuff he told me that he essentially blamed another la area casino which by the way is the bike for starting a competing series at the same time as this event and he said this was non-standard in the market that up until this incident, L.A. casinos basically stayed out of each other's ways when it came to major tournament scheduling. He conceded that he made the decision because they were on pace to lose, quote, low six figures on the event and that this was just too big of a hit to a room of the hustler's size and too devastating for them to accept that he acknowledged he knew there would be a lot of anger and that he knew people were going to be bashing him and bashing the hustler but that he felt he had uh, really a bad choice either way. So he decided to cancel it for the good of the room, and that was his only realistic option. I countered, this is also privately, but I countered that Hustler is not a small room. 
It's not like commerce, it's not like the bike, but while it's never pleasant for a business to lose six figures in one day, that I believe that Hustler was large and profitable enough to absorb it. And their reputation hit from this will ultimately be a lot more costly than the 100K or whatever they might lose from this. So that was what I told him back. And uh, eventually he responded back to me saying that I'm right and that they're going to make a statement soon, which I will read you soon. And, and let me ask you a quick question. Now, what if, I mean, with the adding a flight thing, and because what you said earlier about Hustler just not having the space, if there were like a significant uh, amount of people that couldn't fit for the last level, then if they just added one on, said, come back in two hours, we'll start another one. Like, is that what the garden place did? No, the garden just or? no, the, no. The garden just outright added flights to try to lessen the loss. But you bring up a good point. You bring up a good point that if people really wanted to play on that final flight and there just physically wasn't room for them, and they said, "Okay, look, we're going to add one more tomorrow because we simply can't fit these people. We can prove it." That actually would be okay because they're they wouldn't be adding flights in order to uh, reduce the overlay. They would be adding flights just to accommodate people that could not physically fit in the room so it's interesting you bring that up i didn't even think of that but that's a great answer to the statement of look we, we can't fit that many people in the last day uh, you, they could either do it a few hours later or they could do it the next day and then if they physically ran right. out of room they would be, it'd actually be acceptable i don't think it'd be a big scandal so that's a good point that was never really brought up anywhere you, you should have been in this right. uh, twitter discussion have you you know you think with a lot of these things they could just put it in the fine print well, they can, but people get pissed off. That's we'll we'll talk about a fine print thing shortly afterwards. Uh, after this topic, the MGM topic is basically that's what happened. The fifteen hundred right. instead of three thousand. Okay, but Cal, you did you hear our whole uh, conversation before you just walked in blind? Walked in totally blind. <laughs> uh, he, I think he was watching now wrestling we were or just something. Talking, well, we're talking about guarantees because they canceled the hustler thing. Yeah, And then we talked about what Westgate did where they gave out the tickets. And I said, look, if they're guaranteeing it, it's almost like they're guaranteeing an amount of players that's going to equal the pl- the prize. So I have less I have less of a big deal with them giving out if there's an extra 100 seats that wasn't paid for. So it's almost like they could use it as barter. But yeah, just I, saying I, there, so I want your opinion. Well, I was just commenting on the situation. Anytime anyone says... Well, I'm not going to tell you in public, but if you talk to me privately, I'll let you know what's going on. It just sets off alarm bells, man. It's always full of shit. There's always something going on when someone does something like that, you know? Yeah, that definitely wasn't a good yeah. look. And he yeah. actually he, he deleted that tweet. Uh, Doug Polk had a comment about this. Now, of course, Polk owns or co-owns. He doesn't fully own it, but he partially owns a poker room in Austin called The Lodge Poker Club. And they're not a direct competitor of the Hustler because they're quite far away from one another. But still, he took this opportunity to chime in and bash them. He wrote, We were ambitious with our guarantees at Lodge Poker Club in our championship series this year, and the result was we lost 625k in guarantees in May. But we honored our guarantees and sucked it up. Hanging poker players out to dry like this is unacceptable. And uh, then Sean Yapel, the GM of Hustler, responded, Bigger club, referring to the bike, stepped on us after we released our schedule. Better to regroup and plan for the future than hit off a cliff. And then Paul said back, 
the reality of running tournaments is if another club announces a tournament, you ride it out. Lose money, regroup, and make a new strategy. It isn't the player's responsibility for you to hit your guarantee. So Polk is correct here, obviously. Uh, now, he did take this moment to bash them because this was kind of indirect marketing for his room, where he's saying, hey, look, we didn't do this. Well, we paid our guarantee when overlays happened, and Hustler didn't. So, look, Lodge is a great place, and Hustler sucks. So he's not going to have people from the Hustler fly uh, 1,200 miles to the Lodge to go play there. He knows that, but it's, it's a way to make his room look good compared to what the hustler did. It's, it's almost like when you want to date a girl and you badmouth her ex-boyfriend when she tells you stories about uh, what a jerk he was. And so, oh, you know what? I would never do anything like that. I've never done anything like this in my life. And she's like, oh, what a nice guy. Yeah, I should go out with you. Like It's kind of like a lot of those lines that he, he wants to show what a great room he has and that they don't do this. So, that's, so I believe he gave his real feelings on this and they did pay an overlay at Lodge and that's good. It's, it's too bad I have to say this is good, because this used to be expected. And nowadays, there so many rooms are finding ways to warm out of this that now I have to actually say it's good when they do what they promise. But yeah, they did what they promised over at Lodge. But Doug is not just a neutral observer. He's saying this because he's trying to make his own room look good. Anyway, ultimately, the pressure was too much for Hustler. Remember, I mentioned in DMs that the general manager, Sean Yapel, told me that a statement is forthcoming and that uh, he agrees with me. I suggested privately to him in the DMs that they should, quote, take the L, meaning the loss, on this one and move on, and not attempt to save money at the expense of their reputation. Well, he put out a statement, put out a statement on August 3rd, the following day, and he did the statement with Nick Vertucci and Ryan Feldman next to him, even though they had nothing to do with this whole thing. This wasn't a Hustler Casino Live situation. This was a Hustler situation. So they were just with him, I think, because it gave him some more credibility and it gave him uh, a little more... Uh, people see familiar faces from a product they like and it's something that can make people feel a little better. Also, there is something that has to do with them and the solution they're coming up with. But to be clear... Hustler Casino Live had nothing to do with this problem, nor did they make this decision. Some people were bashing Nick Vertucci and Ryan Feldman. How do you let this happen? And like, no, <laughs> they had nothing to do with this decision. So you can't blame them for this. Anyway, uh, I will play you. It's a video statement. It's a two-part video statement. And you may notice the sound quality isn't good. And you may blame me and think that I'm just not very good at keeping the volume proper or that I'm making noise in the background. No, uh, believe it or not, even though... Hustler Casino Live actually broadcasts like almost every day and does a good job with high production value. In fact, they have better production value than this show. Somehow in their statement that was coming from Hustler with the Hustler Casino Live guys involved, somehow there was tons of background noise and the sound quality was terrible. I, I have no idea why they would release something like this with this kind of sound quality but here we are just just note that this is how it came out if you played it on twitter it's not because of this show so here we go hi i'm sean yapel general manager of hustler casino um i want to take a few moments to explain what happened with our 250k tournament that we can it kind of sounds like android sean yapel <laughs> canceled um as a team we came together we decided to cancel the tournaments um was it the right decision? No, it was definitely a misstep, and it falls on me. Um, I make the final decision, and 
I made the decision. And immediately afterwards, Ryan and Nick reached out to me and you know, kind of gave me the ramifications of how it's going to affect the Clipper community. And That's interesting that he says that Ryan and Nick reached out to him and gave him the implications. Now, I can't say whether this is true or not true because I obviously don't know about their private conversations. I do think that Ryan probably looked at this and facepalm was like, oh my God, this is, this is awful for the room. And it might even negatively affect Hustler Casino Live because obviously the two are associated, even if not the same business, they're very closely associated. So I could understand if Ryan said, no, you made a horrible decision. You've got to find a way out of this. But I do know that he was also getting tons and tons of hate and negative feedback on Twitter. And I was talking to him in DM and telling him politely that this is a huge mistake. So it wasn't just Ryan and Nick, but let's go on. It's been pretty apparent by the, you know, the backlash that we've seen on social media that it was definitely the wrong decision, and I apologize. So uh, we definitely want to make that right to the public community and the players that were affected. Um, so we're going to do a couple things. And thank you to Nick and Ryan for coming to my help and giving me some good advice. So first, every player in the tournament is going to get refunded their full buying amount. Second, all the players who qualify for day two are going to play for the full prize pool, so it's a nice free roll for them. Um, that's, you know, it's not, it doesn't make it completely right, but it's, it's what we can do right now. Okay, let's calculate this, because you may listen to that and go, okay, that sounds like a pretty fair solution, that they refund everyone's buy-in, whether they cash or didn't cash, and that whatever prize pool got uh, worked up to from those buy-ins that they're going to keep that there and pay that out. But hold on. How much money are we talking here? There were 123 entries when they closed registration and said the other eight flights are canceled. So you multiply the 123 and you get about 43K because it's $350 per entry. Then they say they're paying out the prize pool. Now the remaining prize pool was a 27K, which I didn't quite understand because uh, they got 43K worth of buy-ins, but then they're only paying out 27Ks. I don't quite understand that. Maybe they paid people who already cashed. So it's somewhere between 70K total, you know, 43 plus 27, 43 from the refunds and 27 from the remaining prize pool that they're paying. Somewhere between there, between uh, 70 and 86K they're paying out. Now it's possible what they're doing is not refunding those that uh, were still in, but I think like only nine people were still in, so that still doesn't make sense. But somewhere between 70 and 86K they're paying out. Everybody who played got a free roll, that nobody had to pay anything when this is all said and done. Now, I don't know how they're going to refund everybody because maybe people are not aware of this. Maybe some people left the area. I don't know how they're going to handle this for people who can't come back. Let's say you're out of state and you've gone back home already, you're not going to come all the way back to LA to get 350 bucks. So I don't know how they'll handle that, but let's just assume for argument's sake that they can and will refund every single buy-in for a total of 43K. And then they're paying out uh, 27 for the prize pool. So it's going to be 70K that the hustler is out here. Well, you have to look at what the overlay would have been. And there's no way to say for sure what it would have been. If the overlay ended up 70K or more, then uh, people still got screwed. And 
the people who are remaining, the nine remaining, are really getting screwed because remember, they believed that they were going to play for a minimum 50k first prize, and they're actually not. So even if monetarily this breaks even, or maybe they'd even have an overlay of less than 70k, so the the hustler ends up uh, losing less money out of this, it's still not good because the people who did enter are the ones who are going to take the brunt of this and who are still in it. But let's, uh, let's listen to the rest of this. Secondly, um, we're going to do a value add and work on a tournament with Ryan and Nick. We're going to add 50K to the prize pool um, for a future tournament, probably in September. So, you know, I want to say I'm really, really sorry. I apologize to the community. And I you know that we've worked really hard in the last year to build up Hustler and build a reputation and make this the premier place to play in Los Angeles. And I'm just really sorry that, you know, one misstep could potentially ruin all that. And uh, again, I'm really sorry. So thank you to Nick. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> they did fist bumps there. <laughs> thank you to Nick, and they both fist bump each other. Um, so he claims he's adding 50k to some sort of Hustler Casino Live-related tournament in September, but didn't really explain how that's going to work. So, okay, that would put it up to 120. And that shows you the whole time they really could afford this, because I don't think the overlay would have been bigger than 120. So this is the case where, in the attempt to, quote, make it right, they still don't really make it right, but they may end up losing more money than they would have if they just paid the guarantee as expected. So it was a horrible decision. But let's, let's listen to the rest of this video. Yeah. Yep. And you know, Nick and I, we care a lot about the poker community. We care a lot about Hustler Casino, the LA poker community, the overall poker community. We care so much, you know. Um, so That's Ryan Feldman. When we saw this happen, we immediately contacted Sean and said, let's do something to make this up to the community. What can we do? And so we started brainstorming immediately because we realized the importance of you know, building trust and, and getting players to come here to Hustler, whether it's for the cash games, for the tournaments. This really is, in our opinion, the best place to play in LA. And we're not just saying that. And um, I think that it's really important that when something happens that we can react immediately and make it right and make it up to the poker community. So. You know, we so I'll play part two of this. Part one just abruptly ends there. That's a little bit weird, too. Like, Why was this so poorly recorded and edited? All the background noise and the robotic sound and the cutting off Ryan in the middle of a word and continuing the next video. Very weird. I, I understand this had to be done hastily, but I mean, I could have done a better job, and I'm not the best uh, video producer out there I mean, by I, any means. I can barely hear it, Adroff. It's like, <laughs> it's almost like trying to purposely muffle their bullshit out. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, at first, when I saw this whole thing, if if I couldn't actually see the faces here who were actually recording this, I would have thought this was being put out by Charlie Brown's mom. <laughs> so that's crazy. I, I, don't, I have no idea why that sound quality was so bad, but it, it was really, really bad. So I'll play part two, where I assume it's going to pick up with Ryan talking. So far, we haven't heard from Nick yet. So, you know, we have some great ideas, and, you know, we're going to do a big tournament where we have a lot of the regulars in Hustler Casino Live that are going to come play. And like Sean said, he's, they're going to... This is even worse. This is like static in the background. <laughs> Somehow the part two is worse than part one. Add 50K to the prize pool, and we're going to work out the exact details in the future um, in the next coming weeks, but we're really excited about what we're going to do to make this right. And How can there even be static? Like, where's the static coming from? Like, let's just say someone just, like, whipped out their iPhone and recorded. It would be much better quality than this. 
That's what I'm missing. Like, what, Where's even static coming from here? This isn't being recorded in, like, uh, 1953. Like, this should be a very clear recording, even with some background noise. Like, it would be hard to record something this bad now. You know what I'm saying? You're talking to I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. Right. I had a challenge to make, like, a a, a horrible version of this. I would actually have to take it and post-process it to make it bad. But Exactly. It'd be possible now. They probably went to Radio Shack and got some like Walkman they were doing or something. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe Ryan Feldman uh, broke out the old Walkman he had as a little kid. Nick, so we'll talk more about it. Yeah, so... Because yeah. this is uh, Nick talking now. You know, like, like uh, both Sean and Ryan are saying, you know, I've said many times in speeches I've made with uh, the stream and other things that the reason we're here at Hustler Casino and have this stream is because of the management. And even though there was a slight misstep here, we're able to go to management and, and have that kind of communication. So I stand by the fact that this is the best place to be and play poker because no other... Other casino has this kind of line of communication to the management and Ryan and I want to go even above and beyond that we don't know exactly what we're gonna do but we got some ideas uh, to add on to the fact that all the players are gonna get refunded that that signed up for that tournament and then the new tournament they're going to of course put hustle casino is gonna put the $50,000 free roll in there um, and and all that so above and beyond that Ryan and I are gonna come up with something we're not sure what that is yet so we don't want to knee-jerk and just uh, say something too early, but we're going to do something really cool uh, for the particular possible the players that were in that uh, player pool. So we'll get back to you on that, but there will be a third thing coming, and we'll be announcing that soon. So again, we want to thank you for listening to what we had to say, for hearing us, and to handling this as quick uh, as you did. So we appreciate that. Uh, there's tons more poker to be played with Hustler Casino and Hustler Casino Live, and we thank you for allowing us to send you this message okay that's it clearly nick and ryan got involved because they felt this was a threat to their company and their brand so they probably jumped in and said wait a minute guys if you want to ruin a good thing here you're, you're doing a good job of it we have tremendous ratings here for the past year and we've totally beaten live at the bike let's not screw this up here let's not screw up the hustler name here over a matter like this so they probably put some pressure on him along those lines and they realized it was a mistake to just say tough luck that's the way it is oh hold on there's a third part i saw they posted a third part i didn't even see this before here's the third part they posted which is a little bit more clear looks like they did a bit better recording it for this uh third portion of it yeah, that was hey, the best. That was the best point they raised in the whole thing. For because uh, I know he had went through some uh, some surgery, so I want to make sure. Oh, he's that's good. a good point. Uh, so Cal Watt, uh, how did the surgery go? Maybe not that well. He he disappeared. <laughs> Hopefully, we didn't have a a, a post operative uh, death here during the show. Cal Watt, I mean, still with us? Post, it was post on Facebook, right? I'm not breaking any HIPAA laws or anything, am I? Uh. Because you're not working in the medical industry, I think you're okay. But uh, yeah, Cal Watt is just—I I don't know. I mean, I hope he just fell asleep and he wasn't. No, he's here. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. But I'm probably going to pass out randomly at some point. I'm going to channel my inner Trader Ruski. 
<laughs> so how was like how are you since the surgery? Um, sort of vacillating between being in lots of pain and being all messed up on meds, you know. Oh. Yeah, so Calwatt had a shoulder surgery, and it's a, I, I commented on Calwatt's Facebook about this, but what I said was pretty much uh, the truth. I see Calwatt doing all these physical activities on his uh, Facebook. He's posting various pictures of it. He does it with his kids. He does it himself. And I go, wow, he's a, he's a very active guy for someone who's 52 years old. And <laughs> I, I look at this and I go, you know, I'm close to his age. I'm 50, and I, I can't picture myself doing all of that. And it, it seems like it'd be very tiring and physically demanding. And uh, I thought, wow, he just must not age. This must be one of these guys who's 52 and just uh, this type of stuff doesn't affect him. But I guess it must affect him a little bit because uh, I guess your shoulder deteriorated over time and you had to get uh, surgery because of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I fucked it up playing sports and, and weightlifting when I was younger. And then I've been doing a lot of weightlifting with, uh, with the kids and on my own. And... You know, stuff just doesn't work like it used to. So it was uh, accumulated damage that was there already. And then uh, if you don't warm up properly when you get older, it's real easy to tear the muscle right off the bone like I did. Ugh. But when I saw you guys in Vegas, I, I already, the muscle was already torn on that shoulder. Oh, really? You know, I was already, I was already in pain then. Hmm. Well, uh, hopefully this takes care of the problem. How long did they say you're going to have to recover for this to feel better? Um, it's going to be in a sling for, they say four to six weeks. Um, and then it's still, you know, it's not like I'm then going to be throwing weights around right after that. Um, there's going to be some rehab time, but it's all good because I don't want to live with the pain and I want to be able to get back to the weight training and all those activities you're talking about. So I'm actually pretty excited. (laughs) Okay. Well, I hope it works out. It's, uh, the two hardest things to, fix our uh, shoulders and knees so hopefully they uh they were able to take care of this here and uh hopefully calwatt gets better and he can get make me uh feel bad about myself again when i see his uh facebook updates <laughs> I, I guess either i guess for me either way it's uh it's not bad if, if you don't get better then i don't have to feel bad looking at your updates and then if you do get better i can feel good for you that you're able to do th- do these things you enjoy again. So I guess for me, it's kind of win-win. But I I know for you, you're uh, really uh, looking to be at least somewhat back to your old self. And I know it just gets it gets tougher when you get older. That these things. Well, I, was, I was mostly thrilled just because there was a path forward, you know? Yeah. It really sucked to just have pain every day, especially just doing some basic things on that shoulder so i was pretty psyched when they said yep surgery i'm like okay let's do it you know yeah i didn't even know this is coming i just look at facebook and there's a picture of calwatt in the hospital about to get uh, operated on <laughs> so anyway i'm glad at least uh the moment everything seems normal and, and on track to return but let, let's return here to this uh hustler topic so this whole thing with the hustler at least the community came together and they were uh, vocal about this strongly enough to where the hustler realized they had to do something. But as I said, there were some circumstances here that won't apply to all rooms. They had this product, this Hustler Casino Live, that has done very well and that has increased Hustler's profile in the past year. So they had to protect that. If they didn't have that to protect, who knows what, what would have happened here. And furthermore, 
it shouldn't take the community being outraged to do something about this. They should just do the right thing in the first place. This should be something that is totally considered off limits to ever cancel a guarantee short of some sort of natural disaster or some other major event that physically prevents people from getting to the casino. Anything short of that, they should absolutely never cancel a guarantee. And it's very simple. If a casino is afraid of not making the guarantee, if they're afraid that the financial implications of that will be a killer, then just don't offer them. They should never offer a guarantee that is high enough to where it will devastate them if they don't reach it and if they miss it by a lot large amount. The Seminole Hard Rock has paid the biggest overlay to date of $2.5 million when their $10 million guarantee event some years ago only got $7.5 million worth of buy-ins. Now, they're a lot bigger than The Hustler, but they paid out $2.5 million in an overlay. But you always have to set these things according to what you can lose and not find ways to worm out of it if you do lose. Just like I cannot... Well, it, well, it, are any insurance companies write, write uh, policies on these draw, or has anybody done that in the past, you know? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, they probably wouldn't do something small like this. Uh, maybe for something like the Seminole Hard Rock, they could, but this may be something the insurance companies don't understand well enough to really want to cover unless there's big money in it. So I, it probably isn't something you can get insurance on, is my guess. But it's very simple. If you don't want to risk it, if the casino doesn't want to risk it, don't. Just don't do it. It's not like people will say, oh, we're not coming to this tournament series because there's no guarantee. This is something which is kind of nice to have, but it isn't essential. People will come and play if they want to play. This will attract extra people, but it's not something you absolutely must have if you want a successful series. You can easily have a successful series at a medium-sized casino without offering any guarantees. Or if you want to offer them, offer some small ones to where even if they fall short, it's not a huge deal. So they have to go one way or the other. Just like I can't go to Hustler and lose money and then demand they give it back to me because I ran bad in the poker game. They should not demand that they get their money back if the guarantee isn't met. It's all gambling. It's gambling on their end. And they're choosing to do it. Just like I am choosing to do it when I sit down at a poker table. Now, I do You're believe- right, though, Gruff. I mean, it's, it's better to not make a promise at all than to make a promise and to not go through with it. You know, they'd be much better off if they just didn't offer the guarantee. Yeah. Or say, okay, we're going to offer a guarantee, but we are accepting in advance that we may fall way short and lose money here. It's a, it's a chance we are taking. We understand. When I, I know this is going to sound different. When I went to the World Series of Poker this year, I made peace with the decent chance that I would get COVID there before I set foot at the World Series. And it's not that I wanted to get COVID, but I knew there was a decent chance of it. So before I played, I said, okay, am I willing to get COVID going here? Am I willing to walk in knowing there's a decent chance I'll catch COVID? Answer, yes, I went and I got COVID. So I wasn't like shocked or devastated it happened because I already made peace that I was going there and taking that chance. And so you have to do the same thing when you're offering a guarantee at a casino if you're the one in charge, you got to say, okay, I'm willing to take this chance or I'm not. And if you're not, then don't do it. Now, I believe that uh, Sean Yaple legitimately knows he screwed up here. I don't think he's saying he screwed up just to sound good. I think he 
really regrets this whole thing, not just putting out this guarantee, obviously, but also the way he initially handled it. If he could go back in time, but not far enough back to cancel the guarantee in the first place, but if he can go back in time to the point where he reacted, I'm sure he would change it now and have just paid it. So I'm sure he legitimately knows he screwed up here, but still, the players were shorted. The remaining players were shorted uh, a lot out of the prize pool, and the ones who thought that they were on the way possibly to win a 50K first prize are not going to win anywhere near that. And that's pretty bad, even if Hustler ultimately ends up paying out about equivalent or more than what the overlay was going to be. Now, Yapel said that he was... I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Sorry, Jeff. Do you think that, like, um, I mean, does the buck stop with him, or would he have to get, like, do you think it was his decision, or do you think he had to go to the owner and they're like, you better shut it down? Or I think it was his you know? decision, but I think the problem was that if they paid this out, I think he was worried that ownership would say, okay, you're never doing these again. That's it. The guarantees are over. That's that's what I think he may have been afraid of, is that uh, this was going to be the end of the guarantees, so this was the better option. That, that's what I'm assuming here. So he yeah, is, but it's kind of the end of the guarantee, because they're not honoring the guarantee. Well, right. I, th- I think so they realize that. I, I think they realize that, that people aren't going to go for this in the future. They'll never be trusted again. Now, Joe D., who's on our forum and also listens to the show, he brought up a good point. He said that it doesn't look like another tournament series stepped on them. The bike has run its Legends of Poker series, which starts the last week of July into the end of August, for the last 20 years. So he doesn't understand what this whole thing is about staying out of each other's way. If anything, it looks like the hustler is getting in the way of the bike. So this may also be somewhat of an excuse. Now, maybe the Legends event maybe they added something to that event that was high profile because Legends is a long series. Legends goes for about a month. So maybe what Legends did is they had a major event at the same time as this one rather than just running small tournaments. Maybe that's what he meant by they're getting stepped on. I didn't look at the bike's schedule, but that is kind of a weird statement on his part. (laughs) They got stepped on by a series that's been around for longer than them. Overall, I think that Hustler did learn from this, and in one way, a good precedent was set that you can't do this and get away with it without a major backlash on social media. But on the other hand, when it was all said and done, they didn't honor the guarantee. Now, I guess they can say they couldn't at that point because they already shut down registration. But still, when it was all said and done, those that played did not play the guarantee tournament they thought they did. And it's pretty bad they thought this was even an option. So guarantee needs to mean guarantee. There needs to be a lot of pressure in the poker community that when a guarantee is offered, unless exceptions are clearly stated, not in the fine print, but clearly stated to where most players in the event are aware of the exceptions, that they are playing for that prize pool, and it's exactly as it looks. No secret added flights, no stuffing players in at the end, no canceling the guarantee, that as soon as players sit down and play, that the guarantee is going to be kept. Now, there's the other question, and this has happened at the Orleans, 
what if you cancel a guaranteed tournament before it starts? Because you see you're just not getting the numbers you're getting. So no one has sat down and played yet. But what if you cancel it before it starts? Well, that's also unethical. Not as bad, but also unethical because people may have come out to do it. People may have um, made plans around it. And people have already registered and paid. So even if you refund them, that doesn't mean it's okay. So it really should also be that once a single player registers, that short of some sort of event that occurs that prevents people from physically getting to the casino, short of that, which is very unusual, that they should always cover it. At the second they announce it and one person registered, that should be it. That should be the expectation of the poker community. Unless there's something clearly stated up front, not buried in the fine print. Something that is stated so clearly that at least half the people in the event would know about it if asked. Why? Because people should get what they are expecting. There should not be hidden rules, hidden exceptions, hidden shenanigans. No. People should know what they're coming down for. They should know what they're getting. They should know what the prize pool is going to be if it's a guaranteed event. And they should know what exceptions can exist before they register to where they will not pay that much or to where they will find ways to get out of the overlay. These need to be known before people register, not after. And they should not be canceled and the guarantee shouldn't be removed. So all of these things need to stop happening. And if they happen, people need to speak up and say, this is not right and we're not going to take it. We're going to make you look bad. We're going to pound you on social media and make you look bad. And for the rooms that say, look, we're a business you don't understand. We have to make money. Answer, then don't hold them. Just don't hold guaranteed tournaments if you don't like this. Or be very upfront, very, very upfront with the exceptions. Make it to where your customers always know what to expect. Like, let's look at the World Series of Poker. You know, I will bash the World Series of Poker sometimes when they do stupid things. But I know when I sit down to a World Series of Poker event exactly what I can expect as far as what I'm going to be paid compared to the number of people that have registered. I know what percentage will be taken out of the prize pool. I know if they say guarantee that it really means guaranteed. They don't have that many guaranteed events there, but when they do, I know that's really going to be met, uh, whether they get a lot of players or very few players. I can confidently sit down and know know that no shenanigans like that are going to occur. And it should be like that everywhere. I know the World Series is huge and can absorb overlays and they don't have many guarantees in the first place, but this should be the way everything is run. Where people who go and play get exactly what they expect. There's never any excuse for any business to have it where the majority of customers don't know what to expect and are getting something different. Where things are intentionally being hidden from them. Because when things are intentionally being hidden from customers, that usually means scam or semi-scam. And that's not good. You should always know what you're getting and what you're totally. not getting. And, and sorry, Jeff, let me just ask Cal Wap before he passes out, or I pass out. It'll be interesting who does it first. Um, are you still with us, Cal Watt? Mostly. <laughs> a, uh, what I was saying, too, is like, it would be like if, I, if there was a Dodger game and I said, you know, a thousand seats at the game, we're all going to get 250 bucks random. So then the game sells out, and then they're like, oh, we're not going to do that. You know, so it should be like consumer affairs or another department, I feel. Not, of course, this is California gambling. 
oh, un, you know, uh, overseer is not going to do anything. But I was just thinking that could be an angle to set a precedent. What were you asking, Calwatt? Though. Or so it may be because I'm out of it, but what's the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not out of it. I don't know the question either. Like, do you agree with that? That 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 that's maybe an angle because if if a, if 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 yeah. a casino could get fined through like false, you know, you can't just false advertise and say somebody's going to win a million dollars, right? And have like a fake stakes. I mean, that is something in California they have enforced. I've done some. I did some websites way back in the day. You know, it's like if you're doing any type of contest, you get huge fines if you don't do it. So I was just saying that could potentially prevent them from doing it in the future because it's really false advertising to get people there and then deciding they don't want to give away the carrot that they've been advertising to attract everybody. Yeah, no, I mean, very, very much so. It's deceptive in a way, and people tend to do yep. well when they know what to expect. Right. It's when things don't go the way that you either said it was or what you expected to have happen that you end up with problems. And, you know, for sure, they're at the very least getting a little bit of a public relations black eye from it. Maybe that's enough to make them change it. You know, who knows? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping is that this story kind of scares other casinos from doing these type of things and they're going to finally just stop. And we're, we're going to have another guarantee story pretty shortly about the MGM, which isn't as bad as this one, but also in my opinion is not good. And I hope the shenanigans that have gone on over there, which are numerous, will, will finally stop. So they've just got to get out of the habit of doing this. They've got to get out of the habit of screwing people in guarantee events and then making excuses later. When I say they, I mean all casinos, not just Hustler, not just MGM, not just Orleans or Westgate, but any of these, they just all need to together realize that if you offer a guarantee, you're going to pay it, and you're not going to pull things to lessen your financial damage from it, and if you don't like it, then don't run one. That's got to be the way they all approach it, and if they don't, then they need to be shamed on social media until they learn it, because players need to know what they are getting in advance, and for all the things I've said criticizing the World Series, I will say that you usually do know what you're getting in advance at the World Series of Poker. You may get some fail, you may get some logistical problems and stupid things happening, but you don't get ripped off, and I'll give them that. And, and you usually know that, too, with all the uh, fails. That's true. And, you, um, you can expect the fail. You can, you can say, I'm going to the World Series and there will be fail. I know that coming in. That's true. Well, one other thing happened at The Hustler, and it had nothing to do with this, but it almost seemed like it did because of the timing. But there was actually a shootout outside of the Hustler involving an armored car robbery. At first, I thought somebody was coming down to get their guarantee money. I thought maybe the person who was going to win the 50K prize didn't get it and said, you know what, I'm going to rob the armored car that's coming to get or bring money to them. But no, it was unrelated. But very, very shortly after... This occurred on August 4th. Remember the stuff we were talking about here on Twitter just happened on August 2nd and 3rd. On August 4th, there was a shootout with armed robbery, armed robbers in the parking lot of Hustler Casino. A guard, a security guard for the armored van was shot and was in the hospital in critical condition, but uh, is expected to survive. The vehicle had just arrived at the Hustler and 
they got out of the van and then they just got shot at by these two robbers and uh, one of them got shot the other got uh, cuts and scrapes that I guess he fell on the ground or something but didn't get shot and got some cuts and and scrapes and uh, a witness said that they saw quote a group of people though it's not clear how many they they know that at least two were firing on them but they quote a group of people got out of a car and walked towards the armored vehicle and shot at it they did get away with an undetermined amount of money there was actually a nearby daycare center and uh, nothing happened to the daycare center but a witness who was at the nearby daycare center said that uh, she saw people run for cover she said we saw people running away in every direction on August 4th At the time of the article that I'm reading about this from NBC Los Angeles Channel 4, they had not arrested anyone from this shootout, nor recovered the money, nor determined how much money was was taken. And apparently there's no further updates on this, so I guess they haven't caught them yet. There was uh, a shooting a long time ago that took place at uh, The Hustler. This is in 2004. But uh, this shooting actually was where the gunman was shot dead, where a gunman took a woman hostage at gunpoint and threatened someone in the casino. And everybody was was told uh, not to leave, but eventually uh, they were uh, shot dead. This is uh, 17 and a half years ago. Fortunately, it wasn't one of the times I was there because I, I, I started coming in 01. This happened in 04. But this did not occur in the casino. This occurred in the parking lot. And uh, again, I'm not sure if the armored truck was bringing cash or taking cash. Either way, this happened one day after all the controversy involving the whole guarantee thing. So they've been in the news for two different things for reasons that aren't very good. It's not known if the suspects were hit. They probably weren't, but they, they did get away. And, uh, yeah, so it's still not known how much money was taken or how exactly they took the money. I'm not sure if they just went into the vehicle after shooting at these guards. Remember, only one got shot. Apparently, the suspects were heavily armed. And one of them had a semi-automatic rifle. The guard that was shot was shot in the leg. And even though he's in critical condition, he's expected to survive. I guess he probably lost a lot of blood or something. A very large police presence responded, as you might guess, and they actively searched the area, but they did not come up with anything. They did come up with a vehicle, but nobody was in the vehicle when they found it. At least one bag of cash was taken, but it's not known how much is in these bags, or at least not publicized. I guess the fact that they got the vehicle may help. They might be able to look for fingerprints or see what's registered to, though it's very possible it's a stolen vehicle. So we may get more info on this in the coming week or so. Sometimes these things take time. Often these aren't as sophisticated as you would think. And this still is not as lucrative or nearly as lucrative as the one I talked about in the last show where there were no shots fired and $100 million worth of jewels were stolen. It's a lot better than getting one bag of cash out of an armored truck at the Hustler. But for the moment, these people have gotten away. It shows you how brazen some people will be to try to get money at these casinos. That's why you have to 
be very careful when you're walking in the parking lot of these places. You got to make sure that nobody's followed you out that knows you're carrying money. Because otherwise, you, you see the risk they will take. If they're going to fire on an armored truck and armed guards there, think of what they would do to you just walking out of the casino with a bunch of money. The Hustler is in Gardena, California. It's not a very good area. And it was actually a worse area. I grew up not too far from there. It was a worse area in the 80s. The area is not quite as bad now, but it's never been good, at least not for a very long time. So that's another thing. It's just there's a lot of people in that area that already have a criminal record of some sort. This was definitely something that was targeted. It's not clear how they knew that this armored van was coming, but they must have known. It's possible that uh, it comes on certain days. Uh, who knows? But uh, someone knew it was coming. It didn't necessarily have to be an insider, but someone knew it was coming. There's no way this pulled up and then a car of people happened to be there all heavily armed with a semi-automatic weapon and just pop out. Now, maybe they knew that it was coming like once a week or something and this kind of hung out in the parking lot every morning around the same time. And then when it showed up, they popped out to do it. But this is definitely a planned thing. I haven't heard of any other armored car robbery in front of other L.A. rooms to my knowledge. I, I don't remember anything like this before. In fact, you kind of think this wouldn't happen. It's not an easy thing to do to rob an armed car. But they did. Probably didn't get away with huge money, but they got away with some. What time of day was it, Jeff? This was in the morning, like at, I don't know, 10 a.m. or something. Yeah, 10, 15 a.m. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Like you walk through these parking lots at 3 in the morning and you're you're already kind of nervous. Here, here there's people are going to just fire on armored armored truck guards at 10.15 a.m. That's uh, disturbing. Gazing it and watch the schedules. I mean, plus there's cameras everywhere. I mean, what are these fools doing? What did I, they think they were going to do? Well, yeah, I think they're going to get caught. As, usually these, these people just aren't that sophisticated or smart, and they just see an armored truck. They go, you know, it would be cool. If we, why don't we just, like, bring a lot of weaponry and rob them? Look at all that money that's in there. Like, that's all they think. They they don't really plan it out to where it's a sophisticated crime, and, and they have an exit strategy in a way they can be assured that they're not going to get caught. The fact that the vehicle was even located it shows that they didn't plan this very well because even if it's not their vehicle, it's going to give some clues. It's it's hard to use a vehicle where nothing's left behind. So I have a feeling they will track these people down. Just be a matter of time. And then maybe we'll find out uh, more details about who these people were and how they found out about it or if they just waited every day and how many were involved and what their history was. I have a feeling these were people with a lengthy criminal record already. This probably wasn't their first violent crime. So, okay, let's uh, move on and talk about the MGM Grand and their guaranteed tournament. Now, this is on a much smaller scale. Don't hear these numbers and say, oh, this is not worth talking about because it's not enough money. Because we're going to talk about something that's a relatively small amount of money. But it's the principle... And this is another guarantee situation that shouldn't have happened, and this type of thing needs to stop. The MGM Grand Poker Room seems to be in constant small controversies. 
There hasn't been anything that's happened there yet that's tremendous, but there's a lot of people who are unhappy with them that are constantly complaining about them doing perceived unethical things. It is currently being managed from the tournament side by Justin Hammer, who used to work at Commerce, and he got fired from Commerce. I'm not sure why, but he got fired from Commerce. He went over to one of the Austin area rooms. I'm not sure what happened to that position, but for a little time now, he's been at the MGM Grand, and there's been a lot of controversy. It was brought to my attention first in uh, May that their $300 08 event with a 20K guarantee had a prize pool of 19700 And it said it right there on the tournament board. Someone sent me a picture of it. And indeed, it's very weird. It says 20K guaranteed and prize pool 197. Now, is that a huge discrepancy? No, but where'd that $300 go? And we talked about it on the show at the time. It turned out that they were taking 1.5% of that for some kind of Tournament of Champions free roll at the end. Which, okay, at least the room isn't stealing it or anything. At least the room isn't just keeping the money. But still, this is the type of thing you have to make clear and not just bury in the fine print because it's non-standard. Guarantee is supposed to be guaranteed. So I didn't think this is a huge scandal. Others kind of disagreed with me because I posted about this on Poker Fraud Alert, but then I gave my ultimate opinion that this wasn't good and I don't like to see it and they shouldn't do it this way, but it wasn't a tremendous scandal. It wasn't something that was really, really bad. Others were criticizing me, saying that I was going too light on them, but I said, look, I just don't think this is that bad because they're not keeping the money. They just need to be more clear that they're doing this or better yet, just don't do this. Just don't take anything from guaranteed pools. If they say 20K guaranteed, pay out 20. So that's the way it stood for a while. And there were some other things that happened there that people didn't like and complained about. And it just seemed like I was hearing over and over about the MGM grand poker room doing things that uh, were frustrating people or that people were perceiving as unethical. But then uh, about two months after that last controversy, on July 22nd, a person named Vegas Black, who only recently registered for Poker Fraud Alert, posted this on the thread about that MGM Grand guarantee, that 20K guarantee that was 300 short. He said, The Tournament of Champions, which 1.5% was taken from each tournament to make up a 173K guarantee, during play, a prize pool was posted showing nearly 25K for first, 17K for second, and 11K for third. MGM staff changed the prize pool during play to reflect a deduction of 30K for the top 15 point earners over the summer. First place was now 20675 Next, the player from my table protested the change. Uh, MGM staff called an unscheduled break, and when the dust settled, they had diluted the prize pool to 108K. They never posted the final numbers again. I went out in 35th place, which was paying close to 1800 previously, ended up paying 570 for context, 114th received 250. Top three were paid 18K, 12.8K, and 8.2K. He said, initially, well, I wasn't going to make a big fuss over what they pulled during the Tournament of Champions. I was happy to play a free roll, and we're all human, so mistakes can happen. Two days later, at midnight, a tournament that got only eight players, they diluted the guarantee from 3K to only 1500. When MGM staff were confronted by a cash player that the prize pool was missing money, she replied that he should mind his own business as if the players in the tournament didn't notice the same issue. Fool me once, shame on you. Try to fool me a second time, and I'm pulling out all the stops. 
I believe a class action in some form is in order. And that's where he posted this picture that Trader Ruski was talking about earlier, where it says nightly $3,000 guaranteed midnight hypo turbo rebuy prize pool 1500 <laughs> So I said, okay, now that's really bad. 3000 guaranteed with a $1,500 prize pool. Just a 50% reduction, guys. I agree this is terrible. I will say something about this on social media. Thanks for posting it here. I said that back to Vegas Black. So I did. Right then I went on uh, Twitter and I posted on July 23rd. Apparently a $3,000 guaranteed event at MGM Grand paid only $1,500. How is this possible? Justin Hammer, can you please explain what's going on here? And then I put a link to this thread on Poker Fraud Alert and I posted a picture of that 3K guarantee paying 1500 that was provided to me by this Vegas Black guy. By the way, I have no idea who Vegas Black is. He's just a new member of the forum. I don't know who he is in real life. Justin Hammer eventually did respond. This is what he said back. The structures posted in the room say must have 10 players for guarantee to be in effect. It's a rebuy and add-on tournament, which is why the chip average looks the way it does. I said, wouldn't it just be better to hold up the start or cancel any tournament which, which fails to get 10 players rather than run a guarantee with no guarantee? Really screws those who register at the beginning. So let me stop here. He's claiming that it says somewhere in writing, he's probably telling the truth about this, but it, he said it says somewhere in writing if they don't get 10 players, then the guarantee doesn't apply. So he says that the reason the... Uh, number of chips looks funny for eight players that some rebought, which then begs the question, well, shouldn't rebuys count as uh, where, where the guarantee would take place? Like, <laughs> uh, like, why does it matter if they're unique people? But even putting that aside, I think it's uh, very stupid that they would have some kind of minimum because that's another way they can game the guarantee in these situations. When I say they, I mean any card rooms. They say, well, we're guaranteeing this prize pool, but only if we get this minimum number of people. So if we don't get this minimum, there's no guarantee. Well, that's stupid, because that's, that's just reducing their possible loss. And then unless the players know about this very clearly, the ones who register early and play get screwed because they don't end up with the guarantee that they thought they were getting. So this is another case where they need to, need to either make this super clear that there is a minimum which triggers the guarantee or don't hold the guarantee at all. And look look how cheap they're being here. This is a 3,000 guarantee. It's not even like with a Hustler where it was a 250K guarantee. Here's 3,000 and they can't honor it. And they're, they're hiding behind what they put in the fine print. So then the MGM Grand Poker Room Twitter account responded to me which probably is run by Justin Hammer as well, but for some reason now it's answering me instead of Justin Hammer himself. And it said, before starting, every player was notified that the guarantee was canceled, and if they wished to play anyway, we would give them a guarantee, but for less than originally posted, or they get a full refund. They all agreed to the terms. Any subsequent entry also agreed. Okay, so that makes it a bit better, though they really should just keep to it. I mean, this doesn't fully excuse this. So he's saying that the, every player was notified before they began, hey guys, we're canceling the guarantee so you can get a full refund now or we can lower the guarantee. So they probably lowered it to 1500 is what happened. That's probably why it was exactly 1500 So do you want to continue playing or do you want a refund? Or do you want to start playing you want a refund? 
So, okay, that's better than just running it and saying too bad we didn't hit the minimum, but still, just, just honor the damn thing. Don't have this crap in the fine print and then put people on the spot whether they want to play or not. Because they've come down there. They've made the effort to come down and play. They've gotten all ready to play. So at that point, the choice kind of sucks to either play without the guarantee we're expecting or go home. How about just honoring the guarantee you put out? How about that? So then I I dropped that at that point. Not that I think they did the right thing, but I I got tired of arguing the petty details of this. So I, I went on to ask about the other concern because I knew that Justin obviously had read the thread. So I wanted to get an answer about this Tournament of Champions thing, which is for much more money. The Tournament of Champions, remember, this Vegas black guy was claiming that just a lot of money just disappeared from the pool, that they were taking 3% out of each pool, or one point, sorry, 1.5% out of each pool to form the, pri- the prize pool for this Tournament of Champions free roll. But then when the free roll took place, they just uh, modified the pool in the middle of the Tournament of Champions and reduced what everyone's getting. So that kind of looks like outright stealing, right? So, of course, I wanted an answer there. So I said, can you answer the concern in the thread regarding the Tournament of Champions abruptly losing money from the pool and it getting redirected? And he said, the Tournament of Champions prize pool was posted incorrectly because the supervisor running it thought we allocated 30K to the leaderboard. We paid out 30K to each leaderboard, no limit hold'em and mix, so we had to adjust. So now what it looks like here is that they took 60K out of this Tournament of Champions because there was a leaderboard for both No Limit Hold'em events and for Mix events. And they were paying out 30K total to each of these leaderboards. This is where you get like a certain number of points for cashing in these events and encourages people to play more. So he's claiming that the supervisor running it didn't realize that... uh, this money for the leaderboards had to come out of the same prize pool as the Tournament of Champions pool. So when they realized that, they had to adjust it. So then a person on Twitter named Ben Hen, Ben Hen 21 on Twitter, said, yes, you had to adjust, but that does not change the fact that it was announced and advertised as a 173K guaranteed tournament and a, must, and a must-win event to play. To put something guaranteed and then while the tournament's running takes 60K is just not legit. In fact, you did collect 1.5% of the whole series of each buy-in and announced you'll be making the leaderboard and a 173K, and you advertise this everywhere, so this is just wrong. This has to be checked by the Gaming Commission. I don't know if anyone actually reported to the Gaming Commission. But the guy raised this is a good point, this Ben Hen, that if they were saying that it's going to be a 173K tournament, that everything they collected out of the previous prize pools from the 1.5% they held back, that this is all going to be the Tournament of Champions, they should keep to that. After the fact, to say, oh, wait a minute, we, we had two leaderboards, we forgot to subtract those out, so sorry, you're only getting 113k. That's crappy. Now, whether Nevada Gaming would allow it, I don't know. Because it looks like money's not getting stolen here. It looks like it's just getting redirected to the leaderboards. And then when it's all said and done, this money ends up in the hands of players and not them. But still, this is the type of thing, if you make that mistake, you should just honor it. Especially once the tournament started. It's one thing if if beforehand they're saying it's going to be 173K, and then before it starts, they go, oh, sorry, guys. Uh, We forgot about the leaderboards, so we got to pay it out of those, too. So it's actually 113K free roll. But after it starts, to post 
you're getting such and such, and then you're not getting such and such anymore. Is that, That's where you just eat it and pay. And while I have to imagine the MGM Grand poker room, which is a small room, doesn't have a huge budget, it is an MGM poker room, and MGM is a gigantic company. So while the hustler can claim poverty that they can't absorb a low six-figure loss, which I don't believe, but at least they're not a huge company, the MGM is a gigantic company, and they obviously can absorb a 60K loss here. So that's what they should have done. Why are they not doing it? Because then it has to come from somewhere. And then the room makes 60K less than it was making before, and they have to justify to their bosses that they lost 60K because of a stupid error. So rather than do that, they just take it away. So it might be legal, but it's just uh, it's a combination of incompetence and just not treating the players with a lot of respect. I mean, to change this in the middle is kind of crappy. I realize it's a free roll, but still, when it's been promoted as a 173k free roll, and people start and they see the amounts they're going to win up there to have it just subtracted by such a large percentage is pretty crappy, especially for a large company like MGM. I'm going to talk about MGM later in this show, another MGM poker room story. It's not about guarantees, but it'll be one of our last topics. So stay tuned for that if you want to hear more MGM shenanigans. Something's a little bit weird over there in that room. Can't quite put my finger on it, but it just seems like constant complaints and little controversies. And I'm like, guys, just just be straightforward about everything. Just be honest about everything. Just be upfront about everything. People won't complain. It just seems like so many little things are happening. I, look, first they first they take the 1.5% out that people don't understand at the beginning because it's somewhere in the fine print. Then people kind of get over that. Then there's this weird tournament with a 3K guaranteed. It says right 3K guaranteed on the board and then the people are playing for 1,500. Then 60, 60K disappears out of the prize pool for the Tournament of Champions and even though we know where it went, still they reduced what people are getting for this Tournament of Champions free roll in the middle of the tournament. This is all within a short period of time. <laughs> What is going on over there? How come I'm not seeing other rooms have this many problems? So something's wrong over at MGM. All right, so I want to talk about Dan Shack now. Dan Shack is a hedge fund manager, very rich guy. He plays very high stakes poker. I met Dan Shack and played poker with him before just about everybody in poker knew who he was. He didn't really play poker until 2004. And in 2005, he got his first World Series of Poker cash. That is when I played with him. At that point, he was not a known guy in poker at all. And he ended up at my first... 3K limit hold'em table in July 2005. That was my second event ever. The first event I played, I got third, which is 1,500 limit hold'em. Then I didn't enter anything else, and a month later, I entered 3K limit hold'em. Well, Dan Shack was at my table, and just from looking at him, right away, I knew the guy was really rich. I could tell. He had on expensive clothes. He had on an expensive watch. Yet he didn't carry himself like somebody who was trying to flaunt money. 
And you may say, well, of course he's trying to flaunt money if he's wearing expensive clothes and expensive watch. Well, no, no, not necessarily. He just liked these clothes and liked that watch. But he carried himself just like a normal guy who happens to be rich, which is very different than someone who isn't really that rich and tries to flaunt money all the time to make you think they're rich. They're two very different things. So anyone who's constantly bragging about money and shoving their money in your face is usually not that rich. And uh, somebody who is very rich usually is downplaying very much what money they have, even if they are wearing expensive clothes or an expensive watch or doing expensive things. So Dan Shack was definitely the latter. So I knew right away that this was a rich guy. And at the time, he was in his uh, mid-40s. I was 33. So he was older than me, but not really old. And I just thought this is just some rich guy who liked playing poker, which is pretty much what he was. I put four bad beats on him in the span of two hours. And the funny thing, it was only on him. So I didn't bad beat anybody else. But in those first two hours of the event, I bad beat him four times. The only reason he was not out was because this was limit hold'em, and there's only so much you could lose per hand in the early stages of the event, which don't mean all that much. Though it meant more back then because you only started with 3,000 in chips. He made a comment at one point that he would have been out of the tournament four times if this was no limit hold'em. Though I commented back some of these hands I wouldn't have stuck in if it was no limit hold'em. And he said, yeah, that's true. But yeah, I put four pretty bad beats on him And by the fourth one, we were just kind of laughing about it. So he wasn't a jerk about it. We were kind of laughing that it was always me and him (laughs) in these hands where I I just kept bad beating him. And then I think I two-outed him on the final one of the four. So then he busted uh, shortly after that, not even to me. And he left and said, you know, nice playing with you guys and whatever. I thought, okay, well, this guy can definitely afford to lose the 3K. But I can see he must be a little bit annoyed. I just kept bad beating him. But, yeah, that's poker. That's the way it goes. I've been on the other end of it. And I'm happy to have the chips. Well, his chips didn't do that well for me because then as the blinds went up, in the next hour, the next level, I lost everything back that I had won, and I was back to starting stack. Well, obviously, the rest of the event went better for me because that is the event I won. Well, Dan Shack looked at the news. I don't know where he saw it, but looked at card player or something and looked at who won that event. And lo and behold, the winner of that event was the guy who put the four bad beats on him in the first two hours. Now, apparently, when Dan Shack went home, he told his wife, whose name was Beth Shack, they're not together anymore, and they had a pretty uh, bad divorce. But they were together in 2005, and he went home and told Beth that this one guy at the table was just so lucky and just bad beat him over and over and over again. And he said to Beth, first he described some of the beats, but then he said to Beth, this guy's going to win. This guy is so lucky, he's destined to win this one. You watch, he's going to win. So that's probably why he went back and checked. So he saw me in the hallway about a week or two later. And he went up to me and said, I knew it. I knew you were going to win this one. He said, after those beats you put on me, I said to my wife, and she was standing with him. He said, I said to my wife, 
this guy is going to win. This guy is destined to win that event. Sometimes you have people who are destined to win an event. I knew that was you on this one. So I looked, and sure enough, it was you. He was actually proud of himself for predicting this. He wasn't mad. He wasn't bitter. He was proud of himself that he called this very early in the event right after he busted. He didn't tell me, but he came home and told his wife that this really lucky guy at the table is going to be the one to win. And then I was. So he wanted to let me know that he predicted this. So we were kind of laughing about this. And then his wife got involved with the discussion. His wife, Beth, who was already noticeably drunk. She had a drinking problem at the time. I don't know if she still does, but at the time she drank all the time. Every time I saw her, she had a drink with her. But this is the first time I had seen her. But like from that point forward, whenever I saw her, she had a drink. But she was noticeably drunk. And she got in my face. And she said, you need to be glad that you didn't do this to me. Because if you put some of those beats on me, I, I, would have, I would have kicked you in the face. And you should be lucky it was him because he's too nice. But I would have kicked you in the face if you put those beats on me. And he's like, he was so embarrassed. He was so embarrassed with her behaving this way. And he kept saying, honey, honey, be nice, be nice. She said, no, I, how should I be nice when he did this to you with putting all those terrible beats on you? And, and then he wins this, this event. Uh, you know, he, he should be kicked in the face for that. And I'm not going to be afraid to say it. And he's like, honey, please, please don't do this. And so they had like a little fight in front of me of him begging her to stop with this uh, abusive language towards me and, and the statement that I should be kicked in the face for putting bad beats on her husband. He's very, very embarrassed, and he finally kind of dragged her away. And I knew nothing about him still. I didn't know his name even. But I thought to myself this. I thought, you know, this guy seems pretty nice, and his wife was also dressed in expensive clothing and had an expensive diamond ring, so I could tell they had a lot of money. And I thought, you know what? This guy has huge money. I'm sure he's got a ton more money than I have. But I think his life is pretty miserable. I'm not even jealous of him because he's got to live with his drunk who gets abusive when she's drunk. This has got to be awful. Well, sure enough, Beth started playing poker herself. or Maybe he already was playing. And uh, she got deep in a few events. She wasn't very good. She just got lucky. I guess she deserved to be kicked in the face for the beat she put on. She almost won a bracelet, believe it or not, in a pretty tough event. But she got to be known. And she even ha- was in like some reality show eventually. And she got to be known for this shoe collection that she had that was worth about a million bucks. She had a shoe collection of like 1,200 shoes that she was showing off on TV. And I was just looking at this whole thing as I just know this marriage is not going to last I, I could just tell if, if this happens out in public, I can imagine how awful she is behind closed doors. And I'm not saying Dan is perfect behind closed doors. I don't know him very well, but I could see in public that he was very pleasant and she was like saying I should be kicked in the face for putting bad beats on him. And by the way, he never told her anything like that. I was rude to him or anything bad about like me as a person or the way I treated him. And I know this because she told me I should be kicked in the face for putting the beats on him. That was the justification for why I should be kicked in the face. So anyway, they got a divorce in 2009. It was a very contentious divorce. And he actually sued her at some point for this shoe collection that he wanted to take ownership of it, but uh, dropped the lawsuit. He eventually married a former model named Anna, 
in 2014. I think they're still together. Beth was younger than he was, but not like super young. I think she was probably around my age. I have to imagine this second wife is probably younger. But I think what happened was Dan probably just married this hot chick in her 20s at some point, and then she became a drunk and became very difficult to live with. So why am I telling all this now? I mean, it's it's interesting to talk about how a guy who became a known high-stakes player in poker, which he did just because he had a huge bankroll and could just play what he wanted, so he started entering these very big events and played big cash games and got to be known through these televised events and televised cash games. So that's how people got to know him in subsequent years. And he's always had a good reputation in poker. People have generally liked him. And I think he got to be friends with Ivy over time. Despite all of the uh, entries to these high-stakes tournaments, like he never became a crusher or anything, but he did accumulate a lot of caches for a lot of money because he was playing these very high-roller events, and eventually you're going to luck into winning some and run up your handed mob results pretty high. So that's what he did. It's kind of like what Kerry Katz did. So he does have uh, like over $7 million of uh, Hended Mob winnings. But he's actually won uh, less than me at the World Series of Poker. He's won about 700k at the World Series of Poker, and I've won, I think, over eight, like eight-something. But why are we talking about him now? These are all old stories. Why am I talking about him now? Well... Dan Shack is now in mainstream news. A story just broke about him that he is being charged with something called spoofing the gold market. So let me explain what this is all about, and you'll understand a bit better. But before I begin, I need to tell you that this is not a criminal charge. So when I say he's being charged, it is the government charging him, but he's being charged in a civil case. So Dan Shack is not in danger of going to jail. And when you're a really rich guy, while it's never good to be charged in any way by the government, it's a lot better to be civilly charged when you know you'll be able to absorb whatever you lose here if you do lose the case, but you're not going to be in jail. So this is actually on Bloomberg, and a lot of people have sent me this article. But I've seen uh, seen other articles that are similar. So I'll read you some pieces from this, and then we'll explain what happened. He was basically charged with manipulating gold and silver markets with a technique called spoofing. He's being charged by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, known as the CFTC. It's not the FTC, it's the CFTC, but it is a government agency. They allege he... repeatedly placed orders for gold and silver futures contracts with the intent to cancel them. And then once that's done, it drives up the price and then he can sell this gold and silver for more money. This practice called spoofing got to be better known by the public when something similar happened with J.P. Morgan And that was actually a high-profile criminal case. So again, this is not a criminal case. It's a civil case, but uh, this is over the same sort of thing, this thing called spoofing, where you're placing orders that you intend to cancel before they can be filled. 
The CFTC said these charges demonstrate once again that the CFTC will vigorously prosecute to the fullest extent of the law misconduct that has the potential to undermine the integrity of our markets. That was said by Gretchen Lowe, who is the acting division of enforcement director. Shaq already settled uh, claims with the CFTC in the past. In uh, 2015, it was said that he traded in the closing minute of the gold futures market after being ordered not to. So anything that they think people are doing to manipulate the market, they will either warn them or go after them. And in this case, in 2015, they were saying that they noticed in the final minute he was trading. I'm not sure what that was gaining him, but they told him, stop this last minute trading here because it's manipulating things, and then he kept doing it, and then he settled with them. This was uh, seven years ago. So this this is the way it works. Is it is creating a false demand for these metals. So then, with people of the belief that there's all these orders to uh, to buy these, which are really his own orders, that people start placing... Uh, orders for more money because it drives up the price. It's a supply and demand thing. And then he quickly cancels his orders and then he sells his gold and silver for more money than it would have gone for otherwise. So it's basically creating fake demand to make others be willing to pay more and then he sells it himself. So he's creating fake orders to buy his own stuff basically. It's not too different than going on eBay and bidding up your own auction. It's a different mechanism, but it's kind of a concept along those same lines. The CFTC actually now has its own spoofing task force, and they search for this occurring within commodities training. They said, Shaq intentionally or recklessly sent false signals of increased supply and demand that were designed to trick market participants into executing against orders on the opposite side of the market, which he actually wanted filled. Shaq's spoof orders allowed him to fill orders on the opposite side of the market sooner at a better price and or in larger quantities than they otherwise would have been filled. Shaq has also uh, affected the gold market before in a greater manner. In 2011... This is now 11 years ago. Dan Shack decided to offload his position in $850 million worth of gold contracts. So he had uh, contracts that accounted for 10% of the main U.S. futures market in gold, which is the equivalent of all of the gold production in South Africa in that year, according to the Wall Street Journal. He had lost money on gold because it had been falling around that time. He lost about uh, $7 million. He said it was David against Goliath. I just decided to get out. Down 70% is down is better than down 100%. So he liquidated his position and returned money to clients. And then as a result, the number of gold contracts plunged from about... Uh, 580,000 to 500,000, which is the single biggest reduction ever in gold contracts. The average daily move of the number of gold contracts is about uh, 4,000. So this reduced by 80,000. This sudden reduction in gold contracts panicked investors and brokers told the Wall Street Journal that they had a ton of clients call because they were worried that a big trader was dumping his holdings. 
So Shaq wasn't really dumping holdings, he was dumping contracts, but this concerned everybody, and it affected the price of gold. Now, there's nothing illegal about this, but it did uh, cause the price of gold to fall because of this one action he did. At the time, people thought maybe he is uh, getting out of trading entirely, which, of course, we knew was not true because uh, 11 years later, he still is. But he said, this is not career ending. I'm not stopping trading. That's a little side story. I didn't even know about this until this whole thing broke. And the uh, the whole spoofing thing with, with J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan uh, actually was sued by Dan Shack and two other separate metals traders. And they settled with them. So funny that uh, over the alleged spoofing activities by J.P. Morgan... There was a suit by Dan Shack, which was settled, and he received some amount that was never disclosed. J.P. Morgan also paid a massive settlement to the CFTC for their trading activities that were spoofing and other stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. They did publicly claim innocence regarding the spoofing allegations, but they did admit to some other things that were being alleged at the time. So it's funny that he's been on both sides of this. Shaq is accused of spoofing, and he sued J.P. Morgan for their alleged spoofing. So what would we say about Dan Shaq here? Does this mean he's some sort of scammer? Not really. This is someone who seems to be taking whatever edge he thinks that uh, he can find and is taking calculated risks in his trading strategies regarding what would be beneficial versus the chance that he will get in some kind of trouble and the amount of uh, penalties he may face for it. It looks like he hasn't done anything that is uh, of criminal nature, so it seems to be like a risk-reward calculation when he pulls shenanigans like this. So what can happen to him here? since it's not a criminal action, since he's very rich, what would he have to worry about? Well, the CFTC could hit him with pretty significant fines. And furthermore, they could end up banning his trading. He could could end up with trading bans, either complete or partial. He could also have an injunction against him for future violations of federal commodities laws, which would put a lot more teeth in any kind of uh, future violation of what would happen to him. And I already mentioned the fines, so these are not pleasant things he's going to have to possibly face. It's not a matter of a really rich guy just paying some fine, which doesn't matter much to him and moving on. He may end up with various penalties and maybe this injunction against him that will hamper him in the future. Dan Shack is originally from New York. At the time I met him, he was listed as being from Pennsylvania, from Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I don't know if he really lived there or if that was just where he was listed at the time. Something that's not really uh, well known is that the city everyone is listed as being from in World Series of Poker Records is the city they were in when they first signed up. So I'm going to perpetually be listed as from Las Vegas. 
some people think this is some kind of shenanigan on my part. No, it's you're just stuck there. So I'm stuck in Las Vegas as far as the World Series is concerned, and everybody else is stuck under what they originally registered as, as the city they were in at the time. So when he registered at the time in 04 or 05, he was in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, but maybe he hasn't been there in a while. He presently lives in Las Vegas. Anyway, we'll watch what happens here. And this could significantly hamper his trading in the future. He'll obviously be okay no matter what happens here, but this could have a big impact on the remainder of his trading career. I wonder if he was aware that the CFTC had a spoofing task force. You would think he wouldn't be spoofing if you knew that a spoofing task force existed. And you may say, well, he must know this because he sued J.P. Morgan and settled with them in 2020 over their spoofing. So how could he not know about this task force? Well, because this is not about anything all that current that he's alleged to have done. The CFTC said that he placed, quote, deceptive and manipulative orders on hundreds of different occasions between February 2015 and March 2018. So we're talking about stuff that ranges from seven and a half years ago to four and a half years ago. So I think that when he sued J.P. Morgan, it was probably for stuff that uh, occurred after that, or at least I think he probably wasn't aware of that task force at the time he did it. Maybe it didn't even exist then. I don't know when they started the spoofing task force, but it looks like they went back and looked at his transactions and figured it out. I don't know what the statute of limitations on this would be, but they are just hitting it with these charges now, even though this is about things that happened between 2015 and 2018. So it's the first time I've really heard much about Dan Shack in recent times. I think the last time I talked about him was when he was mad at Vanessa Selbst over saying that she retired and that he put a very nice message to her on Twitter as a result of her retirement. And then she played in another event a short time after. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I wasn't really retiring. I was just retiring from professional poker. And he got really annoyed by that. He felt like he was treated like a chump like he he writes this nice thing to her as she's leaving poker and then she's really not leaving poker so he got really irritated by her with that he's still playing poker pretty actively at the 2022 world series he played a lot of events and cashed in seven of them to show you that he's not just sticking to high rollers though he played those too he played events as low as $500 No Limit Hold'em, the freeze-out, not even one that has rebuys, one that was never going to have a very high prize pool. And he finished 247th for a whopping $1,395, but he did get a World Series cash under his belt. But he also cashed in 25K No Limit Hold'em at the World Series, 50K No Limit Hold'em at the World Series, the 10K No Limit Deuce to 7 event, the 1K Super Seniors, so he can play that because he's over 60. And he even pseudo-min-cashed the main event. He finished 954th. I think they paid uh, a thousand-something spots. He finished 954th to get uh, 17,000 for that. 
But yeah, he's still very active in poker, and you see he's playing for the love of the game. Obviously, he's not looking for big money entering $500 freeze-outs, but he wants bracelets and does not have any bracelets yet. He does have over $11 million in total caches, but again, most of this is because he can afford to play high rollers. See, I can't do that. Even though I don't have anywhere near the money of Dan Shack. I can't even bring myself to play something like the $500 freeze-out. And yeah, the top prize is 241 k but there was almost 5,000 entries, so the chance of getting the top prize is very low. And even if you make something like 20th place, which is obviously also very tough to get out of 5,000 people, you're only getting... $9,000. Even uh, 18th place got $9,000. It just is too hard to get meaningful money there. So that's why I really don't play events that are less than 1000 in buy-in. I'm not being arrogant here. I'm just talking about the value of my time. And at some point, I've got to say, well, if there's no like easy shot at a bracelet, well, there's never an easy shot at a bracelet, but if there's not like at least a decent chance I can win a bracelet, which is why a lot of these guys enter these high buy-in events at the World Series because the field's very small, so you have a lot higher chance to win a bracelet even though the competition is tough because there's a lot fewer people to beat. So if you've got the bad combo of a massive number of people where it's very hard to win the bracelet for that reason alone, plus that you have to get very deep to make any kind of meaningful money, then you're really wasting your time playing it. Unless that's what you can afford. Then if that's what you can afford, that's what you should play. But if you can afford more than that, then that's not a good use of your time. So I don't usually enter events like that and try to enter events that are 1K or higher. I prefer like 1,500. I don't love the big buy-in events either because there's too much variance in them. I don't like the 10Ks because if I don't cash, I'm out 10K. That kind of sucks. It's a lot easier to be down 1,500 and say, okay, you know, I didn't cash at 1,500, but no big deal, it's 1,500. 10K, it, it takes a lot longer for me to make that back in cash. So that's kind of along the lines of what I think when I play. It's like, if I lose, how long is it going to take me to make this back in cash? And if the answer is a while, then I don't like it. But if also the answer is I'm going to be spending a long time playing and probably not cashing very much or at all, then it's also very unappealing. But I guess Dan Shack just likes playing. Because <laughs> truthfully, even the top prize here of 241K is very unexciting to him. But he's playing just for the love of playing. Which is a little bit weird because, like, what's the chance Dan Shack's going to win the bracelet out of, like, 5,000 people? What's the chance anyone's going to win the bracelet out of 5,000 people? I mean, someone will. But, like, if you're one person, no matter who you are, it's very hard to beat that number of people. So if he's, like, bracelet chasing, it's a weird event to play. So he must just love playing. If I had the type of money Dan Shack had, it would be a little bit hard to play poker and have much enthusiasm for it. I remember when Jerry Buss was playing poker, I used to think that about him. Like he, I'm seeing him enter events at Commerce that don't have much prestige for winning, and the money is meaningless to him. And I'm thinking, why is he even playing? <laughs> You're not getting big accolades for winning if you do, and whatever he wins is going to be meaningless. So why is he even playing? He must have just really loved poker. I like the fact that when I 
win some of these events or get deep in them that the money is meaningful to me. I also like the fun of trying to chase another bracelet. So that's fun. But short of that, like it would be hard to bring myself to want to play a lot if the money was not meaningful to me, both tournament and cash. I guess that's one downside to having a ton of money is that most of the poker games are going to be too small to where you'll have any financial excitement from winning. I'm not saying I feel bad for super rich guys. I'm just pointing that out. I guess now it's time to talk about Landon Teese. Some people say his name is pronounced Landon Tice. I don't know. I'm going to call him Landon Teese anyway. Landon Teese is a young poker player. And he has kind of an inspirational story. And that's kind of why people like him and pay attention to him. This wasn't one of these guys who was like a poker machine that just came up through poker and always dominated it from day one. This is a guy who was just a poker fanboy. And in fact, he used to be the one who was like helping Joey Ingram transcribe his shows. Like he was just doing like free work for Joey Ingram because he was a fan of his. And finally, I guess he got Joey Ingram's attention from doing this stuff for him. And Joey Ingram started to take a little notice of him. And he also just was constantly tweeting at big names in poker, hoping they acknowledge him. And it kind of worked. So even without having really won very much, without having done anything that impressive in poker yet, he kind of just got to be known as this wide-eyed guy who loved poker, who was young and unspoiled and excited for the game. And this appealed to some people who looked at him and said, you know what, I wish I could be like that. Because I'm kind of grizzled, I'm kind of uh, used to the community and the game, it doesn't excite me much anymore, it's just kind of something I do. And here's this young guy who's got his whole life ahead of him, and poker just excites him so much, like it's the most thrilling thing in the world. So people liked his youthful exuberance for poker. And he started to get more and more attention on social media, and it helped that some of the bigger names in poker, like Joey Ingram, took notice of him, and then later Matt Berkey took notice of him. So they were interacting with him, and more and more people followed him or were kind of rooting for him. I always had kind of mixed feelings about him. Some people who didn't like him called him an attention whore, and he kind of was and is. He's just always seeking attention on Twitter. He always wants people to talk about him. And I guess I'm falling for this myself because I'm doing not just one but two topics on him this time. And I've talked about him before on this show. And he and I don't even know each other. Like, we've had no interaction. I follow him, but he's, like, never talked to me publicly or privately. So this is not someone I like or hate. I've just kind of observed him. I find the phenomenon of him to be kind of interesting because there's so few American young guys in poker that when there is one, people take note of it. It's not like in the 2000s where there were tons and tons just like him. Nowadays, there are not many young players who are getting into poker. When I say young, I mean really young, like near 21, who are getting into poker and winning and getting notice 
by the existing pros in the poker community. There's some ones that are quietly winning, but this is a guy who has been seeking attention from day one and gotten some. And the older people just kind of enjoy watching his wide-eyed excitement over the whole thing. His best cast, his best cash in tournaments to date is about 200k. He has 582k on his hinted mob. It's not clear if he's won or lost overall because he's been backed by Matt Berkey and sometimes others in events. So it's hard to tell what he's spent in entry fees. For example, he entered and cashed in a 25K event at the Seminole Hard Rock in Florida back in April. So he cashed 90K after entering for 25, but I guarantee that was not all his money. I guarantee that he was being put in by someone like Berkey. I'm saying this without even knowing the facts here. And he's talked about how he's backed before, so I'm not just making that up or guessing it. So, as always, with active tournament players, especially ones that'll play high rollers here and there, it's it's hard to tell whether he's up or down when he's cashed 582k in the past two years or so. He does seem to have some decent poker skill. He doesn't seem like a, a phantom... He's not like a Fedora Hulse that uh, is taking the world by storm, but he's also not a fish, and he does have potential to keep improving. Matt Berkey kind of uh, almost adopted him into his whole crew. Matt Berkey's like a father figure to him. Berkey has made him a coach in the Solve for Why coaching team that uh, Berkey runs. Landon is now a regular host with several other people on Berkey's Only Friends show on YouTube. And Berkey backed him in that ill-fated match against Bill Perkins. And they'll go to the gym and work out together. And he hangs out with Berkey's friends. So like he's got that whole crew he hangs with now, even though they're mostly older than him. In fact, they're all older than him. One thing that Berkey has had to deal with is that when Landon says or does something that's on the immature side, that it's kind of a reflection on Berkey. And I'm sure that's sometimes an annoyance to Berkey, but I think Berkey probably brought him in there because he saw the potential for Landon's poker fame to keep increasing and thought it was probably good for his company and he probably liked the kid personally so that's probably why he brought him on and got to know him but here's an example of Landon doing something which I'm sure Berkey didn't like very much and definitely made himself look bad and probably made Berkey look a little bit bad by extension though I doubt Berkey knew about this in advance or he would have put the kibosh on it so on uh, July 26th Landon tweeted the following. Check out the new hot drop jackpot slots on Ignition Casino. With new winners every hour and every day, any slots player looking to light up the reels has found exactly what they're looking for. Hashtag Ignition Partner. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So here is a young, semi-exciting poker player who has a pretty good following on Twitter. He has 23,000 followers on Twitter, 
Way more than I have. I have like mid-3,000s. I've been around a lot longer. Now, he has all these followers because all these well-known pros were talking to him and giving him the attention he wanted, and that uh, brought people to following him. But anyway, the bottom line is he has 23K followers, which is very nice to have on uh, Poker Twitter. And he's part of Berkey's whole crew. And the reason people follow him is because they want to see what he's going to do in poker. They want to see how his whole poker career is going, how he develops, what events he wins or comes close to winning. That's what they want to see. You know what they don't want to see? They don't want to see ridiculous ads regarding negative expectation slots on ignition of all places with marketing language that is not going to connect with any poker players. Like, this is not what a poker player would say. With new winners every hour and every day, any slots player looking to light up the reels has found exactly what they're looking for. That's what a marketing person at Ignition would write. That's not what a poker player would ever write. At least not a winning one. All he did here is make it look like that he's a soulless shill. It makes him look ridiculous. It makes Ignition even look ridiculous for having him put this out there because... uh, He wasn't putting a link to any kind of affiliate stuff in case you think, well, maybe he's just linking his own affiliate stuff and doing it in a stupid way. No, even though he had himself listed as Ignition Partner, which I believe he probably is some kind of Ignition affiliate, he does not have a link to sign up there that gives him some sort of percentage here. He just had a link to a YouTube video about these new hot drop slots. So he was just outright putting an ad there using their stupid marketing language. And this is not going to impress any of his followers. It just makes him look stupid. People are following him because they think he's a young, shrewd poker player, not a a fool who plays negative expectation slots on an unregulated offshore casino. Nor do they want this pitch to them in marketing language. They, They want a experience of following a kid who's putting out his real feelings all the time, like a raw kid who's just saying what he thinks. Even if it's sometimes a little bit immature, at least it's the real guy. At least you know you're getting the real Landon Tease. This is just him repeating some shit that was sent to him by the marketing department. Ignition obviously made him an affiliate because of his following. So you'd think they would know enough to say, okay, he should not be the one putting this out. Maybe some guy who does a slots channel on YouTube would put this out, but not, not someone who's being followed by all poker players. So it appears to me they probably asked him to make this tweet because remember, he doesn't get anything from making this tweet because there's nothing to click on that tweet that would make him money. He's just straight up advertising. And the YouTube video he posted wasn't even his channel. It was Ignition's channel. So there's nothing in that tweet that directly makes him money. Now, obviously, he lacks the maturity to realize how lame and stupid this looks. His stock in the poker community has generally been rising over the past two years, even with the setbacks that he's had even with him losing to Bill Perkins, thinking that he could beat him for nine big blinds per hundred and had to quit that match, even with some other foolish things he's done and said, nothing's been that bad and really just been more of a form of overconfidence or immaturity, and people have found him mostly to be charming. So his stock has risen in the poker community, especially with his now participation in that show that Berkey does, 
So he's been trying to come off as a successful young poker pro, yet this just screams busto and desperate. Because why would you put this out there? If you're not so desperate to make a little bit of money from Ignition, it's not like they're paying him huge money for this. He's so desperate as an Ignition affiliate that he's actually advertising, just posting blatant ads for them about slots of all things. This makes it look like he's so far in the hole that he'll do anything to make a few bucks. So this isn't a scandal. It's just embarrassingly bad marketing on both ends, on both his end and Ignition's end. So as you might imagine, he got killed in the comments. Brian Paris, a longtime poker pro, said back, probably should have at least rephrased it a bit, LOL. This looks like your account got hacked or something. That was my thought, too. It was like, wait, did someone hack Landon's account? So then in response to Brian Paris, a girl named Abby Q said, maybe that's for the best, haha, that, that people think that uh, his account was hacked. And she's right. Like, it'd be better for him if his account was hacked than he actually voluntarily posted this. Joseph Chiang, best known for uh, deep main event runs many years ago, like about a decade ago, he said, uh, seems a bit early, young Landon. You got to be at least at my point in poker career to be shilling slots. And by my point, I mean a washed up and withered uh, poker player. Ignition really chose a 21-year-old wizard to shill slots over all the withered gen OG Asians. Then a guy named Stephen Edwards said, LMAO, you can never act like a respectable man ever again after that post. (laughs) And then others were saying, well, I guess now we know the price of your dignity or, well, we can tell someone's busto, things like that. Will Jaffe, who does the well-liked Tough Convo tweets, where he does a Tough Convo video that tend to be like a minute or two of him berating someone for doing something stupid, he posted another one aimed at Landon. What's up, guys? Um, it's a beautiful day out there, but uh, it's time to have another tough conversation. And uh, unfortunately, it's time to have a conversation about slots. And Landon, look, I'm sorry, bro. I really don't have any ethical issue with promoting slots, but I do have a personal one. And that's just, bro, what the fuck are you doing? Honestly, like, do you know who plays slots? 70-year-old woman. My grandma plays slots. And I don't think she follows you on Twitter. And she's dead. Like, seriously, bro. <laughs> what are you doing? None of your followers play slots. They don't play online slots. They want to hear poker stories and about your run-up, you know, and GTO and stuff. And, it, I mean, you know, I, I got to say, like, Berkey, if this is like your boy... You need to solve for why the fuck you let him do this shit. Because it's just dumb. And and uh, look, to all the people on Twitter saying bad things, I mean, that's just what fucking Twitter is. The poker world is so desperate to jump on anybody who does anything. So that's, that's what it is. But to the people saying, oh, he got his bag. First off, why do you have to talk like that? Why do you have to say things like that? But secondly, did he really? Like, did th- do you think the bag was worth the weight it comes with? I don't know. I guess only one person does. But, you know, you just... I like you, Landon. You're a nice young kid. The world is really your oyster. And I don't like to see people make bad decisions. Yeah, that's a good uh, commentary there. I agree with that. I don't think he got very much, by the way. I don't think he's making much from Ignition. It was a bad decision. A very bad decision. 
And he addressed it a little bit on the show with Berkey. In fact, I guess I might as well pull it up. I wasn't planning to, but I guess I might as well pull it up. For the majority of uh, the reach within this space, I would say 99.9% of people who are shilling slots on any site are relatively unknown. Their their platforms are small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't really have much of a voice. Yeah. And their integrity is never really going to get called into question because nobody has any idea what their integrity actually is. Yeah, makes sense. Yourself, on the other hand... A little different. You've kind of built yourself a, a, a bit of a leave-it-to-beaver uh, persona what? here. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I know. You're young. What's a leave-it-to-beaver? Uh, it was a show... You know what? The funny part is, is like, I'm also too young for leave-it-to-beaver. It's a very wholesome I'm show. I'm also too young, but I know what leave-it-to-beaver right, is. Right. It's a very wholesome show. Yeah. What is, it, what is beaver? It transcends he's the, the generations. He, he's the, um, the, the child in, in the, in in the leave family. It, he's beaver one from the, leave-it-to-beaver. Is yeah. he beaver? He's beaver. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> what yeah, does the, he do? What's the point here? He's just good. Oh. He's just a good, wholesome, I see. Christian young man, you know, very okay. 50s-esque of, mm-hmm. of America. Sure. And he did no wrong and, you know, ah, oh. shucks. The mm. difference between me and Beaver is I did wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, you're human. People yeah. are going to make mistakes. But my whole point is, is that, like, your rep coming into the community was you were a young, hungry grinder who yeah, kind yeah. of networked his way through... And uh, you lean very heavily on your character and your integrity. And, yeah. you know, you take a lot of pride in that. Yeah, yeah. So that makes you a target it whenever does. posts like this tend to uh, yeah. bring themselves forward. 100%. So I guess if we're going to address this, which seems like we're leaning into it, yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this process came to be yeah. and what you would have done differently? Yeah, so from an ambassador standpoint, um, I was mostly doing stuff for the poker side and Ignition Marketing wanted to try a slots thing. And as like my first ambassador role, I wasn't necessarily sure. And I did have some internal kind of feelings of like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And I, I had some bad feelings about it. And I also didn't want to, I didn't want to make a mistake. And realizing after the post happened, like you realize that it was kind of an issue. And from like now moving forward, um, I'm not going to be doing any like slot stream, like slot shilling or tweets of any of that nature. And mostly just representing the poker side moving forward. And that's where I felt comfortable with. And I feel good about that part, but I should have taken more responsibility and I should have pushed back more. And I didn't realize I had as much effectively, hey, this is not going to go well with my audience and my brand specifically, that I should be a little bit more proactive about that. I I think uh, something that doesn't happen often enough in these ambassadorship roles is communication between the company and and the ambassador in the sense of uh, you're attractive to them because of the platform that you've built. Mm -hmm. But they're probably not super sensitive to the image that you've created, your personal brand, and all those other things because their main interest is going to be leveraging uh your reach yeah right so from their incentive standpoint they should do that as selfishly as possible and yeah. like i wouldn't fault them at all for the message that they asked you to push forward right right and from your standpoint you want to be a good brand ambassador right. and promote them in an honorable way let me stop here i don't agree with berkey right here i think they just didn't really think as they asked him to do this they're just like okay well He's uh, a partner here, and we want our partner to promote. So, okay, partner, promote. And then I believe he probably 
was a little conflicted, like, okay, should I do that? Should I not? Maybe people won't like this. Well, okay, well, yeah, whatever. I'll just put it out there. And then he did, and it had a bad reaction, and he felt stupid. So I, I believe his story there, but I don't believe that Ignition thought, hey, this is going to go over badly, but we don't care about Landon's reputation because we're just trying to promote. I think that they were just stupid, that they just didn't think that his audience would react badly to this. If they did, they would have not had him do it, not for his sake, but for their sake. But you want to do so. I want to do right by my people. Yeah, you want to do right by your brand and you want to do right by your your, uh, platform. Right. So you need to be able to uh, have some autonomy Mm -hmm. as far as like what the messaging is that comes through, what's good, what's bad, what's on the table, what's off the table and things of that nature. Yeah. And I think that what gets missed is that both of you acting in your most selfish ways to protect yourselves ultimately leads to the best messaging and marketing uh, uh, available right yeah. like if you are more communicative to them saying like look i know the poker industry yeah i know twitter yep i know social media and i know my particular platform yeah this isn't gonna fly no this is definitely an expected result for sure. right then they can just look at that and say like okay we don't need to test because uh he's done all of this testing up until this point like, yeah that's what's allowed him to grow right uh we have to trust that he understands his platform pretty well yeah and, you know, from their side, they can just say, like, okay, well, then let's do something uh, a little bit more enticing to your community. Let's right. let's run a contest, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, that is poker-driven, yeah. but yields free slot play. Sure. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And convert people that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you kind of work the backdoor channel, so to speak. Yeah. So I think that this is, like, one of those things where, uh, you know, obviously, in my opinion... Um, well, it's twofold. Number yeah. one, I think that it's a massive overreaction. But number two, I think it's uh, it's an expected reaction. 100%. And one that is to some degree deserved. So, It's not a massive overreaction. I didn't see anything massive. I didn't say people saying that uh, Landon is a scammer, Landon should leave the poker community, or somebody should beat him up. I, I haven't seen anything like that. I just saw people laughing at him and making fun of it, which is the correct reaction. There was no overreaction here from what I saw in the replies to his tweet. In fact, I found the replies to be very funny. What I mean by that is not that you did something horrifically wrong and should be roasted at the stake, but more so anyways, but still it's fine. Well, it's more so that like when you curate a a particular brand and when you uh, lead with what you consider to be your integrity and things of that nature, there's not a lot of wiggle room, right? Right. Like I'm hyper aware of this. If I'm going to be on this mic five days a week, calling out people that I think are harmful to the community, then I personally can't back or invest in things that also may be perceived as harmful to the community. Yeah, Yeah, it makes sense. So it's like I cut off a lot of channels that uh, could be revenue producing to me because of this high integrity stance that I choose to take with my own personal brand. Now, of course, I could just say, don't care. Uh, I, you know, scorn me if you want to like whatever, shred me. But, uh, and, and that would also just work. Right, like it would work, but you have to deal with the fact that you're compromising that. Exactly. Right, and like personally, that's not something that I want to do. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't judge anybody who really does. Yeah. It's kind of is what it is. I agree. I mean, I think it's just up to each individual person. I also feel like it was a bit of an overreaction, and I'm very anti-slots. But like the, 
it's not like everyone is winning in poker either. <laughs> There's got to be uh, a large percentage of losers in poker too. And I don't know. It's just sort of everyone has their own agency. Like if they don't want to play slots, they don't need to. I understand it from a branding perspective. But I also think that, and it seems to be a common thing with people reacting to you specifically, that there is a lot of... um entitlement jealousy right no see this is a bad take i i agree with most of what berkey said there with this melissa girl who's also a regular part of the only friends show that's all for why i don't agree with what she's saying here because first of all you can't compare slots to poker yes most poker players lose however those losses don't go to the house the house takes a rake, regardless of who's winning or losing. In fact, the house would rather there are no big winners. The house would rather that everybody's about equal and just trades the same pots back and forth, and they just rake everybody. That's what the house would prefer. And with slots, you're directly playing against the house, and Ignition is an unregulated site, so you have no idea what's going on with these slots. You have no idea what they're really paying out, what the odds are, whether there's anything rigged, you have no idea, and you, there's nothing you can do about it if you suspect something is going wrong with the slots. And they have an incentive to do it much greater than ever rigging poker, because with poker, that unless they have house players in the game, that it doesn't matter to them who wins and loses. So it's a huge difference. Uh, second of all, it just looks stupid, because poker players, good and bad, realize that online slots on a site like Ignition are a bad idea. So that's especially why it looks stupid. And then this whole thing about entitlement, jealousy, let, let's hear what she has to say about it, but I, I, I think it's going to be something I disagree with. Rage type of stuff that gets directed at you from people who've been in the industry longer and maybe wish that they had the same opportunities. That's sure. something that I tend to notice. Mm -hmm. No, no. Like there are probably some people that feel, okay, this landing kid comes out of nowhere and these name pros start paying attention to him and Berkey gives him a spot in Solve for Why and and now he's got this notoriety that he didn't really earn. I, I could see people saying that and not liking him for that reason, but not here. Here he legitimately put up something that was dumb. It was not really anything that harmful and it wasn't anything that was dishonest. It wasn't anything scammy, but it was dumb and foolish and ridiculous and he deserved to be made fun of there and he was he didn't deserve anything beyond being made fun of i would have been against anyone trying to bring any kind of real consequence to him but he didn't get any real consequence other than people making fun of him on twitter which for that tweet he deserved so i i don't know what she's rambling about here um so i think it's sort of a few things going on i also think like age plays a big role uh when i when i went deep in the main event in 2010 I was 27, is that right? 28. I was 28 years old. So significantly older than Landon, but very much younger than I am now. And when Full Tilt patched me up, um, I was like bending over backwards to adhere to everything that they said. Like they were, they were like, uh, I, I was wearing a backwards hat, backwards steward hat. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to patch my hat. They're like, no, you need one uh, on your hat, on your shirt, on this, on that. Like, and everything had to be very precise to what they were saying. And I didn't realize, like, like I do now, how much you can push back against 
things that you think are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's actually not a good example. It's funny because I ran deep in that same main event, not as far as Berkey went, but I got 88th in that main event. That's the best finish I've ever gotten. And I didn't play with Berkey, by the way, to my knowledge. But I was one of two players that refused to be patched up for nothing. Obviously, Berkey was not one of them. Berkey must have gotten patched up for nothing. And he he probably made some after that because you get patched up for nothing. And then depending upon the TV coverage you get, then you get more and more money. And depending upon your ultimate finish, you get more and more money. But initially, you're patched up for nothing. And I refused to do it as did Jason Sentai, who ended up finishing ninth. So both of us would not take any patches until we were paid up front something. And eventually, we both got a patch. But I got mine when I was able to demand more. So I got 7500 bucks right off the bat for just getting patched up at that point, rather than when they were patching up everybody else with about 200 left. So Berkey obviously took it earlier, because I, I knew for a fact that it was just me and Jason who didn't have a patch yet. And I this is about like with 120 left when I got my patch. I got Poker Stars, by the way. I didn't appear on TV at any point in that event. You could see a tiny bit of me, I think, when John Robert took a bad beat, but that was that was it. I was never on TV playing in that one despite getting to 88th and despite like four people at my table making the final table. But anyway... The reason it's not a good example that he's doing here is that in 2010, Berkey wasn't a well-known player. He's well-known now, but in 2010, he wasn't. So he was not in a position to make demands. So they're patching him up and he's signing a contract. I know this because I had to sign a contract. In fact, I had that contract modified because I didn't like certain things in the contract. But once he signed that contract, yeah, he has to do what he promised them. That's the way contracts work. That's not a good example. Right, like, yeah, uh, or maybe I was saying I wouldn't wear it on my hat. I think that's what it was. Was that I wouldn't wear one on my hat? But they were demanding that everybody wore at least two patches in some regard. Yeah. And if you watch the video, I have this like I have a hat on just like this, and I have this ridiculously large full tilt patch that's like not even stuck to the hat. Right, like the corners are coming uh-huh. off because it's so fucking big and it looks ridiculous. <laughs> and it's like now at forty, I understand like just how to navigate these relationships a lot better. Yeah, right. If uh, if I'm a brand sponsor for somebody and they give me a message that i think is like really poor for my audience i can come back with suggestions and say like look this isn't going to work for reason x y and z yeah i'm willing to work with you and and make it work in a better capacity yeah but like as it is it's not going out and what you often find is like they just don't care that's okay like they're just throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks Mm -hmm. and you're their model to test through yeah so it's like uh if you if you give them a little bit of (laughs) There it is. <laughs> no. Okay, so I, I've heard enough here. You can go watch the rest of this if you want to see uh, episode 86 of Sulfur Wise Only Friends show. See, I don't agree with him about Landon being a test case. They weren't testing anything. It was just some stupid marketing guy saying to Landon, hey, you're one of our affiliates now. You got to say this. And Landon's like, uh, I don't know about this. Uh, okay, fine. And then does it. That, that's what happened. That's what happened. He just didn't speak up. Maybe he didn't want to fracture the new relationship. Whatever it is, he he did something he had some doubts about, and then it backfired, and everyone laughed at him. That's really the whole story. And all this other crap. Oh, there are people, trolls are just trying to hassle you because they're jealous, or 
or people are overreacting or ignition. They don't care about your brand. They're using it as a test case. I, I don't agree with any of that. This is overthinking, guys. You're overthinking big time. I'm sure Berkey wasn't thrilled about this when it happened because anything Landon does affects him because he's the one who took on Landon into his crew. Landon represents Saul for Y now. When Landon does stupid things, it makes Saul for Y look stupid by extension. So I'm sure privately Berkey was giving him a talking to about this at the very least. But you know, credit for them for going on to the Only Friends show and talking about this. They could have just uh, not mentioned it and moved on. But at least they confronted this head, head on and uh, said what they need to say about it. And it seems like Landon learned a lesson, so whatever. Not a huge deal, just kind of funny. Okay, so story number two regarding Landon Teese. This one's more interesting. And you can even see on the forum, there's a lot more talk about this second topic than the slots thing. So I mentioned before that Landon likes attention. Landon's always trying to have people follow what he's doing with something or other. He always wants you looking at him. He always wants you knowing what's going on and being interested in what's going on in his life presently. Landon is not someone who wants the eyes off of him. He's not someone who wants to live privately and be left alone. He's the opposite. And that's basically how he rose to any kind of poker prominence in the first place. So much like he had this stupid match with Bill Perkins with the nine big blinds per hundred handicap that was largely for attention and that didn't go very well, he is now trying a new gimmick and he's got a taker. He tweeted on August 2nd at 8.11 p.m. Pacific, willing to be in conversations about a prop bet of living at Bally's for a full year. Living at Bally's. What does he mean by that? Well, he was trying to get people to make a prop bet with him that he would actually live at the Hotel Bally's, which is going to soon be converted to the Horseshoe, but you know, same property, that he will live there and not leave, not leave to go anywhere for a full year. That's a pretty big deal. He said the stipulation would be Bally's and Paris for the hotel bet. He said this the next day. I can have pool access, but I don't get to go in the pool would be open to offers and talks about it regarding price, structure, and guidelines, but I'd need to be able to put a significant amount of action on myself to do it. So he's offering that it's not just Bally's, that he will stay at Bally's, but that he will have access to the entire Bally's Paris property, which is connected, Bally's and Paris, that he can go anywhere within those two properties, but cannot leave those two properties for any reason. He has to stay on one of those two properties the entire time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a full year. And that as far as the pool is concerned, that he can go down there and hang out by the pool, but he can't go in the pool. This is his own offer. But that he's saying that he won't do this unless there's, quote, significant action on it, meaning that the bed has to be fairly big. Otherwise, he's not going to bother. So then... 
Patrick Leonard, who is a European poker pro who's active on social media as at Pads Poker, P-A-D-S Poker, he said, 24 hours later, I get a message. Landon Teeth's 365 days at Bally's, 100K, let's go. And he shows a message he got privately from Landon. I'm not sure which platform it is. I think it might be Discord. And Landon said to him, how serious are you about this Bally's for a year thing? And Patrick says, I'm serious. So they have an agreement in theory that they're going to have a prop bet for $100,000 that uh, regarding Landon Teese living at Bally's and that he cannot set foot off the Bally's and Paris property for an entire year or he loses. And if he completes the entire year without ever leaving, then he wins. Andrew Neem asked, can you use the pool? And Patrick Leonard said, no, we agreed he can't go to the pool, but he can be on the balcony and he has to be on one foot at all times. So the pool got dropped from this agreed bet. Landon wanted to go to the pool, but now he can't go to the area at all. But he can be on the balcony, but has to be on one foot if he's on the balcony. This is presumably to prevent him from spending that much time on the balcony. Now, I don't know if he could bring a chair out there and just have one foot on the ground, but it's so he can't just spend the entire day on the balcony to make the bet tougher to win because uh, he won't be able to spend much time outside. Presumably, he'd have to be indoors the entire time except the balcony, and on the balcony, he'd have to be on one foot. That does make it tougher. Now, someone brought up the obvious question. The cost of this whole thing. You can't just stay in Bally's for free. Staying there 365 nights would probably eat up more than half the 100K. In fact, Chris Brewer on Twitter wrote, how much does it cost to stay in Bally's for a year? If it's 150 a night, that's 54600 That's more than half the money. So then Patrick Leonard starts to go out into delusional land here. He says, we get them to sponsor it, surely. Also, surely rake so so much that Caesar's reward becomes huge. We're banking on them giving 25K in slot credits too. Okay, no. <laughs> Note all of this. Okay, they're not going to sponsor this. The rake they're talking about is that uh, presumably with him playing a lot of online poker on WSOP.com that he'll make some back there from their rewards program. And then he's also thinking they're going to give him 25K in free play. No chance, no chance, no chance. A lot of problems with that plan. A person named Amik Makija said back, he'll get rewards, but I see close to zero chance they give him a free stay or anything. I agree. Actually, I, I don't agree. I don't think he'll get rewards either, unless he earns them. You are basically saying you need to pay someone six figures to stay at their property. Why would they want that? Then Patrick Leonard says back, Helmuth is the Aria guy. Landon will be the Bally's guy. He'll be vlogging something to what might end up a huge viral story. Then Dolly Man, who's been around poker for about two decades, said back, I think you're severely overestimating not only Landon's marketability, but also Casino's willingness to make people look like degenerates. In Phil's case, he's already a pretty big name, but I don't know that they would let him have a free hotel room on every night. 
And then even Landon conceded that Patrick's out in the weeds on this one. He said, Patrick is also not from this planet, so I understand why he thinks the way he does. <laughs> That's from Landon himself. Well, I agree with Dolly Man. There's no way Caesars is going to look at this and go, oh, yeah, we want this. We want some 23-year-old guy staying at our property for an entire year and never setting foot off the property. This makes him look like a degenerate gambler. They want the place to look like a fun recreational destination that you go to get away from things, not to live there for a year. They don't want to show young guys tossing away a year of their life living there to where they can't set foot off the property like a prisoner. There's no way they would promote this. This is not something exciting. And it's not like everyone's going to want to run down there and see what uh, he's up to. They could see this online anyway. So why would they ever do this? Dalaman is totally right that this is going to make him look like a degenerate. It's going to make Bally's look like that they are encouraging this sort of destructive behavior. Phil Helmuth is wearing an Aria cap. He isn't these days. He used to. Now he wears that stupid Bitcoin Latinum cap. But when he wore the Aria cap, all he was doing is promoting the Aria. He wasn't saying, I'm going to live with the Aria. I'm not going to set foot off the Aria. I'm going to spend my life with the Aria. No, it's just Aria. Just, hey, I'm Phil Helmuth. I'm a huge poker star, and I like the Aria. So people see it, and, and they see he's wearing an Aria cap, and they think of the Aria. That's, that's all. That's, that's the only thing to that whole partnership. It's nothing about going viral or something weird or unusual. There's no way Bally's would want to go along with this. Grenada Roger, a poster on Poker Fraud Alert, brought up another great point, And I hadn't even thought of this. But there is a law in Nevada that you can only stay for 30 consecutive days as a hotel guest. Otherwise, after the 30 days, the occupant actually becomes a Nevada resident and a resident of that hotel. And not only can't any kind of uh, room tax be charged, which of course only the government would care about, but also they would have to actually evict him through a normal eviction process to get him to leave if he stops paying, whereas at a hotel, you have no such rights. You don't have to be evicted from a hotel. If you stop paying, they can have you ejected immediately. So hotels will sometimes throw people out after 30 days for that reason. This actually happened to Jeff Dime, who's a listener to this show and a poster on the forum. If they don't, then the person staying there can assert rights that they're living there. Now, if it's someone they don't think is likely to do that, they can just let them stay longer. So I'm not saying nobody ever stays more than 30 days. Like, for example, a a whale. Let's say this whale is is staying on property and chunking off a lot of money every day. Well, they're not going to worry, okay, well, what if on day 31 he claims he's a resident and we have to evict him? Okay, well, then they will if necessary, but it's worth it to keep him there because they're making a lot of money off him. But the average person who comes and stays in a hotel, they they will sometimes worry about this and throw you out after 30 days so you don't get those residency rights that they don't want you to have. So that's another problem, that Landon is going to have a hard time getting Bally's to agree to let him stay there for a year and actually become a Bally's resident. So that's something I'm sure nobody thought of. On our forum, they thought about it, and 
That's a good point. So thank you, Grenada Roger. Also, remember, they still don't have any kind of solution for how they're going to get the room cheap. Even if Bally says, okay, fine, stay a year. Even if Bally gives him a little bit of stuff, which I don't think they will. How is he going to get these cheap rooms? Especially weekends are expensive and holidays are expensive. So it's not even just about regular nights there. There's going to be a lot of expensive nights that are really going to add up and could eat up most of that 100K. Remember, if it's averaging $300, he'd actually lose money even if he won the bet. If it averaged $300, he would uh, be spending almost 110K in room charges. So I have a feeling this is not going to happen. I have a feeling that Patrick Leonard is dreaming that this is going to be some sort of a big promotion through Bally's, and then they're going to find out the bad news that, nope, Bally's is not interested. Now, let's put all that aside. Let's ignore now the logistics of this bet really happening, because I have a feeling when they don't get what Patrick Leonard thinks they're going to get, Patrick's going to back out. Remember, this is only an agreement in theory. There's no hard agreement to do this. And Patrick is kind of delusional about the circumstances of the bet that he thinks are going to take place, which won't. But let's just ignore all that and discuss doing this and whether this is something reasonable to do for 100K. Let's even say he got the free rooms. Let's say Bally said, you know what, Landon, we love you. We love your slot ads on Twitter. We love all your ass-kissing to Berkey and his crew. We just love everything about you, Landon. We want you to stay on our property for a year so much that we are going to give you free rooms every night. We're not going to give you any free play or anything, but we will let you stay here for free for 365 days. Enjoy. It's not going to happen, but let's pretend for the moment they said that. And then let's pretend that Patrick Landon said, okay, that's good enough. Fine. Landon, we've got a bet. And Landon says, okay. So would this be a smart bet for Landon to make? Well, first of all, I do believe he could do it. I do believe he could get through this. Because look, this is a lot more pleasant than being in jail, for example. And people get through being in jail for a year. It's not pleasant. I wouldn't want to be in jail for a year. But if you're there, you get through it. And unless someone kills you while you're in jail unless you have some kind of unexpected medical issue, then you live through it, you get out, and you continue. This is a lot better than jail. You get to sit in your room, which is bigger than your jail cell would be, and you get to sit on the internet all day on your computer. You get to grind online poker, which he does anyway. You get to pick from a number of food outlets to eat every day. You'll you'll get sick of them after a while, but you do have a lot more than one choice because you have both uh, Bally's and Paris to choose from. The hardest part is the not going outside thing that uh, he could only go on a balcony. The other problem is there aren't balconies to go on, to my knowledge. Uh, remember, they don't let you on balconies at most properties because they don't want you jumping off and killing yourself. There's a few properties where that's an exception, like uh, Cosmo has a balcony. But that's because these were originally built to be condos, and they decided just to not lock them up and let people go out there. But I don't believe Bally's has any kind of accessible balcony, so I don't know what uh, Patrick Leonard's even talking about. 
But let's even say there was a balcony. If, if all he could do is go out there and hop on one foot for a little bit of time, yeah, I'll get a little fresh air, but that's about it. He's not going to be able to spend much uh, time out there. So really what you're committing yourself to do is spend the time indoors for an entire year. And that gets to be tough to do. Even in jail, they let you go out to the yard for an hour or two a day and spend some time out there. You're, you're not just uh, trapped in your cell 24 hours a day. So this can be difficult on his mental health to be there for 365 days and, and basically never go outside. He can see outside, but he can't go. Now, he might get used to it, and everybody's different. So some people would have no problem with this. Some people barely go outside anyway. There, there are people who just don't go outside at all. There's people who'd be quite happy just being in their house all day and all night, never setting foot outside and everything, everything uh, delivered to them. Some people go outside out of necessity, but they'd be completely fine not doing so. I don't know if Landon's one of them, if he could do that, but that would be the biggest challenge. That's why he would want to go to the pool, is just so he can get some outdoor time. And then at that point, it more becomes, can you just deal with the monotony of every day basically being the same and every place you eat being you know one of several choices every day. And it's just, can you repeat the same thing over and over for 365 days and not go nuts? But I think he believes that the Bally's Paris uh, complex there has enough different options uh, of things to do and places to eat that he can at least make a lot of the days different from one another. But the not going outside thing could be pretty tough. But I think he could probably get through it. Something else you need to think about is that at uh, 23 years old, it's easier to do something like that than when you get older. You become more sensitive to psychological stressors as you age, typically. Now, there are some psychological issues that are worse when you're younger. But I'm talking about stressors from the outside, it tends to be easier to deal with things when you're younger than when you're older. So for a 23-year-old, it may be easier to do something like just live at Bally's every day and never set foot outside than it would be for someone who's 43. In fact, this is some of the reason why young people can do things more easily, like travel around Europe and live in hostels and... Uh, sleep in cars and just, you know, like, like conditions that older people just wouldn't want or would have a very hard time doing younger people can do and they, they can kind of tolerate more. And, and it's even more true for kids, by the way, not very little kids, but like, uh, kids, you know, even ones that aren't even teenagers yet, there's, there's a lot of things they can go through that would be more difficult for adults to go through. So that could be a factor in his favor. In any way you look at it, it sounds pretty bad. It's not impossible, and it's not as challenging as some other prop bets I've read about, but it's very long-running. On one hand, no one day of this is going to be awful. In fact, some of these days might be very similar to how he would spend his day anyway. If he's sitting around on his computer, on social media, and playing online poker, hey, Bally's, he could do the same thing. But if the accumulation of all these days, 365 days straight of this, 
and being unable to go outside, that is what could be very stressful. But the question is, why? Why would he want to do this? Because he's only getting 100K. He's not getting huge sums of money out of this. Like, I would be willing to do this if somebody offered me $100 billion. And I would maybe consider it if I was being offered $1 million. And still I wouldn't do it if I wasn't with my family. I couldn't see them. Like that that would be the big problem. But even like if I was single and didn't have any kids and there's nobody to really miss that I would otherwise be with every day. I I would do it for enough money, but not for a hundred K. Hundred K is not worth it, even if you ignore the expense of staying there. A hundred K is just not that much. Like, wouldn't it be better to just get a regular job and then do what you want the rest of the time? And I know he probably couldn't get a regular job making 100K, but he could get a regular job and make uh, a decent fraction of that, and then he could live his life normally. Like, why why for 100K would you put yourself through this and live that way? That's crazy that he would basically sell off a year of his life like that for 100K. And... It seems pretty unpleasant. Also, this whole thing he's built up with Berkey, where he gets to hang out with that whole group, he can't do that anymore either. They're not going to come to him very often. Maybe they'll come once in a while for the show, but you know, Berkey's got that whole setup there to do the show. He's, they're not going to do very much. They're not going to come see him very much. So that whole new group of friends he has there, he's not going to be able to see them or hang out with them. That's going to be gone for a year. Like any kind of real social interaction he has that's not online will be gone for a year. Now, you might be wondering, what about anything sexual? I don't know his sexuality. I've heard uh, various things said about him. Some people think that Landon is gay. Some people think that he's asexual. Some think that he is uh, straight but a virgin. I guess any of these could be true, but... Let's just say, hypothetically, he's straight. And let's say he's not a virgin. Would he want to be cooped up only in valleys in Paris to where he can't really date any girls? Now, he could order hookers over there, or I guess if he got to like a girl online, that she could come over and hang out with him there. But that also really handicaps your uh, dating life if you want to have that. And I would think at 23, he would. Except for 100K, it seems crazy to me that he would do this. I think he might be overestimating the interest in this, too. The problem here is that there's not going to be that much interest in it beyond the first few days, because every day is the same. So the challenge to him is the longevity of this, but for the average viewer, it's not going to be interesting to watch how is Landon handling this on day 194. It's just not going to be that fun to keep track of. He'll probably make some tweets about how he's feeling, but that's about it. There's nothing exciting to see. This whole thing's kind of stupid. It is interesting to think about how much it would be worth to each individual to do this, even if they could stay for free. How much would they do this for? And for me, it would have to be a lot of money, even if I did not have a girlfriend and child. What is the longest amount of time that I have ever 
spent without setting foot outdoors. And I'm not talking about when I was an infant. I mean, since I was at least a kid old enough to go outdoors on my own. So, yeah, as, as long as I was old enough to open up a door and walk outside. Like even to the backyard. What's the longest amount of time I've ever spent completely indoors? That was five days. Five days in 2015 at Harris Rincon. I did not set foot outside the building, but this was not intentional. I went there to grind a lot of video poker so I could get to seven stars. One of the nights I did radio, but I did not exit the building at any point in those five days. I wasn't trying not to exit the building. Nothing would have happened to me if I did. I just, for whatever reason, did not and didn't realize it until just when I was leaving. And I go, oh, wow, you know what? I haven't been to my car yet, and I haven't even walked outside yet. Wow, that's weird. And I know that when I got outside for the first time in those five days, I thought, wow, this feels nice to be outside. <laughs> like I, I missed it without even knowing I missed it. I missed it, and that's kind of weird I wasn't outside for five days. But that's five days, not 365. So on one hand, I didn't think about it for those five days, but if it had gone much longer, I would have. And I did definitely notice when I got outside how it felt nice to be there after not being outside for five days, which I could have done. Mark Newhouse lived at the Commerce Casino in the late 2000s at the hotel there, uh, like 07, 08, 09, around then. I actually visited him in his room at that point. And I asked him, how are you living here? Because at the time, it was cheaper than it is now. But I think the poker rate then was like 89 bucks a night or something. There was no tax, so that was nice. But it was like 89 bucks a night. And I said, are you really paying that here? Because if you are, you should probably just get an apartment nearby. You can get a nice place for that amount. If you multiply that by 30, you can get a nice place for what you're paying here. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not paying anywhere near that. I said, what are you paying? He wouldn't tell me. And I said, is it a lot lower? He said, yes. I said, how did he do it? He said, I can't tell you, but you know, I have a special deal. He did live at a casino hotel for a long stretch of time, but he was not restricted from leaving, obviously, and he left plenty. He, Mark Newhouse had a lot of friends, so he, he went out all the time. So that really can't be compared. Anyway, this isn't really happening. I'm sure it's not going to be happening. I think this agreement, in theory, is going to run into too many hurdles, and they're not going to do it. But if they do... You know, maybe it'll be moderately interesting. I'm going to lose interest in it real fast. But I don't think it's going to happen. Moving on, we are going to bring back a segment we haven't done in a little while, but has been requested by a number of people. So we're going to do this because this is a very appropriate day to do this particular segment and topic because of current events going on there. It is time for... Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. I bought 10,000 crickets to put in my backyard to make that intro, just to get that 11 seconds of chirping. So I hope you appreciate the expense that I go through for this show. I hope the crickets were okay. I think a lot of them got eaten, but that's the way the world works. 
Anyway, this is Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. Every so often I do a segment on the history of something either in the Mojave Desert or Las Vegas. And this week it's going to be about the Mojave Desert, about the northern Mojave Desert, and it's going to be about Death Valley. I'm surprised it took me this long to do a Death Valley segment. For some reason, when I was thinking about things to talk about on Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history, I always focused either upon Las Vegas itself or something along I-15 between L.A. and Vegas, where it passes through the Mojave Desert. I didn't really think of the part of the Mojave that is not off of I-15, but I was missing some things there, and one of the big things I was missing was Death Valley. Death Valley is located in California, but the closest major city to it is not a California city. The closest major city to Death Valley is Las Vegas. In fact, Death Valley is a decent day trip if you'd like to go there and you have a car. If you're staying in Vegas, it will take over two hours to get there, but it's a lot closer to go to Death Valley from Vegas than it is from L.A. or any other major metro area. In fact, the only closer city to Death Valley than Las Vegas is Pahrump, which is not very big, but it is closer. It's about uh, 70 miles from Pahrump to Death Valley, and it's about 130 from Vegas to Death Valley. So it's a reasonable distance away if you'd like to go visit there, even if you don't want to stay overnight. However, I'm not suggesting you go to Death Valley now or anytime soon because it is way too hot. The summertime is the low season for tourism in Death Valley and for a very good reason. It is the hottest place on Earth in the summer. Not just in the U.S., Earth. Death Valley has the only completely verified 130-degree temperature in the history of the world. There have been some unverified over 130-degree temperatures recorded since they've been recording temperature, but the first absolutely verified 130 degrees actually was in 2020 at Death Valley. There have been, I believe, uh, three other occasions where there was uh, a temperature over 130 in Death Valley, but all of these were in 1913, within a few days of one another. One of them was recorded as 134. However, there's some doubt whether this was accurate, since the equipment being used was not particularly reliable or advanced back then, 109 years ago. But Death Valley will frequently get up to 125 degrees or more on several days during the summer, and it is very common for Death Valley to have highs over 115 degrees and don't expect much relief at night. A lot of times the low in Death Valley is over 90. The temperature today in Death Valley is going to be 114 high and 91 low. There is going to be a relatively cool day on the 10th, which will only be 107 high and an 88 low. But usually you're seeing over 110 for a high in the summer, especially in July. August is a little bit cooler than July, 
But in July, you're going to see a lot over 120 and sometimes over 125. It's a very, very hot place. And it's a place you really just shouldn't bother to visit in the summer. You might say, well, I visited Las Vegas in the summer, so why not Death Valley? I mean, Vegas is very hot. Well, first of all, Vegas is not as hot as Death Valley. In fact, Las Vegas has never had a recorded temperature over 117 degrees. And second, in Vegas, you're mainly doing indoor stuff. You can hang out in the casino. There's a lot of things you can do in Vegas that are not requiring you to be outdoors, whereas Death Valley, the only point to be there is to be outdoors. So it's an outdoorsy place, and it's a place you're not going to want to be outdoors in the summer. But it does attract a fair number of tourists. The tourists who come there during the summer are often people who don't know better. My mom, who grew up on the East Coast, had one of her childhood friends tell her about five years ago that she has a trip planned for Death Valley in August. And my mom said, what? Why would you come in August? And she says, well, you know, it's just a summer trip I'm taking. And my mom said, well, don't you know about the heat? She said, no, I don't know about the heat. And so my mom explained to her what the weather is like there in August. And the woman looked it up and said, oh, my God, I'm not going to travel there in August. I'm going to cancel this trip. So a lot of times people go there. Yeah, since it's in California, they they assume it's going to be like Los Angeles or San Francisco. And then they get the bad news when they arrive. So some people travel there in the summer out of ignorance. And some, I guess, because they just don't mind the heat. I would not go there in the summer. But I have been there a number of times in other seasons. I've been there as late as May, where it happened to be a cold spell in California, in all of California. So it was unusually cool in L.A. I looked up the weather in Death Valley. The high was like 85. I said, okay. That's a good time to go because most people won't have trips booked there because May is like the very end of the uh, season that uh, people would usually go there. Most people assume it's too hot in May, which it usually is. So I said, this is a good time to go, and I got a, a cheaper rate than I normally would. The time people usually visit Death Valley is during the winter or late fall or early spring. Those are all good times to visit. The winter is actually the best. The winter, it actually has a similar weather to Los Angeles. Death Valley has a history that dates back well over 100 years, and I'm going to give you that history, and we're going to talk about some various interesting things in Death Valley. This is a place I recommend you visit as long as it's not summertime. There's a lot of interesting things to see there. At some points, you will feel you are on another planet when you're in Death Valley. So it's a place you should see as long as you go in the right time of year. But it's a place that has some history that a lot of people don't know about. I'll tell you about some of the history of Death Valley during this segment. And we will finish the segment with a current event taking place there right now involving a rare flood they are experiencing. Death Valley originally was used for both gold mining and for the production of borax. They were mining borax and uh, shipping it out of there. And there's a lot of history about uh, the borax stuff especially. But when you go to uh, Death Valley as a tourist, 
there's various sites you can visit, and you'll see one site about uh, about Borax. You'll see one site called Scotty's Castle. You'll wonder what that is. That's kind of in the very uh, northeastern part of the park. So I'll tell you about some of these things. You can decide uh, what you want to go see. There's a lot of uh, interesting geological f- features there. If you go during the spring, especially the spring of a year where there is uh, a lot of rain in uh, that area of California compared to normal. They don't get very much rain. They get very little rain usually. They average about uh, 1.7 inches of rain per year in Death Valley. So very little rain typically over there. That's why this flood right now is so unusual. But surprisingly, they actually get some very nice uh, wildflower outbreaks in the spring if there has been some rain that they get in the uh, earlier portion of the spring or the late winter. So that's a good time to go. But even without the wildflowers, there's a lot of different areas there that you can go see that uh, look different than things you typically will see elsewhere. And there are some rocks that are all kinds of different colors from the minerals in them. I'm not just talking about a reddish color. You can see that near Vegas and in many other places like Utah. But you can go to one portion in Death Valley called a um, Artist Point. Artist something. I'm forgetting the name of it. But uh, you'll, you'll see like rocks with tons of different colors on them. Purple and green and blue and an orange. It'll look like uh, someone actually painted them that way. But these are all natural. Then there's uh, a point called uh, the Devil's Golf Course, which is uh, a lot of like, uh, I forget what it's made of, but like a lot of like crystallized stuff there on the ground that you're walking through, mostly black, but it's this really weird surface. It kind of seems like you're on the moon. There's the most famous place in Death Valley called Badwater. Badwater is the lowest point in the U.S. It's like uh, 280 feet below sea level. All of Death Valley is substantially below sea level, but Badwater is the lowest point. And Badwater is actually the closest point to Las Vegas. So if you just want to drive to Badwater and go back, that is the closest spot. And it's the low point there, and it's a place that actually does fill up with water. It's a dry lake bed, but it actually does fill up with water when there is rain in the area, but then quickly dries up. There's an interesting satellite photo you can find on the internet from 2005 when a lot of uh, rain came down. They actually got six inches in Death Valley that year instead of uh, the usual one point whatever. And uh, they actually got a real lake there that filled up the Badwater Basin. But because of the extreme heat and dryness, it evaporated very quickly. That's the other thing about Death Valley. Not only don't they get a lot of rain, but it also is extremely dry there. There are some days where the humidity is actually around 1%, believe it or not. And many days where the relative humidity is under 10. So it's just a very, very dry place. That's why it annihilated that lake that came there from the unusually heavy rains of 2005. And that all disappeared when it looked like it was going to be there for a while. But this has been very common there. This is not like a climate change related thing. This has been for hundreds of years been observed to have that lake fill up and then quickly disappear. 
that's at bad water. Now, usually when you go to bad water, you're not going to see any or much water at all. You'll see it's got like a white surface to it. And if you take a picture of it, it looks like you're walking on snow, but it's actually salt you're walking on. And you could walk a very long way. Most people don't walk all the way across it because it's pretty big. But what people tend to do is they will come to Badwater and Park and take a picture in front of the sign that says you're at the lowest point in the U.S. of 280 below sea level. And then they will just walk for a while on the dry lake that you're mostly just going to see this uh, white salt all over the place. And then eventually people turn around and go back. There are flood warnings over there because of what I described. So this is not a good place to go if it's uh, raining a lot because you get caught in a flash flood there. That is the lowest point, not just in the area, but in the U.S. So as you can imagine, since water flows downhill, this could be a problem. When I was last there, there was a brief period of heavy rain. So we were going to go to bad water and had to wait until uh, this stopped and everything was okay. But usually the rain doesn't go very long. You just got to make sure you're not there. You got to make sure to leave before the rain starts coming. There's also some higher parts to Death Valley where you can uh, drive up and uh, get a nice view of the whole valley from about uh, 4,500 feet. It's a lot cooler up there and often windy. And in fact, they will sometimes get snow during the winter up there. So you wouldn't think of snow in Death Valley, and it doesn't actually happen on the valley floor, but uh, in that portion that overlooks it, it actually does. So what I would recommend if you visit Death Valley is to go to all the recommended sites, at least all of them that are relatively in the same area. There's, I'll get to Scotty's Castle a little bit later, but that's that's a little bit far away from everything else. But at least between Badwater and a little bit... Uh, northwest of uh, Furnace Creek. I would stop at all the uh, recommended sites. There's, there's a site with sand dunes, which is very interesting. There, You can even slide down the sand dunes if you want. There's a place where there's uh, you're walking in like a little canyon that's that's has some very interesting colors and textures to it. A lot of very interesting and unique and varied geological features in Death Valley. Most people who live in California have been there at some point. There's some who haven't, and same with people who live in Las Vegas. It is not an easy drive to get there from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, It's not super far, but it's also not all that close, and you're on some... You're on one highway, which is really out in the middle of nowhere... So going from Los Angeles to Death Valley, it's um, about 250 to 300 miles, depending upon where you're starting from in L.A. and where you're stopping in Death Valley. It does typically take about four and a half hours to get there. Death Valley had a big uh, borax operation called Harmony Borax Works. And in fact, it was the main reason that they opened Death Valley and the Furnace Creek area, which is where you would stay if you were to stay in Death Valley. That's where the uh, main hotel is. There really is only one major hotel in Death Valley, which was built in 1927. 
It was originally called the Furnace Creek Inn. It's currently called the Oasis at Death Valley. But that is the only decent hotel in the area. There's a few crappy motels surrounding it and one ranch, which is very mediocre. That has the same ownership as the Furnace Creek Inn. But it, it's really just the Furnace Creek Inn slash Oasis at Death Valley and a bunch of crap. But the whole Furnace Creek area opened because of the borax mining. A man named uh, William T. Coleman built the Harmony Borax Works in uh, 1881, and then they were processing ore in uh, late 1883. Once they got to full operation, Harmony Borax Works employed 40 people, and they were producing three tons of borax daily. However, there were some issues there, and that was during the summer, the weather got so hot that the water they used to get the borax to crystallize was not cool enough, and then the borax would not crystallize. So this was a big issue, that during the summer they could not uh, crystallize the borax, and this left them kind of stuck, and there wasn't anything they could do. So finally, uh, Coleman said, forget this, and he moved his workforce to the Amaragosa Borax Plant, which is near Tacopa, California. And that's still in existence, by the way. They still have this plant. It's obviously not the same guy running it because he's long dead. Uh, Tacopa, California is also in the Mojave Desert and is uh, very little known. But it's it's off of the 127. It's between Death Valley and Baker, in case you're wondering where that is. But the, it's not quite as hot over there. So they moved the operation there, and uh, that's where it stayed. Now, how did they get the borax from Death Valley, where nobody lived and nobody really still lives? How did they move that from Death Valley to where people were going to want to purchase it. Well, they used a team of 20 mules to haul the borax out of Death Valley. And this led to a product called a 20 Mule Team. There was a brand called 20 Mule Team that uh, mostly made uh, borax soap. And you can still buy that today. If you Google 20 Mule Team Borax, you'll see you can buy soap and detergent, and uh, that brand still exists, and 20 Mule Team is based upon the 20 actual mules that were being used to take the borax out of the uh, Harmony Borax Works factory and bring it to the railhead near Mojave, which is... uh, 165 miles away. (laughs) So it was not a simple task to take it from Harmony Borax Works in Furnace Creek in Death Valley to Mojave, which is not in Death Valley, but that's where uh, they could get it on the railroad. It would take 10 days for these uh, mules to take it on that journey. And these uh, mule teams only ran until 1889 because, remember, they uh, moved the operations 
out of Death Valley for the production of the Borax, so they, they weren't using these anymore. They still have one of the wagons they were using back in those days, uh, one of those actual wagons. They still have one on display at Furnace Creek Ranch, which is, as I said, that's the kind of crappy ranch you could stay at if you can't get into the inn or don't can't afford the inn. And that is uh, in Death Valley. And they actually have the other one at the existing Harmony Borax Works in Tacopa. So the 20 Mule Team brand is based on the actual 20 Mule Teams that were bringing the Borax out of Death Valley. This uh, guy Coleman didn't uh, end up very well. His, uh, I guess he went broke. I'm not sure exactly why, but he went broke in uh, 1888. And uh, Harmony Borax Works was bought by a, a guy named Francis Marion Smith. As I said, they were no longer getting the Borax from Death Valley. However, if you would like to see the old uh, Harmony Borax Works in Death Valley, you still can. Uh, there's actually a feature in Death Valley that is open to tourists where you can drive around the Borax mining area. And uh, it's really weird, especially if you're by yourself. It's almost creepy. But you can, you can look into these little caves, you could, uh, uh, and you're, you're driving up and down, and uh, it's a very strange thing to see. I was a little worried I'd break down there because it's, it's not the best road. I was just driving a regular car. I mean, I was able to navigate it, but it was, I was like, what if I break down here and it's so hot and nobody even sees me because there's all these hills here. But it's pretty cool. I, I would still recommend doing it. But definitely visit that if it's open. I imagine it will be once this flood passes because you can actually drive around the whole thing and it's not touristy looking at all. It's not like one of these recreations where uh, the whole thing thinks, like feels phony. Like you really feel like you're there. You're part of a borax operation, and it's just like you. <laughs> Death Valley originally got its name because of uh, the death of 13 pioneers during the gold rush. We're going to go back now about uh, 30, 40 years, actually. In uh, 1849, you know, the 49ers, that's what the San Francisco 49ers are named after for the California gold rush. It uh, was named Death Valley by prospectors because of the death of 13 pioneers that perished from one of the early expeditions of wagon trains that went through Death Valley. It was during the summer. It was really, really hot. They were not prepared for that, and 13 people died. So that was uh, during the time they were extracting gold and silver from Death Valley. But there was not a ton of gold and silver there. So really it was all extracted, or at least what could be easily extracted was taken during the 1850s. So that whole uh, gold rush in Death Valley pretty much uh, died out after the 1850s. But that was where it got its name, was from the 13 pioneers who died there during the gold rush. The Furnace Creek Inn was built in uh, 1927. And as I said, that still operates today as the Oasis to Death Valley. I have stayed there. It's a very old hotel. You can tell it's old. Uh, they keep it up well. 
So it's not like dilapidated or anything, but they, at the same time, they kept the structure of the room. So the bathroom looks really, really old and is, and uh, just the whole structure of the room, you could tell is a very old hotel. And so that it's not like one of these things where they put up a new building there or they knock down walls like this. For the most part, it's, it's very similar to how it originally was. They just keep it up from uh, deteriorating. It's not cheap to stay there, except during the off-season. You'd be best off coming during the week to stay at the Furnace Creek uh, area, like the, the, the Oasis. I keep, I keep calling it the Furnace Creek Inn because that's always what it was to me. They only changed the name fairly recently. It's kind of like I call Harris Rincon Harris Rincon instead of Harris Resort Southern California. It seems stupid. So I, I don't even know why they changed the name. Maybe the furnace thing wasn't good uh, publicity because it's so hot there. But it, you know, it's always been known as the Furnace Creek Inn, so I don't know why they change it. The Furnace Creek Inn was built in, in uh, 1927 and still operates today. Death Valley recently had a uh, criminal incident that got some publicity in Las Vegas involving something called a pupfish. The pupfish is an almost extinct fish. It only exists in Death Valley. You can find it most easily in the spring, and there really are not many of them anymore, and it's considered a a very endangered species. I I did see them when I was in uh, Death Valley there in April, we went out to the area where the pupfish is supposed to be. The pupfish can actually stand harsh conditions that would kill other fish. It can stand water up to 116 degrees and cold water down to 32 degrees. Also, if the water is uh, four times saltier than the ocean, it can stand that too. So there's a, a one small area of Death Valley you can see the pupfish during the spring and it's a small silvery colored fish with like a six, seven, eight, or nine vertical dark bands on its side. It's it's only like uh, one point five inches, and the longest one ever seen was only like uh, three inches. But there was a crime that took place in Death Valley by some drunk people that involved the pupfish. Some of these guys got themselves in some hot water. So there's an area called uh, Devil's Hole where the, the pupfish are. In the s- spring, you can see the pupfish in D- Death Valley actually in the streams there. But uh, at other times of the year, they're in this place called uh, Devil's Hole and they protect it so the pupfish uh, don't get killed and uh, that would be the end of the species. In April 2016, a few guys just broke into the area. They rammed their ATV into the fence that was the devil's hole and just busted in there. And they were firing their guns in there. Uh, One of them fired a shotgun at the padlock and then just kept uh, shooting the gun around. Uh, One of them was uh, walking in the water in the area and they accidentally crushed some pupfish eggs and some young pupfish and and killed them. So this uh, really endangered the few pupfish that they were. Like a few of them, like enough survived. It didn't uh, cause the extinction of the species, but this really outraged a lot of people 
who read about this and they tracked down who these guys were because they had security cameras. So they uh, arrested these three guys. One of them uh, was uh, Edgar Reyes, who was uh, 37, uh, Stephen uh, Schwinkendorf, who was 31, and uh, the third guy, uh, Trent Sargent, 28. So they were all arrested and uh, sentenced in 2018. And the I know that uh, Sargent got a year in prison, and the other two uh, got... Uh, a year probation, which was pretty fortunate for them. Sergeant was the one who did the most there. He was the one who actually stepped into the into the water there and killed some pupfish. And also, he was the one who uh, was firing the shotgun. That's why he got the year in prison. So that almost was the end of the pupfish because of this. Now, this wasn't a malicious thing they were doing. They weren't going in there to cause trouble for the pupfish. They didn't even know about the pupfish. They just uh, said, hey, look, a lock gate. And these were like three drunk idiots who decided to ram their way in there and screw around. And they didn't realize what they had done until it was too late. Now, there were signs everywhere about endangered species, watch out, and they just didn't give a crap and busted through. But this, this wasn't like a coordinated attempt to try to make a species extinct, which is probably why they were not uh, prosecuted as harshly as they could have been. But one guy did still get, uh, he still got a, a year in prison for what he did. You can Google this, by the way, if you want to take a look and... Uh, Type in uh, Devil's Hole Pupfish Arrest, and you can read about the whole thing. Uh, these guys expressed regret after they were arrested for this. I do believe they didn't know what they were doing at the time. But at the same time, they knew they were busting into an area that was closed and could endanger a species of fish there and didn't care. So I didn't exactly feel sorry for the guy who got uh, the year in prison. There are rarely more than 500 pupfish total. The population tends to go down to 100-something in the winter and around 400 in the summer. As I said, in the spring, you can actually see them uh, in a stream. I I think what they're doing is mating in that stream in the spring. But I remember when I was there in the spring, that was like the only time you could really see them. They're not all that exciting to look at. It's just that you can go there and see this like very endangered fish that is only there in Death Valley. Now, Scotty's Castle is something you can see if you want to go to the very northern end of the park. If you are at Scotty's Castle and you want to go back to Vegas at that point, rather than driving the slow road all the way down towards Badwater, which is going to take you a long time, you might as well then just go east and then uh, join the 95 and go south to Vegas. It's It's more than the 130 miles I talked about, but by that point, once you're at Scotty's Castle, you're a lot farther from Vegas. But Scotty's Castle has kind of a funny name, and it's actually named after a man named Walter Scott. So his name wasn't Scotty, his last name was Scott, and he was uh, nicknamed Death Valley Scotty. And the funny thing is, Scotty never owned Scotty's Castle. It is a building there. It's, It's a large building that was on a ranch there. Walter Scott pretended he owned it, and he was somewhat of a scammer, but it was actually built by a rich guy named Albert Musi Johnson for him and his wife. But uh, eventually Walter Scott, who got to know him, took residence in there, 
And it seems from the stories about these two men that uh, Albert Johnson kind of realized that he was being scammed, but he actually liked Walter Scott, a.k.a. Scotty, and just kind of went along with everything <laughs> and just uh, and let, even let him stay in this uh, vacation home where Walter Scott remained until his death in uh, 1954. So Walter Scott... Originally, was one of the workers at Harmony Borax Works, and uh, he didn't work at the Death Valley version. He would have been too young. He was born in 1872. But uh, eventually, he convinced several wealthy businessmen that he had a claim to a fabulous gold mine in Death Valley, which, remember, by then there really wasn't much gold to be found there. So he agreed to split all the profits but they had to first give him money to extract the ore. So I'm sure now you see where the scam is, that there really wasn't any or much gold there and that they had to give him upfront money. So, uh, of course, he didn't really get any gold there. I don't know if, how much he tried. I, I think he tried a little bit, but it was it was a fail. I, I think he knew from the start that there wasn't much to be gotten there. So pretty soon when no gold was being uh, extracted from Death Valley, these businessmen stopped giving him money. And uh, he was, uh, he still had taken enough of their money to where he started uh, turning up at the nicest hotels and saloons in surrounding areas in California and Nevada. And he was known for his, quote, legendary spending sprees. So you see where that uh, investment money for the gold mining really went for him to stay in nice hotels and saloons and uh, just spend, spend, spend. So pretty much everybody abandoned him except for this Albert Musi Johnson. Now, Johnson was also one of the investors in this stupid mine, but uh, he kept giving stories to Johnson why this wasn't producing any gold. So finally, Albert Johnson said, you know what, I I'd like to come see this mine that I've been paying for. So he came down to take a look, and uh, Scotty thought, oh, crap. Uh, once he sees what's going on here, he's going to stop giving me any money. This is my last investor. So what he did was uh, he said the only way to get to this mine is is on horseback. And uh, he figured that this was going to be such a grueling trip that uh, Albert Johnson, who already had some health issues, was not going to want to even get to the mine. It was going to give up. However, somehow Albert Johnson loved Death Valley. And so not only did they get to this mine or where the mine was supposed to be, but uh, he actually stayed a month and somehow his health got better as he was there in Death Valley. I don't know if it was the dry air or what, but somehow he uh, his health improved and he really enjoyed it there. Now, the fine thing was, through all of this, he never ended up seeing the mine. I don't know what stories that uh, Scotty was giving him, but he never ended up seeing this mine that's supposed to be running that probably didn't exist. And historians think that Albert Johnson knew he was being scammed, but just kind of thought that Walter Scott was just kind of a charming scammer and almost like he had a friendship with him and didn't want to ruin the whole illusion. So he just uh, 
never demanded to see the mine. He just he didn't mind just hanging out in the area for a month, and he was getting to feel better, and, and he, he just loved Death Valley. So he said, you know what? I am going to build a vacation home so me and my wife can come back here whenever we like. I'm going to build a very nice vacation home. So that is what Scotty's Castle is. It's a ranch and uh, large home that Albert Johnson built for him and his wife. That's what Scotty's Castle is. And why is it called Scotty's Castle? Well, remember, this is just a vacation home. Albert Johnson wasn't going to live there. So Scotty asked him if he could live there in the castle when Albert wasn't there. And Albert said, sure. In fact, he had an agreement that uh, no matter what, that Walter Scott could live in the castle until he died. So Walter Scott died in 1954. This was after Johnson had died. I don't know exactly when Johnson died, but it was well before 1954. And then after that, Scotty's Castle became part of the National Park. So you can visit that on the northern end of the park. That's the story behind Scotty's Castle. The last thing I want to talk about with Death Valley is the moving rocks. You may have heard about this mystery that in this remote part of Death Valley, which is very hard to get to, unless you have a high clearance vehicle that's also four wheel drive, you can't even get to it because it's just a very, very difficult road with, with, huge, with huge bumps and holes in it. If you can get there, you will see these stones, not really all that big, you know, fairly small stones. They're not tiny pebbles, but you know, fairly small stones you could easily pick up if you wanted that have a trail behind them on the dirt floor, almost as if they were propelling themselves across the valley floor. Now, these stones are big enough to where it looks like they probably wouldn't blow. And if they did blow, why would there be this trail? Why wouldn't they uh, just be tumbling or something? It, It doesn't look like something that's being blown by the wind. It really looks like these stones are dragging themselves down. And... You can Google this if you want to see a picture of it. You can Google the racetrack Death Valley, and you'll see these stones. I've never been there to the racetrack. It's just I don't have the type of vehicle I can get there. And by the way, there's no cell phone coverage, so if you break down, you're screwed unless someone sees you. Uh, Even with the right type of vehicle, it's about three and a half hours each way to get to these. So this is a very hard thing to get to. You have to be very dedicated to see these rocks if you really want to do it. But anyway, people do go there and they've tried to figure out for years and years, how is this happening? How are these stones moving themselves across the valley? And there's different stones that do this each year. Some even thought maybe it's pranksters that are coming to do this, that people are are just doing this when nobody's looking. And then this is just going on every year and somehow people are getting away with it without it ever being known who's doing it. So there are a lot of different theories about how these rocks are moving themselves across the valley like this with this trail behind them. There is one research project that suggested that it was a rare combination of rain and wind that causes them to move. It was thought that if it rains 
half an inch and that uh, the wind of 50 miles per hour or more could blow them across the mud and then the whole thing would dry and it would leave that trail behind them. That, that was the working theory at the time. But it looks like that theory was incorrect because there is some research that was done by a team led by the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego and a paleobiologist named Richard Norris actually had some first-hand observations of the stones. Now, these stones don't uh, move very often. Sometimes some will sit for 10 or more years before moving. So even though there are new ones that move, uh, it, it's very hard to even track these stones. It's not even as simple as just uh, putting GPS devices on and, and tracking them. Some, some of them just don't move. You can't even predict ones or which ones are going to move. So they were uh, deciding that they're, they're going to put uh, a lot of GPS units on a bunch of rocks over there and see what happens. And then they're going to wait to see what happens. And they found that these rocks moving had to be a combination of events. They had to be when the area fills with water. And then they also found that this only would happen during the winter. That they weren't moving in the summer or the spring or the fall. This is only in the winter. So what they found from their research was when they happened to actually be there. And uh, on December 21st, 2013, they were there and started hearing popping and cracking sounds coming from all over the surface. And they figured out what it is. That what would happen was if there was rain in the area and then water would fill up in the valley, that it was cold enough on some nights in December for a very thin sheet of ice to form on the pond surface. And that what would happen was that with light winds that would occur, the rocks would be traveling on ice that was too thin to uh, lift them off of the, of the ground there. So they just kind of drift on the ground on this thin sheet of ice. Because if it was a thick sheet of ice and it moved, you wouldn't see this trail. You might see it, uh, you, I guess you could possibly see from the whole ice sheet moving, but you, you wouldn't see a trail behind the rock. But this was a, th- a sheet that was so thin where it wouldn't lift the rocks, but it was enough to move them. So that's the answer. Is It's a very, very thin sheet of ice that forms under them after it would fill up with water. And then light winds would move them kind of slowly across the ground, and then they would uh, drag with that streak behind them as if they're moving themselves. So that's the actual answer about these weird rocks that look like that they have just been propelling themselves across the valley floor. And the reason that some of them just don't move very much or at all for many years is because it depends where the ice forms. And if the ice doesn't form to where 
light winds can move this sheet of ice below them, then they just don't move. They just sit in the same spot. So that's all I have for you about Death Valley. The gas is very expensive there. You think gas is expensive where you live. I mean, you should go to Death Valley. In fact, if you've seen pictures of a gas station that's charging $9 something per gallon, that's a Death Valley. That is known to be the most expensive gas in the country because of its remoteness. It's hard to get the gasoline over there, so they charge a fortune, and you have no other option. If you're out of gas there, then you have to buy it. Now, since I've been to Death Valley a number of times, you may wonder, have I ever bought that super expensive gas, which even when gas is cheaper, it's always a few bucks per gallon more than it is elsewhere in California. Well, the answer, believe it or not, is yes. I have been stuck buying gas at that station. Happened one time when I forgot to fill up before I got there. So here I was in Death Valley, and I knew I needed to drive around there. So then I calculated the amount I'll need, and I bought the absolute minimum at those inflated rates, which, strangely enough, were about equal to what normally is charged in California now. So I bought the minimum amount of gas that I could get away with there. And then I was sorry. Why? Because I went up to look at uh, Scotty's castle and found out the bad news it was closed and then I said okay well whatever I guess I won't see Scotty's castle but what I will do is I will continue along that road and I will get to the 95 and I will drive to Vegas well I was getting pretty low on gas but nothing to worry about right I knew there was no gas right there at Scotty's castle but I had enough to make it to the 95 I thought for sure And once I'm on the 95, I I should be able to find plenty of gas stations, so I thought. Wrong. What happened was, first of all, my gas was going down faster than I expected. And uh, second, that road that was between Scotty's Castle and the 95, there was nobody on it at that time of night. It was only like 9 p.m. or something, but it was like nobody there. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody. Like it was just completely abandoned. It It was only me, nobody in either direction. So I had my family with me. I had Benjamin and his mom with me. And had we run out of gas, we would have just been stuck there. There's no cell reception. And there was no gas station. And there was nobody passing by. So we would have just literally been stuck there. It wasn't hot. It wasn't the summertime. But we would have been stuck. Well, I made it to the 95, so that was at least a little good news because I knew if I ran out of gas on the 95, I would eventually have Nevada Highway Patrol going by me and they would uh, be able to help me. However, I still didn't have uh, cell reception at that area of the 95. And furthermore, my gas was super low. But I figured, you know, I'll just keep driving south in the 95. I'll eventually get to a gas station. Well, no, I I was not getting to any gas station. I was surprised how long I was driving on the 95. And nothing, 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 nothing. I just was not finding a single place to stop and get gas. And I was really thinking I was going to run out. And I was not happy. And I I thought I was going to end up on the side of the road of the 95 until someone was able to uh, find me and come help me. However, I was able to stretch the whole thing long enough 
to get to Beatty, B-A-T-T-Y, which the first thing I saw in Beatty was a uh, a whorehouse, a legalized whorehouse. I passed by that first. And at first I thought that was going to have a gas station. <laughs> like I thought that was a gas station. Then I saw what it was. I'm like, oh, no, that that's the wrong kind of fill-up. That is the wrong kind of fill-up. But I drove a little bit further in Beatty. I, I knew once I got to Beatty, I'd find a gas station. Sure enough, uh, right after that was a gas station. But it was pretty far. And had I known I had to go to Beatty, I would have been sure I couldn't make it. I was, I was shocked that my gas lasted that long. To tell you how long it is, that was about 20-something miles to get to the 95. And then to get to Beatty from there was another, like, 42 so it was over 60 miles I had to go with very little gas. And the whole time I thought I'm going to run out. <laughs> so, barely made it to Beatty and barely made it past the whorehouse and got the gas. And it was a tremendous feeling of relief once I got the gas there. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this segment of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. But wait, we're not done here. Because there's a current event going on at Death Valley that you should know about. And that is Death Valley had a tremendous flood two days ago and people got stuck there. Death Valley received 1.7 inches of rain, which is about the usual total they get for the entire year. They got this in one day. And massive flooding occurred there to where roads were destroyed and people could not leave. Now, some people with vehicles that uh, were four-wheel drive and and were used to being able to drive on uh, harsh roads were able to get out of there, even though they were told not to leave. But everybody else with regular passenger cars could not get out. And there was just major flash flooding there. The former Furnace Creek Inn, now the Oasis of Death Valley, they had their parking lot pretty much destroyed by this. And in fact, the cars in the lot were buried in rocks, mud, and other debris to where they were just absolutely stuck. In fact, some of the mud actually picked up some of these cars and ran them into each other. One person who did get out and drove against recommendation still took six hours to get out of the area. I don't just mean like back to a place like Vegas. I mean, just out of the area took six hours person named John Serlin. You can see all his videos and his pictures. Uh, his Twitter is Serlin John. That's S-I-R-L-I-N-J-O-H-N. He said about six hours of this, but we made it out safely with no vehicle damage. Helped as many people as possible along the way. Eventually, Caltrans opened up uh, one of the routes to the junction of Route 190, which uh, connects the 395 to... Uh, 190, which goes into Death Valley. But they said that uh, 190 itself remains closed from Death Valley up into the State Route 136. That doesn't help people very much. And they showed a picture of just mud being across the whole road. I saw other pictures of the floodwaters absolutely destroying or completely burying parts of the road. And I see a part of 190 that uh, is blocked by trees and boulders, debris, and massive mud. 
I believe finally after uh, tireless work by emergency crews that people got out of Death Valley just like a few hours ago, but they're still not all out. People are still trying to get out of the place there. So that was uh, not what they expected of their Death Valley vacation. I'm sure they thought that they were going to deal with heat, but nothing else. But instead, they're dealing with massive flooding. The flooding hit other areas of the Mojave Desert. And in fact, uh, a lot of the famous and semi-famous roads off of the 15 that you'll encounter driving between L.A. and Vegas are currently closed. This includes Kelbaker Road, Seema Road, and yes, Zizix Road, which we once did a topic about on this show during Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. So this can happen in the desert where they just get these massive storms coming in and flooding the place. The reason it flooded so badly from just 1.7 inches of rain, like we, we've had more than that here where I live and we didn't have any flooding like this, but the reason 1.7 inches of rain in a day flooded like this is because Death Valley is a valley and the surrounding hills and mountains cause a big runoff. So everything runs down there and lots of water shows up. So that is the reason for all of the floods. You might have heard of the Las Vegas floods that happened at the end of July where the roof of the Circa had water running through and the sportsbook got flooded and uh, several other hotels had either their parking lots flooded or water going through the roof and uh, landing inside the casino floor. But that's more common. Uh, Vegas does get some pretty heavy rain every so often in the summer. And sometimes the rain is so heavy it will punch through those roofs and causes big leaks. I tweeted about one that happened in the Rio. I think it was in 2016. And they actually had to stop the tournament I was playing and have a premature dinner break because water was running through the roof into one of the tournament rooms. It wasn't the Amazon room. It was one of the other. I think the Brasilia room. And one of the tables they actually had to close because water was raining down directly onto one of those tables. They pushed the table a little bit to the side and had it going into a trash can. But I took a picture of it and tweeted, this is a new one. Rain in the World Series of Poker? And that tweet actually got uh, shared around a lot. And in fact, when the Rio closed recently, it was being shared again by some news reports showing that as part of the Rio World Series history. Okay, so let's move on. I do want to make an announcement. A listener texted me that we're going to have another Robert Gray Memorial Tournament free roll on this site, and it's going to be next week. If you remember, Robert Gray was a poker player who's known as A-Game Rob. He was play, He played in... Uh, cash games a lot in Vegas and uh, especially enjoyed limit poker and he has some friends that listen to this show Robert Gray unfortunately passed away pretty suddenly two years ago of COVID and he told friends he had COVID then 
he said that he really wasn't feeling good on one of those days, and then he just stopped answering texts, and uh, he abruptly passed away that day. And he was only 56 years old, and there wasn't really any known condition he had that would have caused this. So it's still not exactly clear how COVID killed him so quickly. That was an atypical way of dying from COVID. Usually it takes a matter of weeks where you deteriorate. But uh, there are some people who die abruptly from it. In fact, I actually knew someone personally. This was an acquaintance of mine. It wasn't a close friend or anything, but it was an acquaintance of mine in Vegas, not a, not a poker player. But uh, he died in his mid-40s of COVID in 2020. This person had uh, sleep apnea, so that may have had something to do with it. But still, this was someone who died literally overnight when he had COVID. So it, it can happen, or at least back then it could. Omicron is different. It really isn't that much danger to middle-aged people. But in uh, 2020, COVID was, and you didn't know if you were going to be one of the unlucky ones. And in addition to Robert Gray and this other guy I just told you about with the sleep apnea, I actually knew two other people, who one was 50 and one was 55, who died of COVID in 2020 that didn't have any kind of major pre-existing condition. So it happened. And it is good that this present version of COVID isn't really doing this to middle-aged people anymore. But back then it was, and there were no vaccines back then. So that was uh, very unfortunate what happened to uh, Robert Gray, but uh, he's been honored by his friends uh, who have been donating to the... uh, Robert Gray Memorial Free Roll. We had one uh, on the first anniversary or near the first anniversary of his death. So the second one will be next week. And I uh, was texted that there will be a guaranteed $77 first prize and uh, probably a bigger prize pool than that. So if you want to donate, uh, you can text me 775-372-8355. But this will be taking place for sure next week. So... uh, if you want to play a free roll, that's more than our usual 50 bucks. I definitely play next week. And uh, you can give a thought to uh, Robert Gray, who I'm sure expected to live a lot longer than 56 years old. And unfortunately, uh, COVID took him away from the poker community. And he was, he was a well-liked guy in poker. And I, I'd played with him before myself. So, okay, moving on here. I want to talk about another Bryn Kenny thing. Because uh, this is more funny than anything else, but I got to mention it because, yeah, this is Poker Fraud Alert. And yeah, if a poker site is going to start up and if Bryn Kenny is going to be one of the major people involved, well, we definitely have to talk about that here. So here is what's happening with Bryn Kenny and his poker site. A site called Four Poker, that's number four and poker. Four Poker is a new poker site. It's not open yet, but it is looking to compete with major non-US playing sites like Poker Stars and GG Poker. Now, they're looking to compete with them. I'm not saying they're going to be much competition, but that's the plan that they're claiming they have. Bryn Kenny, fresh off of pretty major cheating allegations from this spring, is both an investor and prominent site pro on 4Poker. 
and they're making no secrets of that. Now, the CEO of Four Poker is someone that I haven't heard of before. His name is Heath Cram. And they did an interview with him on Poker.org. A guy named Simon Young interviewed Heath Cram. His last name is spelled C-R-A-M. Heath Cram was once an employee of Poker Stars. I'm not sure what he did at Poker Stars, but he was once a Poker Stars employee. And now he is starting his own site with Bryn Kenny. So he was asked by Simon Young in this interview that was published on Poker.org, after so many years at Poker Stars, many will be surprised at this move. What brings you to four poker? He said, the simple answer is I love startups. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but ultimately it was the passion and energy of the founder and team. I was aware of this project under a different name as several experienced ex-PokerStars colleagues found themselves there, but I knew little of the vision until I did a bit of consulting with the company. PokerStars was incredibly good to me for many years, so poker remains close to my heart. This is why I'm so excited to st- to, that a poker startup even exists, and as a bonus, much of the original PokerStars DNA I now see it for poker. So he's claiming it's like him and a bunch of other PokerStars people. So I'm going to skip some of these other things in the interview. You can go read it if you want at poker.org, but I'm going to get to the more interesting stuff having to do with Bryn Kenny. As, to be honest, we wouldn't be talking about some wannabe major poker site that hasn't even started yet if it wasn't for this Bryn Kenny stuff. He was asked, are you able to divulge any of the vision or poker or for poker's mission? And he said, it's a little too early. However, the team has put a year's work into this long before me and is now nearing a launch, which I would suggest at minimum can be disruptive and at best turn into a beast and leader in many markets over the coming years. Poker for players by players. And if it's good for poker, we'll do it. That probably sums up enough to give a sense of our approach. Okay, well, that's a little bit corny. Also kind of reminds me of what Phil Galfon thought he was doing with Run at Once Poker, and you saw what happened with that. But let's get to the Bryn Kenny thing, because that is the most interesting part of this. Heath Cram was asked, it's not an industry secret that one of Four Poker's founders is the world's leading prize money earner, Bryn Kenny. What is your stance on the recent allegations against him? So then this is what Heath Cram said back. By chance, this was actually brought to my attention by a former Stars colleague when I was holidaying in Australia, and I had spoken to Bryn by this stage, unbeknownst to them. I was shocked, but also open-minded at this point taking it for what it was, which was a social media outburst by a character of pretty questionable credibility to my eye. Come on. I'm not naive to the industries I've worked in and players that play in horse racing, sports betting, or poker. The truth is, as always, I'll make my own judgment of people. And in the past few weeks, I have had the pleasure of not only spending time with Bryn and other investors in person, but meeting his family and loved ones. I frankly haven't spent time with someone with as much passion for poker and people since working for PokerStars founding owners. Okay, well, it doesn't matter about PokerStars founding owners. That has nothing to do with this. It's not like the Scheinbergs are involved with this project. But back to Bryn, he said that this was a social media outburst by a character of pretty questionable credibility. Okay, now I will admit 
that Martin Zamani didn't come off as a really credible guy. First of all, he admitted he was doing the cheating right along with the rest of them. He's basically saying, hey, I cheated too, but I'm coming forward to admit it and these guys aren't. So yeah, Bryn Kenny is not the most, or, or Martin Zamani is not the most honest guy by his own admission. And he also admitted he wasn't doing this because he felt guilty, that he had his own reasons for doing this, but he wasn't going to say what they were, which almost surely was because he had some kind of falling out with Bryn and this is to get him back. But that doesn't mean he's not telling the truth. And really, Bryn did not present any kind of counter evidence to show that Martin Zamani was lying. And in fact, a lot of the stories Bryn verified in some way, like the frog poison story, he basically verified that that occurred. He said some of the details were wrong, but it's not like he said, oh, this is completely made up. None of this is true. Martin Zamani is just completely fabricating everything. He was admitting to some of these things, but in a different and lighter form. So it's not even like that he was saying that Zamani is just completely out in left field and manufacturing lies about him. It was like, well, you know, here's kind of how it was, and it's a little different than Martin was saying, and, and here's why I was innocent. But it, none of it, like, totally debunked any detail of what Martin Zamani said. So I'm not saying Martin Zamani was 100% correct in everything that he said out there. It's possible he exaggerated about some things or threw in some extra details to make the whole thing look worse. But uh, from what I could see, it looked fairly credible. Most of it looked fairly credible. So I believe Martin Zamani's account of what was going on there a lot more than Bryn Kenny. And you can go back and listen to my analysis. We did like a two and a half hour segment of this on the show. I'm not going to rehash all that. But just because Martin Zamani is not the best guy doesn't mean you can't believe him because he brought a lot of really detailed stories to the table. And then even Bryn's denial made it clear that a lot of these had something to them. So speaking of his denial, then Heath Cram was asked, are you supportive of Bryn's denial of the most serious allegations related to cheating? So then Heath Cram said back, Bryn doesn't need my opinion of this, nor should anyone else in social media, or worse yet, business circles playing judge during an executioner with such an allegation. With me having a long background in customer operations, even without knowing the team or people there, I would firmly put the trust back in the hands of the likes of GG Poker. Should Bryn or anyone else be implicated, it should be from an investigation by them in reaction to this as a complaint. So basically what he's saying is since GG Poker hasn't come out and said Bryn Kenny's a cheater, uh, I'm just not going to believe it, which is stupid because a lot of times these poker sites just don't want to do a whole lot of investigation especially way after the fact. Then he went on to say, Bryn has opted to treat this for what it is, a quite desperate outburst from a former disgruntled associate. He says he staked hundreds of players over the years and lost with many of them, but is losing more money with this one, I think, unfairly. So what he's trying to say here is that uh, this has hurt Bryn's reputation unfairly, and this is really causing him to lose a lot of money, and that this guy's just a disgruntled associate. Well, I agree that Martin Simani was a disgruntled associate. He even admitted that himself. But that doesn't mean what he's saying is false. That just means that he's not bringing this to us out of the goodness of his heart. He's bringing it because he hates Bryn and wants him to suffer. So he's revealing secrets that Bryn didn't want us to know. So that doesn't mean it's a lie. It does force us to look at 
the source and say, okay, we can't just believe everything the guy's saying automatically, but we have to look at the whole thing from both ends on an open mind. And that's what I've done here. And and uh, when I've done it, I've really come down, and so has most of the poker community, believing most of what Martin Zamani had to say. And it's not because Martin seems like a wonderful guy. In fact, you'll find few people in poker who think Martin Zamani is a wonderful and honest guy. But that does not mean that he's lying here. He finished by saying, most important to me in my business relationship with Bryn is that he is voting with his feet. Since my very first discussion with him, he has been speaking about launching a site that takes integrity and responsibility to the next level. The public can be the judge, in, the judge of this soon enough. <laughs> Come on. Bryn has been speaking about launching a site that takes integrity and responsibility to the next level. <laughs> Do you think anyone at this point thinks of Bryn Kenny and says, well, there is a guy with integrity and responsibility. This is a guy I trust. No, no one's thinking that right now. So then he was asked, there is an increased focus on integrity. GG Poker has just lost, launched the Players Integrity Committee. What do you think about that? And will Ford Poker do the same or anything else to address game integrity? So here he says, big fan. I know Bryn has long and good relationships with the high-stakes poker community and people like Jason Kuhn, so he's in a good position as one of our ambassadors to help, as ironic as some people see that. Yeah, I, I would see that as ironic. For starters, we need to do our bit by hiring the best of the field who share our passion for poker. There are already people in the four poker team that have been around before the world's responsible gaming or game integrity even existed. In fact, I was part of the management team who came up with game integrity around 2010 or 2011 as a way to distinguish from fraud security, a function what's known as game security. In my opinion, a few of the very best people in the entire field are at four poker. Well, that's a big problem then if you're involving Bryn, right? We will certainly be responsible in collaboration with our fellow operators where it benefits. I'm a big fan of working close to, not against, our competition on the subjects that matter most and look forward to working together to ensure the online poker sector remains a fun and safe environment for players. We all have a shared interest in a clean game. As I said, if it's good for poker, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that's why Bryn Kenny's involved. Makes loads of sense. But why is he involved? Let, let's put all the laughter aside here. Why is Bryn Kenny involved? They could have picked many other poker pros to be a face of the site. Why take a guy who is one of the most accused cheaters in 2022? When you think of 2022 accused cheaters, there will be only one of three names that would come to mind. It's... Uh, Ali Imstravik, Jake Schindler, and Bryn Kenny. I mean, yes, there's accomplices and others that are associated with that, and then there's others who are involved in more minor scandals, but those are the three big ones that come to mind immediately for anyone who's been following. So why would they start a site around one of these three, and arguably the biggest one of the three? Why? What would be the benefit? Well, I think you know the benefit. The benefit is funding. Remember, these sites don't build themselves. These sites don't fund themselves. There needs to be money to get this all going. 
So even though this Heath Cram guy has experience from Poker Stars and he has other supposedly good Poker Stars employees that don't work there anymore and are now helping him start for poker. I guess he joined for poker a bit later. I guess he wasn't one of the original founders, but he's the CEO at the moment, this cram guy, and he's now working with other ex poker stars employees and keeps talking about how great they are, but that does not mean they have money. That just means they're good employees, but you still need money. You can have the best employees ever. And if you don't have the money to build the site, then it's going to be useless. Now who does have money? Oh, Bryn Kenny has money, right? I believe he has plenty of money. And does Bryn Kenny want to start a poker site? Well, yes, he does. How do I know that? Well, April 23rd, 2022, during this whole brouhaha on Twitter about Bryn Kenny, there was a tweet that people paid attention to at the time but have forgotten about for the most part by now. And this was from Lauren Roberts, the one who supposedly lost uh, about $2 million dollars in these high-stakes games that Bryn would get going on GG Poker, and she just kept giving him money to keep loading chips on there. So she really wouldn't answer questions to people. She kind of just made statements and then didn't want to answer any anything to anyone. I tried to invite her on the show. She wouldn't come, but here's something interesting she said on April 23rd. Remember, there was no way to get money in and out of GG. It all went through Bryn, paid in cash, crypto, or chips, referring to live poker chips. When he and GG fell out, he decided to develop his own poker site and did a capital raise for it, which is another potential shitstorm. Hmm. When he and GG fell out, he decided to develop his own poker site and did a capital raise for it, which is another potential shitstorm. So... She's saying that as soon as GG Poker booted him for whatever issues they had with him, because he was this weird affiliate who had a lot of power, who was able to just drop money in people's accounts there, and that they'd do it through him in cash, that once that all ended and he was no longer an affiliate there, that he was saying he's going to develop his own site and raise money for it, according to her. And this is talking about a story that had previously occurred. This was not something that was happening in April of 2022. This was happening, I forget the exact timeline, but this this was a little while back. So it would have made sense that this site he was developing and raising money for was for poker. So to me, this kind of looks like Bryn really was trying to develop his own poker site. And he brought people on board that he thought could be good at helping him because there's a lot that needs to be done. It looks like they're going to be building the software from the ground up. It looks like they are just developing this whole thing from scratch. So they need a lot of different people who have expertise that Bryn does not have. And this looks like it's been in the works for a while. Even this Heath Cram guy says they've been at it for a year. I I think a year before he even got there. So probably more than a year. So this all fits the timeline. So to me, it looks like this is Bryn's site. It looks like Bryn is funding the whole thing and probably brought others aboard for a piece of the site or something along those lines, maybe where he doesn't have to pay them, but they'll have a certain piece of ownership in building the whole thing. I'm just guessing at all this. But what looks like is the case here is that this whole thing is being funded 
with either his money or money that he helped raise from others. So that is why he is an ambassador of the site. And they admit he's an investor. It's not even like that is a secret. That part is something that they are admitting is true, that he's a, quote, investor. But I think he's more than an investor. I think this is his site that he raised money for, both his own money and other people's money. And like this Heath Cram guy is just an employee. He's CEO, but he's just an employee. That's what it looks like to me. I don't have verification of this, but this is what it looks like to me. So they can't just fire him. No matter what comes out about Bryn, they can't say, oh, Bryn, you're bad for the brand, you're out. No, it's probably his site. So, of course, they have to defend him. Of course, they have to trash Martin Zamani and say he's unreliable and it's just uh, a guy making noise on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. I mean, what else are they going to say? The best they can do is attack the accuser because the accuser is not exactly pure. This is not a guy with a, a pristine life, Martin Zamani. So that's the best they can do here. Rather than defend Brynn, they can attack the guy who is calling out Brynn and say, hey, look at this guy. This guy's a piece of shit, so who's going to believe him? That's what they're trying to say. And that's really all they can say. They, they don't want to debate this on facts because if they do, Brynn's going to look very bad. So I think what Heath said back is actually pretty smart because he, he can't say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I think Brynn was probably cheating, but let's forget about that. Like He can't say things like that. He's got to find some way to explain why he's still keeping Bryn on there. And they probably don't even want to say at this point that this is Bryn's site. Because if you hear Bryn actually owns a big portion of the site, and this is really his site, are you going to want to play there? Probably not. But if you think he's just like an ambassador and someone who invested, well, you may not be thrilled about that, but that's not the same as thinking it's his site. But it probably is his site. So with that in mind, I have some suggestions here. I have some suggestions because let's face it here. Bryn Kenny is not going to wash the stink off of himself, at least not anytime soon. So I'm afraid his reputation is irreparably damaged by the stuff that Martin Zamani came out with. True or not, it has probably damaged him permanently. Let's face it. I think there's a lot of truth to what was said, but... Even if there isn't truth to what was said, people believe it, and I don't think anyone's mind is going to change. So his rep is damaged, and people aren't going to really trust a site that is run by someone who is accused of running stables full of multi-accounters and ghosters. So rather than trying to just turn this back around on Martin Zamani and claim he's just unreliable... Rather than go that route, which no one is going to really buy, I think what Bryn Kenny should do is lean into the whole controversy for this new four poker site. So they should build around this, and then maybe this can work out. For example, let people multi-account by policy. Instead of making a rule against multi-accounting, actually make it where you're allowed to multi-account and make everyone aware of that. In fact, I used to play on a site where you could multi-account. The CryptoLogic Network, which I played on during the 2000s, and I'm talking about uh, middle and late 2000s, not just early 2000s, they actually allowed you to multi-account. You were not allowed to sit at the same table with yourself, but you could operate several different accounts on there at the same time. 
as long as you didn't sit with yourself or play in the same tournament with yourself, this was allowed. And I actually did it because it was allowed. In fact, if you didn't do it, you were at a disadvantage because people would learn your play style and how to counter you. And they would switch names. They would jump around a different na- bunch of different names. You didn't know who they were. If you didn't do that yourself, you were at a disadvantage. And it was allowed there by the rules. So I did it too. So they could do the same thing here. Multi-accounting is only bad if it's against the rules and people do it anyway. If it is within the rules and everybody can multi-account, then multi-accounting is fine. So let people multi-account by policy. I mean, if, if there's ever a site that should allow this, it would be site. Then here's a, a fun gimmick they could have that would actually save players money and get people to want to play there. You know that whole frog poison controversy where Martin Zamani said that in order to be part of Bryn's stable, you had to go visit a shaman and have her inject frog poison into a wound on your arm and get it directly into your bloodstream and make you hallucinate. And you know, people laughed at that whole thing, but I think he should lean into this whole frog poison stuff. They should have a feature on 4Poker. And remember, they're building this themselves so they can put whatever features they want. They should have a feature where you can inject virtual frog poison into your own avatar. And whenever you do that, you can get 15 minutes of rake-free play once per day. (laughs) No, don't laugh. I mean, it's cool. Think about it. Once per day, once every 24 hours, you can inject frog poison and you can watch the frog poison go into your avatar. And then any pot you win, you won't pay rake for 15 minutes. So the effects of the frog poison will last 15 minutes and you won't pay rake. So look at that. It not only leans into the whole frog poison thing, which people are very much identifying with Bryn these days, but it's a little promotion which not only will attract players because they get 15 minutes of rake-free play, but it also makes frog poison look like a positive thing. So you inject the frog poison and then you pay no rake for 15 minutes. So people start to get in their mind that frog poison isn't something you laugh at. Instead, frog poison is something good. It does something good for you. You get 15 minutes of rake-free play, and then eventually that'll become normal. You just think of frog poison into your body as something good. So he'll normalize that. It's a great idea. Okay, next. You should be able to choose avatars that are associated with major figures in this scandal. So you should be able to choose an avatar to where you are Bryn Kenny, or you are Martin Zamani, or you are Cocksucker Mizikowski, or you are that Surge guy. I forget his last name. Like like anyone who was mentioned that was involved with this whole thing, you could even be um, Mark Herm. Any Anyone involved in this whole thing, you can pick the avatar of your favorite Bryn Kenny accused multi-accounter or ghoster, and you can play as them. But wait, there's more. You should also be able to ghost on tournaments. So there should be special ghosting tournaments, not all the tournaments, but certain ghosting tournaments where at any point you are allowed to give your password to a friend who can log in and play as you. So they can be special ghost tournaments. It can be like the the Saturday $210 ghosty. And that means at any point, anyone can take over your account. And it's, again, within the rules. And then I could see people on Twitter like, hey, 
I'm pretty deep in the Saturday ghosty who wants to take over for 15%. Like, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be fun if you could go on Twitter and just find people to make deals with you to take over your account? In fact, they could even make it where no password's involved. They could make it what's known as trustless, where you can just uh, type in the person's screen name and they can automatically get access to your account without knowing your password for that tournament only. I think that would be better. Forget the password thing. That's too much of a potential disaster. But they, they could build it in the software where you can just transfer into somebody else's tournament with their permission, but only in the ghosties. So lean into the ghosting stuff. And instead of making people live like in the apartment above each other, who will then ghost each other in, in, in events, j- just make it to where anybody can ghost anybody else with permission, but only in the ghosties. And they should even have specials where celebrity ghosters can be there. So maybe on one day that uh, one lucky player, if they want can choose that uh, cocksucker Mizukowski comes in and ghosts them for the final three tables. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool if you like you're in a tough tournament, you don't have a lot of confidence, you think that all the other players are better than you, and you think, you know, if only I could have cocksucker Mizukowski play for me. And you go, oh, I can. I can. So then you summon him, and he comes over and plays for you for whatever the... Uh, going rate is you know he he has to be paid for his time obviously but uh you know he'll get some percentage of your win for taking over at that point but but specific days each of these guys will be available they'll have like by contract they'll have to be available to play if anybody wants them and they're like the first person to take them gets them like starting from a certain point and maybe even like it's it's a declining percentage depending on how deep in the tournament you take them so it's kind of like when do you want to grab Coxsucker Mizukowski? Like maybe when you're 95% through the field, 98%, 99%, final table. You got to make this decision and you got to do it before everybody else. In fact, maybe you have a special ghosty where you have all of them to choose from. You can have Bryn himself play for you. You can have Martin Zamani play for you if he ever makes up with them. Uh, Coxsucker Mizukowski. Surge, Mark Herm. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless here. So imagine a site like that. Now, that would set it apart. It would not be a cookie-cutter site if they did this. These would be new, innovative concepts. And none of this would be cheating as long as it's within the rules and everybody understands it and everybody can do it. The cheating comes in where people do it where everybody else is playing honestly. That's the cheating part. But this wouldn't be the case here. Here, Bryn Kenny could actually have a site where by rule you can multi-account you can play in these ghosties and have other people take over for you you can inject frog poison into your avatar so this guy heath cram is saying that he's looking for good people to hire well i'll tell you this heath if you hire me i will bring these winning ideas to your site and i will change this from something where you have to constantly try to wash the stink off of Bryn Kenny and fail i will change that narrative from that to a fun and innovative site where multi accounting and ghosting is good and you can redefine everything sometimes you just have to run with the reputation you have and not try to fight it sometimes the fighting of the reputation is what makes everything worse. Sometimes you have to just own it. Sometimes you have to make light of it. 
Sometimes you have to engage in self-effacing humor. Now, wouldn't this be self-effacing humor to have frog poison you can inject into your avatar or where you can play a tournament called the ghosty? Like, that takes away all the insults. People say, oh, yeah, I don't want to play on Bryn's site. Uh, you know, that multi-accounter, that, that ghoster. You go, yeah, yeah but, but you can do that on here by policy. That's the whole point. That's why, that's why he started the site. So people can do this stuff. Well, then what can people say back? I'm telling you, this is a winning idea. And so far, my tweet about this has 130 likes. So I think there's some interest. I have a feeling the site's not going to go anywhere, though. I have a feeling it may never start. And if it does start, it may not see the light of day. There's a lot of hurdles here beyond Bryn Kenny's rep that are in their way. There's the matter of developing software, which is not trivial. There is the matter of developing good software, which is especially not trivial. There is the matter of promotion. Run it once, did not promote, and it failed badly. There is the matter of getting people to leave where they're already comfortable. Now, GG Poker was able to do this, but it's not easy. So is there really room for another non-U.S. online poker site, given that that market might already be saturated? And there's a matter of funding. You know, they have to have employees. They have to have people they're going to pay on a weekly basis to work there. And without income, there's only so much money to go around. So there's a lot of stuff they got to think about here. It's also setting up a payment processing. There's a lot they have to do. And it sounds like they're not all that close. So I wouldn't expect to play on four poker anytime soon, even if you're not in the U.S. But Bryn Kenny, if you're listening, I think my ideas are a winner. I think the only chance you have to succeed is to do these things I said. All right, now let's discuss my little debate with Vital Vegas. Vital Vegas is kind of a mystery when it comes to how he supports himself. He is very frequently pro-casino when you look at his tweets, especially pro-certain casinos. He's very, very much pro-circa. And yet he claims he's not given money by any of these casinos. And some people question that. I don't know the answer here. I don't know how he supports himself. It's possible he's telling the truth they don't give him money. But this is someone who has a very well-followed Twitter account, 134,000 followers. And he frequently writes positive things over and over about certain casinos and will sometimes promote things that they're doing or things they have there. And then some other casinos will have bad things to say about or semi-bad. So who knows? I don't know what his real business relationship is with these Vegas casinos, if any. And if he has none, then how does he make money? I don't know. But What I do find sometimes is that uh, some of his pro-casino takes, or pro-certain casino takes, are ones I don't agree with. And he put out one recently that I couldn't keep quiet and had to respond. Now, we had a cordial discussion back and forth. We weren't bashing each other. We weren't insulting each other. Nobody blocked one another. So nothing like that. But... I didn't really agree with what he was writing. 
and I put it out there, and then some other people chimed in, and really most of the people who chimed in were on my side about the matter. And this has to do with playing at casino bars on the video poker machines and really not playing and pretend you're playing in order to get free drinks. And this is an old trick. This is nothing that's a big secret. But in case you don't know, if you are sitting at a casino bar that has a video poker machine at it, which is usually all casino bars, as long as you're sitting there with money in the machine, then often you qualify for free drinks. There are some casinos that have since updated this to where you have to play a certain amount and then the machine will light up and show the bartender that you've earned a free drink. And until then, you can't get a free drink. And once you consume that drink, you can't have another one until it lights up again. But there's a number of casinos that are not using that light system or some that even had it and have since taken it away. And again, a lot of them are presently the way it's always been, where if you're just sitting there with money in the machine, that it's not being monitored how much you're playing or not playing. Now, Vital Vegas insisted that sitting at a casino bar and putting money in and then just not playing and just ordering drink after drink after drink is equivalent to shoplifting, he said. He feels it's wrong. He feels it's like stealing from the casino because they're only giving you the free drinks because they think you're playing and you're tricking them into making them think you're playing when you're really not playing. So they're not making any money from you, but you're getting the free free drinks off of them that they would otherwise charge you for. Because if you just walk up to the bar and say, hey, give me this drink, they may charge you like 15 bucks. But here you get it for free because you're supposedly playing. And his point is it's like shoplifting because you're really not playing and you're tricking them. So you're getting a benefit that you don't deserve. This was uh, Vital Vegas's point. In fact, he started off talking about scamblers. He said scamblers is the term that casino employees use to describe people who pretend to play video poker at casino bars just to get the free drinks. That's how the whole thing started. At the time, he didn't directly say what his opinion was of these, quote, scamblers, but it, it seemed clear to me that he was critical of them and that he agreed with the casinos that this is a bad thing for players to be doing and something very unethical to do. The original tweet was on July 31st. It said, scambler, colon, a term casino employees use to describe a guest who pretends to gamble to get a comp drink. So he's referring to casino bars. I responded, same day. Slow playing video poker without looking like you're slow playing is an art. Don't knock it. Now, keep in mind, there is a difference between slow playing and not playing. Slow playing means you put money in the machine and every so often you run a hand and then you just sit. And then after some time sitting, you run another hand at the very lowest limit possible. So for example, you put a $20 bill in and you set it to a 25 cent denomination. And then every once in a while you play a hand for 25 cents and then stop again. That is slow playing. Or if you really don't want to give away machine value, you can 
do five times 25 cents by playing max play. So at least if you hit hit a royal, you'll get the proper pay. But that's still only a dollar twenty-five per hand, and you will win some of the hands. So you could even win during that, but your expected loss is not very high. Slow playing at the dollar twenty-five a hand limit. So I said, doing that and making it look like you're not doing that is an art. Don't knock it. So then he said back, "This isn't playing. It's putting in money, pretending play, and cash it out. It's shoplifting." So people didn't like that at all. Someone named Vice Society wrote back, the real shoplifting are most of the bar top video poker pay tables that are so pathetically low. That's a good point. That a lot of times these bar poker video poker games have a very bad pay table. And it's not like they warn you, hey, the pay table here sucks. In fact, a lot of players don't even realize there's a difference in pay tables or don't realize how much of a difference that makes in your odds. So I said, correct. And players are expected to be ignorant of this, especially at bars. Sorry, Vital, but it's absurd to compare gaming free drinks out of the casino to shoplifting. It is the casino's responsibility to decide when the customer can or can't have a drink. And that's really the main point. The main point here is that it's ultimately the casino who says, yes, we're going to give you a drink, or no, we're not going to give you a drink. Shoplifting is you stealing something while the business isn't looking. So if I walk into a store and I see a pack of M&Ms and I say, hmm, pack of M&Ms? Oh, wow, $1.25 for this small pack? Huh, that's a ripoff. I'm not going to pay that, but I really want these M&Ms. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to steal them. I'll wait till nobody's looking and I'll just put them in my pocket and stroll out. Now that's shoplifting. That's shoplifting in the literal sense. Because the business is unaware that I am taking those M&Ms and putting them in my pocket and walking out without paying. So that is definitely stealing. There's no question. But if I were to go to the guy who is managing the store and I were to say to him, I'm a good customer here. Would you be nice enough to give me this M&M pack for free? And he says, yes even though in reality I've barely been there and I'm just hoping he believes I'm a good customer? Well, that's a whole different matter. That's not stealing. I'm asking him, can I take these M&Ms? And I'm letting him judge if I am a good customer there. I'm asking, can I? And he says, yes. Now, if I were to say, I bought M&Ms yesterday and they were all melted and I had to throw them away, can I have this as a replacement? If I made up that whole story just to get free M&Ms, that's again stealing even if I'm asking permission, because I'm telling him a false story that I previously bought them. But to just say, hey, I'm a good customer, which can mean anything. Good customer can mean I was here once, I've been here every day, I've been here once a week, I've been here once a month. It can mean anything, a good customer. Say, hey, I'm a good customer here. Can I take these M&Ms for free? The truth is the answer would usually be no, but if he said yes, it wouldn't be stealing. So same with getting these drinks. Basically, you're asking the bartender, can I have this drink? And the bartender will either give it to you or say, no, you have to pay. And the way it's always been at these casino bars is that they will serve you the drink as long as you have money in the machine. Some of them started to clamp down on this because they started to believe that there's too many people who are freeloading and taking up space freeloading when there could be people sitting there and playing. But a lot of the bars took the attitude of, look, we're going to take a 
loss on people who aren't playing much or at all and are going to either slow play or fake play and get free drinks. But here's the bottom line. The drinks cost us very little. And there aren't that many people doing this, and it's not worth bothering and troubling those who are playing to have them on some stupid system where they have to earn it and where the bartender has to be troubled with seeing if they're earning it. So F it. We're, we're, we're making plenty of money, these bar top uh, video poker games, both on the play and uh, yeah, the people who just go buy drinks at those bars who don't bother to sit down. We're making plenty of money at these bars. So screw it. If a few people want to sit down and slow play, let them. We're not going to worry about it. But does that really mean that it's okay to do? Because you could say the same thing about shoplifting, that stores accept that there's going to be a certain amount of shoplifting, and some of them don't even choose to do anything about it. Some of them have a policy they're not going to chase down shoplifters That if someone shoplifts so well. But that doesn't mean the shoplifter is okay. He's still a thief. So is that the case here? Well, no, because again, you're sitting down and you're asking for a free drink. You're not even making a statement like, hey, I've just run $1,000 through this machine. Can you give me a drink when you really haven't? No, you're not talking at all about your play. You're sitting down, you're putting money in, and you're saying, can I have a drink? And it's up to the casino at that point to determine if you are worthy of a free drink. And it shouldn't matter what you think if you're worthy of a free drink or what Vital Vegas thinks. It should matter if they give it to you or they don't. They make the decision, not you. You're asking for something, they're saying either yes or no. So if people want to slow play, let them. And furthermore, this is one thing that you can do to get value out of the casino when there's tons of things they do to get money out of you. Some things which are borderline unethical. Like, do you know why there's no windows in casinos? It's because they want you to lose track of time and not realize how much of the day or night has passed so you don't leave. Because maybe if you showed up at 4 p.m., And then you look outside and see it's getting dark or is dark. You'll say, oh, crap, I've been here for a lot of hours. Well, yeah, I came here in the middle of the afternoon. I got to get out of here. Or you come at two in the morning and then you look outside a few hours later and you see light. You go, oh, wow, it's light already. I got to get out of here. They don't put windows there so you don't see that. So you stay. That's pretty manipulative, right? What about the drinks they serve you? What about these drinks that we're talking about right now? Do they give these to be nice? No, they're giving you these drinks because, number one, people like drinking while they play. And number two, they want you to be drunk because you make suboptimal decisions when you're drunk. About bankroll management, about the strategy and the games you're playing. Your inhibitions decline when you are drunk or even buzzed. And that's what they want. So you lose more money. And there's a lot of little things they do in casinos that are meant to manipulate you into losing every last dollar. And they do the very, very minimum as required by law for, quote, responsible gambling. The main goal at all the casinos is to separate you from as much money as possible without you realizing that that's what they're trying to do. The comps, same thing. Comps seem like a great thing. 
But the comps are designed to bring you in there so you lose far more than their value in gambling and yet still feel good about it because you say, oh, look at the free stuff I got. It's all manipulation. So if you manipulate them back to get a very small thing like a cheap drink, should you feel guilty? I'm not saying you should steal from them. I'm not saying you should go in the gift shop and shoplift there. I'm saying that if you can go to the bar and ask them for a drink and they can give you that drink without you playing after you've asked them for it, that is totally fine. It's a very small form of advantage play. It's a pretty weak argument on the part of Vital Vegas. And there really isn't much difference between slow play and no play. I guess technically you could say slow playing at least means you're playing at the bar and no play just means you're sitting there with money in there. But it's all pretty similar. You're putting in either no play or very, very little play and getting drinks that are that would normally cost a lot more than what you're losing there and what they'd be expecting you to lose. But that's not your problem. You don't need to figure out how much you should be losing to earn the drink. You ask for the drink, they give it, that's that. That's all you have to think about. I once had it occur downtown where I was with somebody, and I, I don't drink as you guys probably know. So I was with somebody downtown, and I'm playing video poker at a bar top, and I wasn't even slow playing. And I asked for a drink, and I tried to hand this drink to the person with me, and they wouldn't let me do it. They said, uh-uh-uh, you have to drink it yourself. I said, what? They said, no, you have to drink it yourself. I said, well, why does that matter? That's our rule here, I was told. And that was true. It was the rule there, apparently. That not only couldn't you give your drink that you earned to the person with you, but the bartenders were expected to enforce this or they get in trouble. And I said, why does it matter what I do with this? It should be okay if I want to take this drink to the bathroom and dump it in the toilet. If I've earned this, I've earned it. It shouldn't matter whose throat it goes down. Nope, it's got to be you, they said. Like, I'd understand if I gave it to this person and said, okay, can you give one to me now? But that wasn't their point. Their point was I couldn't take the one drink given to me and give it to somebody else, which is insane. From what I remember, it was the Golden Nugget that did this. Maybe not. I think it was Golden Nugget. It was one of those downtown properties. And not like one of the terrible ones. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about the MGM Grand. The MGM Grand poker room again. But this time not about a guarantee. What I'm going to talk about this time is a kind of weird promotion they have. I'm trying to analyze whether this is good or bad or kind of in between. It's, it's not very straightforward. So it's kind of hard to tell. And it's odd, and it's got some non-standard parts to it. I mean, the whole thing's kind of non-standard, but once you dig into it, it really gets non-standard. So I, I want to cover this, and we'll discuss how weird it is and isn't, and whether this is something you should do. So this is from the MGM Grand Poker Room account on Twitter at MGM Grand Poker. And this tweet was sent on July 31st in the morning. And the tweet read, Are you at least a break-even player? This should help. Starts tonight at midnight. 
So it means it's already started. It started on August 1st at, uh, I guess, 12.01 a.m. So it says, 250K Rakeback Race, August 1st, 2022 through November 6th, 2022. That's a pretty long time, right? This promotion rake is in the amount taken from every eligible poker game pot to fund poker room promotion and is separate from and in addition to house rake. The promotion rake will be a max of $2 with $1 taken on the flop and one taken when the pot is $20 or more. Okay, so what they're saying right here, just to begin before they even describe what this is going to be, is that it's going to be funded by promotion rake. They're not just handing out free money. So every pot is going to have either $1 or $2 taken out of it to fund this. First dollar comes at the beginning of the hand. and Or actually, the first dollar will come if a flop is seen. If no flop is seen, there's no nothing taken. But the first dollar will be taken when the flop hits, and the second dollar will be taken if the pot is 20 or more. And if the pot is 20 or more when the flop hits, then they take $2 right away. That's a lot of promotional rake, that most pots will be $2 in addition to whatever they are already raking. It said the promotion rake will taken from each pot will be then placed in a drop box on the opposite side of the table. The promotion rake drop box will be collected and counted in a matter consisted with internal control procedures. 100% of the daily promotion rake will be posted to the promotion reserve account on a daily basis. So basically they're saying every dollar we take of this additional promotion rake that's on top of the house rake is going to be put in this promotional fund. We're not going to put it in our coffers as profit. Okay, fine. I believe that. Then it says, cash games that do not add to the promotion rake are excluded from all promotions funded by this, meaning that I don't know which games this would be, but anything that doesn't have this promotion rake won't be part of this uh, twenty or the 250k rake back race. But what is this race? Okay, here we go. To qualify for the 250k rake back race promotion, Players must log a minimum of 20 hours of live-action Hold'em poker during the qualifying period, which, as I said, is a little more than three months, from August 1st to November 6th. Qualifying for the promotion begins at 12 a.m. August 1st and ends at 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, November 6th, or when $250,000 in aggregate is paid out, whichever comes first. Now, that's very interesting. We'll get to that shortly. It's a little bit weird. Basically, the promotion runs for these three months and five days unless we've already paid out 250K, then the whole thing ends. Players will be placed in lobby mode immediately upon missing a blind and will not be taken out of lobby mode until posting and being dealt back in. If players are abusing this rule by constantly leaving the table in between blinds, Supervisors may disqualify the player's entire session. So basically what they're trying to say here is you have to actively be playing to earn anything here. And if you get up and walk away, then we're going to turn off your earning. So these hours you're you're playing towards this promotion are not going to accrue if you're away from the table. And if you appear like you're trying to game this by repeatedly leaving the table hoping that dealers don't notice then uh, we're just going to disqualify you. Okay, makes sense. 
Management must be notified within 24 hours of any alleged discrepancy to investigate if there was a system failure that's regarding your hours counted. Players must may not earn hours for another guest or play during another guest on another guest card, and doing so will re- result in the forfeiture of hours earned and possible disqualification from the entire promotion. I would think that it should be instant disqualification for everybody involved there, but whatever. They're just saying you can't multi-account here. You can't have two people on one card. And then number 13, a maximum of 250K will be paid per the following schedule. If you play 20 hours, you earn $150. And they're saying that's $750 per hour. If you play 70 hours, then you get $599. And that is $856 per hour. By the way, the 599 is probably done for tax reasons because remember this whole thing about having to be issued this 1099 MISC if you earn $600 or more, if somebody pays you $600 or more. So I think that's to get around that. That's why it's 599 because technically they're like paying you for hours worked in a way. You're kind of like a prop. So I think that's why they're doing 599. Let's go to the next one. 200 hours, your payout is 2,500. That would be 1,250 an hour. 700 hours played, you will get $12,000. That is $17.14 per hour. And finally, 1,072 hours played, you would get $25,000, which is $23.32 an hour. Okay, so... There's a lot to discuss here, a lot to analyze here, even though it doesn't seem like it. First of all, are you getting these amounts of money when you hit these milestones? Answer, no. So if you get to 20 hours played, which isn't that hard to get to, I've done that in one session, you don't just get handed 150 bucks. You have to claim the money and then be done with the promotion. So if you claim your 150 at that point, then you're not going to earn the rest. They say, okay, here's your 150, but then you're not getting anything more from this promotion. So you're not earning this along the way. What you're doing is you are getting to certain tiers at which any point you can stop and collect the money. So let's say you played uh, 32 hours. Well, you can stop then. You're still going to get 150, which means your hourly will be lower than the 750 they're claiming because the last 12 hours didn't help you but you're currently in the 150 tier. Once you get to 70 hours played, then you're in the 599 tier. So then between 70 and 199 hours, you'd be getting a flat 599 if you stop then, and so on and so forth, all the way up to 1,072 hours, in which case you've earned 25,000. At that point, you might as well claim it, of course, because there's nothing further you can earn. So the second you hit 1,072 hours, then you can say, okay, 25k please and that's that okay well still that sounds fine right you can set goals and then once you get there you can cash out so if you think you're going to play 700 hours in this three-month period then you can say okay well i'm going to play 700 hours as soon as i hit hour 700 i will get my 12k payout and that'll be a nice little bonus but hold on wait 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 Remember what I said before, that this promotion doesn't necessarily end on November 6th, like they're saying. 
They said November 6th or when they have paid out 250K total. So wait a minute. Let's say 10 guys spend a ton of time in that room and play 1,072 hours. And the second they get to 1,072 hours, which you're not going to get to right away, obviously, that's uh, there's only uh, 168 hours in a whole week. 1,072 hours, by the way, is almost 45 days. So there's no way you could get to it without a month and a half passing. And this is already about halfway to the end of the promo anyway. So yes, it'll be hard to get to 1,072. The entirety of the promotion is like, what, like 96 days, 97 days? So you'd be having to play like 11 hours a day, I believe, to reach it by the very end. But let's say somebody plays more than 11 hours a day. Let's say somebody really bears down and plays 16 hours a day. Well, then they would get to the 1,072 hours in 67 days. So they'd get there on uh, October 8th or October 7th, even though the promotion runs all the way through November 6th, almost another month. Let's say not only does one guy do this, let's say this guy and nine buddies all just just commit they're going to play 16 hours a day at the MGM Grand Poker Room from August 1st until October 7th. So all 10 of them make it on October 7th. All 10 of them cash out. Well, that's 10 times 25,000. What does that equal? 250,000. Well, the promotion ends once 250,000 has been paid out total. So would that mean that once these 10 guys cashed out, then that would be the end of the promotion? Yes. And what about the people who haven't cashed out yet? Let's say someone who has uh, 994 hours played and is getting pretty damn close to 1072. They're just not quite there yet. And they've only got 76 hours to go to get their cool 25K. What happens if these 10 people all get the 10K or the 25K ahead of them and there's no money left? Well, what they end up getting is... Zero point zero. Yes. So this is a rake race in more ways than one. It's not only a race to earn hours. It's also a race to cash out before everyone else depletes the fund. So it's like a game of chicken is what it really is. Because yes, you can go for the 1072 hours for 25K or you can go for the 700 hours for 12K. But if you don't make it there fast enough before others cash out ahead of you and the 25K is gone or the 250K is gone, that is, then you're going to get nothing. So the question is, how long do you keep playing before you panic and cash out fearing that there will be nothing left? They were also asked what happens if there's money left, but not enough to fully pay. So let's say there's 10K left in the fund and you've just earned 25K from 1,072 hours, what will happen? The answer is you'll just get the full remainder. You'll just get 10K and that's it. You won't get the whole 25. If there's 1K left, you'll get 1K. If there's nothing left, you'll get nothing. 
Well, this is a problem because you can't just go back and get those hours back that you were playing towards the promotion. Let's let's go back to our example where the guy playing 994 hours is about to get to 1072, but then the last person cashes out uh, for their 25K and there's nothing left in the fund. Well, he can't go back and say, okay, well, you know, let's go back in time now. I, I, I wouldn't have played the 994 hours. If I knew that, so I'm just going to go back in time and erase that. You can't do that. You've already wasted 994 hours playing in that stupid poker room and you get nothing for it. So this is a very weird thing because what you're going to get paid has to do with how much other people are cashing out and you have to constantly be nervous about what other people are doing. This just shouldn't even be a thought on your part. You shouldn't even have to worry about this. You should worry about your what you're doing and how many hours you're putting in. It's one thing to be competing with others and say, okay, I need to finish in top 10 to get anything here. I mean, that's a typical rake race is where it's either by rake paid or hours played that they give you some reward at the end if you're top whatever. But not where you actually have to worry that people who are very close to what you are are just cashing out before you do. And it's not just about the top prize. As I said, let's say you get to 700 hours. You may say, hey, look, I could play these last 372 and get more than double my money, but I'm afraid that by the time I play these 372 that all the money will be gone from the pool, so I better cash out now. So you constantly have to worry about what others are cashing out, which is ridiculous. So what's the solution to this? I can understand where MGM is saying, look, we can't just have tons of people camping out here and playing and we're going to owe millions of dollars. I understand that. But what they should do is they should just make this some sort of uh, hourly thing that maybe increases, like they're showing here, that you're just guaranteed to receive and they don't have to make it as high. And then they could have some kind of list that uh, the top whatever finishers and hours get an extra bonus. Something like that. Something where at least everybody who does it gets something once they reach a certain minimum threshold. But this is ridiculous that you could play a thousand hours and end up getting nothing because you didn't cash out faster than the others did. So it's a very flawed promotion they have here. It's not necessarily a bad idea because it encourages people to grind there. It's like having cheap props that set their own schedule. Usually props who are players that are paid to actually play at the casino are instructed you need to play this many hours on these days and you have to play these certain hours. You can't just say, hey, I'll be a prop but I'll show up when I want. Usually the deals don't work like that. So this would be a deal like that where you can be kind of a form of a prop and show up and play when you want and when you don't want. So that's nice for the players. And for that reason, they don't have to be paid as much as regular props because they don't have set hours. So this is a way to get cheap propping done. That's just not on a specific schedule. But at the same time, they shouldn't screw people who do it and just don't cash out as fast because they're going for the higher tiers. They're not cashing out slower out of laziness. They're cashing out slower because they can't cash out without exiting the promotion. So it's adding an element to this that doesn't need to be there and that's going to screw people. And they've run something like this in the past and, and people were already complaining about it in that thread. 
Another complaint is that it's going to fill the room with nothing but rakeback grinders, and these people are not action. These are going to just be tight players who are just looking to grind up to the next tier, and they're going to make the games terrible. So it's going to increase the number of people in the room, but it's going to be players you really don't want in the game. It's going to be players who don't add value there. MGM Grand responded to this concern, tweeting, current amount is posted in the room and on Bravo. I thought grinders would kill the game too, but we have a strong recreational base, so the games are still action. Well, yeah, at the moment, but if you have a ton of these guys playing there for hours and hours and hours, then it is going to kill the action. I think with some modification, this could be better. But there's a number of issues here. And keep in mind, they are also charging additional rake to pay for this. This isn't something the room is funding. So keep in mind, this isn't the room paying props anyway. This is the room paying props out of additional rake that's added for this promo fund. Someone named David Badalato on Twitter said, every tourist recreational player that plays here during this promotion is getting fleeced. A 40% increase in max rake to fund a promotion they will never qualify for. That's a good point. That anyone who has no chance to play 20 hours because they're not going to be there that long, they're a tourist, they're paying all this extra promotional money in rake that is a promo they'll never redeem. The poker room said back, this is not more rake. Well, it is. It's not called rake, but it is rake. And this is infinitely better than bad beat jackpots where tourists play one hand and regs who fund promo year-round get, as you say, fleeced. Well, that's not true because a recreational player can win a bad beat jackpot at any time, whereas a tourist here has no chance to win this if they're just going to be in town a short time. 20 hours is even too much for most of them to play on a typical trip. Someone asked, so is Rake going from 5 plus 1 to 5 plus 1 plus 2? It said back, Rake is the same it's been for over four years, 5 for the house and 2 for player promo. But still, that's a lot. That's a increase from $5 to $7. Someone said regarding the 1,072 hours, 44 full days of poker? That's 44 days without sleep. Anyone who tries more than a week would need to be hospitalized. If you slept five hours per day, you could finish by the end of September. Likely the promo funds will be exhausted by then anyway. That's the big problem. Like, uh, anyone going for the big money is never going to get there. The promo funds are going to be sucked up by everybody else cashing out earlier. Like every time someone plays 20, they can just cash out for uh, 150 and be done. So this could be a nice thing if modified, but as it is, it's kind of stupid. Not unethical, but just stupid. I'm going to finish off with a discussion about mask mandates that are coming back in places. And with other COVID-related mandates that just make no sense to me. If you're going to mock people on the right for being anti-science about COVID, being COVID deniers, being anti-vax, whatever it might be that you're mocking the right for regarding their position on COVID, then you have to look at your own side and look at some of the things that are being done and required that don't make any sense and aren't doing anyone any good. 
So let's discuss some facts about current COVID, and then we will see why these mandates are so dumb. COVID today, as I'm speaking right now on August 7th, is Omicron variant BA5. Omicron BA5 is the present variant we have on August 7th, 2022. This is not that much like original COVID that we saw in 2020 and the first half of 2021. This is not very much like Delta, which we saw as the next dominant variant in the second half of 2021. In fact, Delta and original COVID had a lot in common, but Omicron has relatively little in common with the other two. And Omicron has really been the variant of 2022. There's been different flavors of Omicron, which has allowed people to catch it more than once. So we're on uh, the variant called BA5 now. The main Omicron variants we've had this year have been original, BA2, BA4, and BA5. BA4 and 5, by the way, are very similar to one another. I probably had BA4 back in June. I had Omicron in June. It's just, I don't know if it was BA2 or 4, but it looks like it was probably 4. So Omicron BA5, which is what we have today, that's what we have to think about when we make any kind of regulations or laws regarding COVID. We can't make it based upon 2020's COVID or 2021 COVID. Those were different COVIDs. They did different things. They had different dangers. They were less contagious, but they were a lot more deadly. They affected middle-aged populations very differently than the ones today do. So we have to look at what we have today, not what we once had, because what we once had is never coming back. We also have to look at the vaccines for what they are and aren't. If you had two shots, which is considered fully vaccinated in most of the country and in most countries around the world, it's not doing you much good anymore. Let's say you got your first shot in April 2021 and your second shot a few weeks later at the beginning of May 2021. Let's say that's what you did. How much is that going to do to prevent you from catching symptomatic Omicron BA5 today? It's not going to help you at all. How much is it going to do to prevent you from transmitting Omicron BA5 today? It's not going to help you at all. How will it help you? Well, it might help you a little bit as far as the severity of your symptoms. It might make it to where your symptoms are not as severe and where your chance of dying is less. But if you're not very old or have a major medical problem that is before the COVID, then you're probably not going to die from it anyway. Omicron just is not killing people who are relatively healthy and not really elderly. It's just not really happening anymore. Those two shots, if that's all you had back in uh, early to mid-2021, they're doing you very little good and they're doing the public no good. They're not preventing you from transmitting it anywhere. And they're not stopping you from getting symptomatic COVID at this point. They've not only worn off, but Omicron BA5 busts through these vaccines anyway. So those two shots are doing you basically no good, except for keeping the most severe symptoms away. 
So why should there be any kind of legislation about them at this point? What's the point? Why does it matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated? It's not protecting public health. It's not stopping you from transmitting. So why is this required? Because it feels good? Because back in 2021, getting those two shots did stop you from getting sick and did stop you from transmitting somewhat? That was mid-2021. It's different now. It's a different disease. And the vaccine wears off. So two shots back in mid-2021 are not going to help you today, and yet they are still writing laws, and they're still enforcing old laws today that require you to have those two shots. And it doesn't make any sense. Now, thankfully, the World Series of Poker, for all the COVID problems they had, they were at least sensible enough to say, no, we're not going to require this. You don't need two shots in 2022. You don't need any shots. But, you know, to come into the country, you need those shots. Or to go to other countries, to go to Canada, for example. You keep reading about these baseball players that can't go to play in Toronto because they don't have those two shots. Isn't that stupid? These young, healthy guys need two shots from over a year ago to get into Canada and vice versa? Now, if you're a citizen of that country, then you don't need it. So if you're a U.S. citizen, you can come back to the U.S. without those shots. If you're a Canadian citizen, you can come back to Canada without those shots. But if you're not a citizen of that country, you cannot come in without those two shots, which is crazy. So why are these being required? Where is the science backing the necessity to be vaccinated with two shots? How is this helping public health at all? Answer is, it's not. Let's look at mask mandates, because these are starting to come back. They were taken away for a while, but they're starting to come back. In January, when Omicron was spreading very, very quickly at extremely rapid rates that hadn't been seen before with the other variants of COVID, the good news was that it wasn't as severe. It would look like it was was, a far less deadly, and it turned out it was uh, 10% as deadly as Delta. So that was good news, but spreading way faster. And in fact, BA5, Omicron BA5 that we have right now spreads a lot faster than the Omicron we saw in December and January. So it's getting more and more contagious. When that was happening, the CDC had to admit something that I thought was the case all along, and that is that cloth masks don't really work. The reason they finally admitted this in January was because people were walking around with a false sense of security and Omicron was spreading at tremendously high rates. So finally, the CDC had to say, look, okay, the cloth masks, they're not really helping with Omicron. You really need to wear a surgical mask or better. And if you don't have a surgical mask or better, it's kind of useless, this mask you're wearing. This cloth mask that we required you to wear for the last two years, truth is, it's, it's kind of useless. It's not helping very much. It's probably not helping at all. So, yeah, don't go out in public unless you have a surgical mask on or better. That's our recommendation. That, that's what they said in January. So they basically admitted in January that the cloth mask didn't work, except they said, oh, well, it's because it's Omicron. Omicron, is, it's, it's so much more contagious. That's why it's not working. Well, no. I mean, it's part of it that it was 
spreading so much because it's way more contagious. But the other part of it was the cloth masks never worked very well in the first place. It was something that made you feel good and feel protected, but it wasn't really doing you any good. So we know this. The CDC admitted this in January. You can Google it and find it if you want. So since this was admitted to in January, and since the Omicron we have today is even more contagious than the one we had in January, why are mask mandates coming back? They're not mandating KN95 masks or surgical masks. No, they are mandating masks. So if you put on one of these cloth masks that they admitted don't work back in January, somehow you are complying with the mandate because uh, it looks good. If you have a cloth mask on, it doesn't work, but you look like you're taking it seriously and that's enough. Where is the science backing the use of cloth masks if they admitted back in January that they don't work. How does this make any sense? Now, you might say, well, they might help a little bit, though. So isn't something better than nothing? The answer is no. If it is not doing very much good and it's creating a burden, even a small one, on the public, then there is no point to have such a mandate. A mandate should be for something that is very important that is going to have a major tangible result. And if they're going as far in January to say, hey, uh, don't go out in public anymore with the cloth masks because that's not going to help you. You're going to need surgical or better if you go out and you want to be safe or you want to not transmit, then that pretty much kills the whole cloth mask thing. That should be the end of cloth mask requirements, period. In fact, they should go even further and say, just stop wearing them. It's pointless. But nobody wants to say that because then they look like liars for the previous two years. So they have to be careful about what they say. But here they're going to bring them back. It's one thing to not admit they screwed up before. It's another thing to bring back the whole stupidity, which they messed up previously. They're making the exact same mistake again. You might ask, why would they do this? What would be the point of a mask mandate if it's been known, at least since January, that the cloth masks don't work and the mandate is only for cloth masks or better? You don't have to wear a cloth mask, but if you do, that's good enough to qualify for following the mandate. So why would they ever do this? Well, because it's politicians making these decisions. And when these decisions are being made, it gives the impression that something's being done. It's what's known as the illusion of security. And that's all they care about. They don't care about whether you live or die personally. What they care about is that it makes it look like that they are doing something responsible, that we're seeing COVID numbers go up because BA5 is more contagious. So what's the response? Well, you can't just say, hey, we're going to do nothing about it. You can't just say, hey, we're just going to deal with it. More people will get COVID. Oh, well, we're taking no action. Well, actually, A lot of places are doing that, and that's the right move, but there are some states and localities saying, hey, we have to make it look like we're doing something. So even if the something is useless, as long as we look like we're doing something, well, that's all we really need. That's why mask mandates are coming back in some places, and they're very stupid. Here is the truth about Omicron BA5. It busts right through vaccines. In fact, BA5 is said to be four times better at busting through vaccines than BA2, which already was busting through vaccines itself. 
But BA5 is four times better at doing that. So I know that BA4 and 5 can bust through vaccines because it busted through my vaccine. And not my vaccine from six or eight months ago. My vaccine from three weeks prior. Not three months, three weeks prior. When it's supposed to be at its strongest. Supposed to have the strongest protection possible and it busted through. Now I had light symptoms. That was nice. But it still got through. I still got sick. Still had COVID. Still was probably transmitting. That was three weeks after my vaccine, my fourth shot. So what we have to accept about Omicron BA5 is that the present vaccines, I know they're changing them and this fall supposedly will have some vaccines actually tailored for BA4 and 5, which may not even be the dominant variant at that point, but ones that are designed to actually fight it off as the, the current vaccine is the one that was made in 2020. So that's why it doesn't do that well against Omicron. But the current vaccines are not going to prevent you from getting symptomatic COVID. The current vaccines are not going to prevent you from transmitting COVID. Cloth masks are not going to prevent you from getting or transmitting COVID. They are useless. So requiring any of this stuff is dumb because it is doing the public no good. And if you want to say, well, these vaccines are at least keeping people from getting symptoms as severe. Well, that's true, but that's their personal choice. The vaccine does have a risk, not a huge risk, but it does have a risk. And there are many unknowns to the vaccine as far as what the impact will be short-term, medium-term, and long-term. Now, I got four shots, so I'm not an anti-vax person, as you can tell, but I'm realistic. I was taking a risk, not a huge one, but I was taking a risk I just felt it was a risk worth taking. But it is a risk, and I respect the decision of those that say, I don't wish to take this risk. I will take my chances with COVID instead, especially because Omicron BA5 is not particularly dangerous if you're not really sick or really old. And I can respect that point of view. So this should not be something that is required. doesn't matter what country you're from. should be fine if you want to come from Canada without the vaccine. It should be fine if you want to come from the U.S. to Canada without the vaccine. But you know what? In both cases, it's not. You can't do it. It's not allowed. It's dumb. It's anti-science. It's going on past information, not present information. It's making rules based upon what we knew of COVID in 2020 and 2021, not today's COVID. It is based upon pre-Omicron COVID, not present COVID, which is Omicron. It's antiquated. It's obsolete. These rules need to be revisited and dropped. And to bring back mask mandates is absolutely insane. Now, if they're going to do it, then do it right. Then say, okay, we're going to have mask mandates and you have to have a surgical mask or better, or you can't come to such and such place. Now, I don't agree with that because Omicron just is not enough of a danger to put that type of burden on people. But if you're going to, then at least do it right. So a mask mandate with surgical masks or better at least has some benefit. I don't agree with it, but at least it has some benefit. A mask mandate of any mask, that is not going to do very much good at all other than 
be bothersome and make it look like the politicians care. In conclusion, don't just blindly believe that public officials are keeping your best interests in mind and keeping your health in mind when they make these rules and make these laws and make these regulations. Realize that there are many regulations that are not following the science. And as you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. As you know, I have been critical of many COVID positions on the right. I've had right-wingers who listen to this show, who usually agree with my political takes, send me very angry messages because I say things that they don't agree with. And they get mad. They say, you know, you're usually sensible about political takes. Your takes about COVID suck. I get this from from right-wingers. And then I get messages from left-wingers telling me that I'm an anti-vaxxer or I'm not taking COVID seriously or I'm making excuses for the right. I can't please either side with this because I see when both sides say and do stupid things. But this editorial about COVID is about the left doing stupid things, about the mandates, which are obsolete and unnecessary and don't make any sense based upon our present strain of COVID and our present knowledge of the disease. And if you see anything different, you're welcome to send it to me. And I'm not looking for something that will prove that uh, there's a 2% benefit from wearing cloth masks. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for something that's substantial. Because when you require people do something, there needs to be a substantial benefit. Otherwise, you're placing a burden for too little of a benefit. You have to understand public policy is always a balance between risk and inconvenience. An example I always like to give is that we could reduce auto deaths to about zero if we just simply mandated that no vehicle could drive more than 20 miles per hour. But that would also be a tremendous inconvenience. So that's why we don't do it. That's why we accept these inevitable thousands and thousands of auto deaths per year so we can all drive faster than 20 miles per hour. So you can't just go by if there's one death that's too many. You have to make policy about what's best for everybody on the whole. And any burden you put upon people, any restriction you put upon people, you need to have a benefit that's tangible enough that makes sense. You can't just say, well, it's easy to wear a mask everywhere, so just just do it. Just do it. If we're saving a few lives, do it. No. No. You've got to look at how many you're saving and if you're saving any at all. Not just if it feels good to have a mask on because you feel more protected. And the truth is, Omicron really has kind of entered flu territory at this point as far as its danger. Remember, during a bad flu season, there would be as many as 80,000 people dying per year in the U.S. So we've kind of entered that sort of risk profile about equivalent to the flu, and and it's really killing the same people the flu was killing, which is old people. Except the flu was also killing little kids, and COVID doesn't really do that much. So current COVID is actually much better for kids than the flu is. And for old people, it's around like flu territory. So just like you didn't know any 50-year-olds that died of the flu, I'm guessing, 
you also probably don't know any 50-year-olds that are dying of Omicron. Whereas 50-year-olds dying of original COVID or Delta, you may have known some, and I know some. In fact, uh, Robert Gray, who we're going to have this memorial tournament for next week, he was a 56-year-old who died of COVID. That was very tragic. But it's a different disease today. It's not the same disease that killed Robert Gray. Yesterday in the U.S., according to Worldometers, it shows only 35 new COVID deaths. If you look at two days ago, shows 400. So what that shows is there was some kind of reporting lag the day before. But if you average the two together, you see like 200 or so. And that's much, much less than it used to be. Remember at the peak, we were getting more than 3,000 a day. So if you average that out, if you if you multiply it out, it, it's really kind of equivalent to a bad flu season of what we're seeing now in death. And it's it's really very, very, very skewed to very old and sick people. And that's very different than what we had before. Something that was killing mostly healthy or healthy middle-aged people and also killing a lot of uh, somewhat old, but not really old people, like 65, 70. That's a very big difference than something that's killing mostly people who are over 85. It's a very, very big difference, both in number of years of life lost overall and also the danger to the average American. So the deadliness just really isn't there very much from Omicron for the typical person. That is it. We will have a show next week. Don't worry, it won't be another two weeks. I know we've been missing some weeks lately, but uh, I guess I should tell you the reason I, I missed the past week. It's because I went on vacation. I went to Canada. I went to Vancouver Island. And if you don't know, Vancouver Island is a large island off of Vancouver, exactly as it would sound. And I had only been to Victoria, which is the biggest city on Vancouver Island. I've been there twice before, but I'd never ventured past Victoria. Both times I was there, both as a kid and as an adult in my early 40s, I went to Victoria and did some stuff there and then went back on the ferry to Vancouver. So I said, you know what? I want to see the rest of the island. So I did. And unfortunately, I ran into a heat wave that was unexpected. It was not even forecasted. But I ran into a very bad Pacific Northwest heat wave to where one place I visited was 100 degrees, which was very unusual. And basically, everything except the very western coastal part of the island was well over 90 every day, and then it just hung there. It didn't even get cool at night until it was very late. So this is a place that usually has like Seattle-like weather, in fact, even cooler. And instead, we got the 90s summery weather, which wasn't good. (laughs) When you'd want to do hiking and other outdoor activities, and when two of the hotels don't have air conditioning because they don't usually need it, it's not good to have a heat wave there. So that was, that was disappointing to get that weather, especially, as I said, when I flew there. I flew there on uh, July 24th. At that point, it was not forecasted at all. It was forecasted for normal weather, and then just this unexpected heat wave came to the entire Pacific Northwest, and I got caught in it. So what can I do? 
But I made the best of it and saw a lot of things there, and I'm, I'm starting to post some pictures on Poker Fraud Alert. So if you want to go to the Flying Stupidity Forum on Poker Fraud Alert, you can see my thread about the Vancouver Island trip, and I'm slowly posting some pictures and little reports about what I did. And you can enjoy that if you like that sort of thing. That's where I was. That's why I didn't do radio last week. But I do not have a trip planned for next week. So I should be able to do radio next week. Shouldn't be any kind of delay unless I unexpectedly get sick or something. So we should be back to the once a week thing for quite some time. Anyway, thank you for listening. I will give you more information soon about the tournament we're going to have next week the second annual Robert Gray Memorial Free Roll. If you'd like to donate to that free roll or any other free roll that uh, we're going to have in the future, you can always text me, 775-372-8355, and I will tell you how to do it. You can also email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Dandruff is all one word, all lowercase. I want to thank uh, Trey Daruski and Cal Watt for coming on near the beginning. Pretty late for both of them, even though they were on opposite coasts. I enjoyed seeing them last month and having a nice meal that Cal Watt generously paid for. We've already talked about that. And I don't know. I wonder what we're going to have next week wonder what new and weird things are going to happen in the poker world. It seems like just material just keeps writing itself for me. Like here we have Hustler canceling a guarantee during a tournament. Bryn Kenny starting a poker site. <laughs> this is sometimes a dead time of year for news and poker, but look at this. We have stuff to talk about because dumb things like that happen. Landon Teese, I mean, what is he doing? Advertising slots? Trying to stay in Bally's for 100k a year? What is with that kid? Even Death Valley cooperated and they had their flood, so we can talk about that this week. Just Yeah, we had stuff to talk about. Why, even during a time of year where there's often not much to say post-World Series, we had a long show anyway, even without any interviews. All right. I will see you next week. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for the exact date. Shalom. Shalom.